Hello and welcome to Grand Theft World. I am your host and navigator, Tony Myers. Today is January 23rd, 2022, and we have a crazy show for you. The narrative is changing, which is interesting. Why now? Why all of a sudden is the narrative changing, at least in some parts of the world? Obviously, they're still quite belligerent and hegemonic in various parts, like Austria and Germany. Yet the UK and Ireland and the Czech Republic, what's going on there? Something strange is happening. And I wonder if they're getting ready to pivot a little bit. I wonder if that could be related to some ideas around the World Economic Forum. But we're going to get into some clips that maybe you know flesh that out uh, in greater detail. This show, there is so many different personalities, clips, some of which you've never seen. I don't think we've ever featured before on GTW. We have Sam Rivera uh, doing a montage. He's a filmographer. He's a producer and editor. Does incredibly visceral, very short clips, very powerful and emotive clips. Uh, he did an incredible production of a montage of clips uh, of Joe Rogan talking about what the real goal of the pandemic has been from his perspective. And Joe Rogan having one of the largest, actually the largest podcast audience in the world, uh, many times uh, outdoing mainstream media and other alternative producers in the podcast sphere. We have Paul Joseph Watson talking about the lifting of restrictions I just mentioned. But then we have someone, Dave Collin from Computing Forever, asking why now? Uh, he's a podcaster, libertarian sort of podcaster from Ireland, I believe. Uh, he's done incredible work for, for many, many years. And uh, I don't think we ever featured him on the show. So that'll be a good juxtaposition between Paul Joseph Watson and Dave Collins' perspective. Brett and Heather talking about natural immunity. Um, very interesting discussion around the issues, the, the benefit and the issues trying to understand natural immunity in the larger context of COVID. Jimmy Dore talking about Joe Rogan breaking the internet once again and debunking this whole 270 scientists uh, bullshit. Of course, now I heard it's up to 1,000. You know, where were we talking about? It's, uh, collegiate professors of science, uh, uh, podcasters that are scientists, or at least talk about science. You know, we'll get into some of that, and it's pretty interesting, because now supposedly Tim Pool is saying it's up to 1,000 before it was 270, but, you know, we'll flush that out later on tonight. Um, it's always, always something in regards to what's going on in the uh, Joe Rogan sphere. So many people are very jealous, it seems like, of his, his success. We have Ryan Grimm following up with the lab leak from The Hill. Uh, Ryan Grimm from The Hill, that is. And he's talking more about getting into more detail about the, the Fauci emails and the, the DARPA proposals, I believe, and all that good stuff. Also, Russell Brand talking about the same information. So the juxtaposition between those two personalities, one very vibrant and the other one much more subdued. So it'll be an interesting uh, sort of analysis uh, to dive into with both of them presenting their opinions on them. And then we have what's her face talking about, I believe it's John Calhoun, the John Calhoun study. I believe it was done in Maine, purely Rockefeller funded the mouse utopia study. Now, Rich and I had covered this in the past. She did a fantastic, I think less than five minutes, succinct, salient, poignant podcast of her own. Uh, that was just, you know, in her own way, detailing what happened with the mouse utopia. Now, this got me thinking about utopia in a broader scale. And I couldn't help but, you know, decide to go into a little bit more detail. Why, why exactly does utopia not quite work, even though we, we strive for it so ardently? And I build out quite an intermission. It's going to be lots of clips and a lot of different perspectives around this idea, including parts of All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace, by uh, documentarian Adam Curtis, part three. We featured part two a couple of weeks ago. Now we're going to get into part three and talk a little bit about the selfish gene and uh, some issues surrounding the selfish gene theory that was popularized by the 
infamous Richard Dawkins, but actually it was not his invention. So we'll get into that. And then we have some topics to cover afterwards. Tucker Carlson talking about the downfall of civilization and issues going on between Ukraine and Russia. And John Bound uh, talking about uh, MLK, how he's been disgraced by the progressive left. And at the same time, sort of piggybacking on the theme of the downfall of Western civilization in America. So lots of very fun things to talk about after intermission, assuming we get that far. But today, for now, let's get to Luke Rudowski, as we always do to start out the show. Now, he was in D.C. In DC today at the protests at the, our nation's capital. And so we wanted, normally we show the Sunday podcast that he puts out. However, because it was sort of a live podcast he did just taking a, a camera around talking to individuals he, he went to and listened to robert malone i think give a speech at this rally uh, it was very interesting i encourage people to check it out you know luke sort of back doing his original thing he's uh, left the, the the beanie compound and he's he's back on the road but um i figured it's when we might show some clips of it later on but i think we're going to get started with his friday podcast him detailing uh, some of the issues around how this is all pre-planned and the fact that the narrative is starting to crumble and shift and is shifting in a very sort of strange way. And out of nowhere and all of a sudden, why in the middle of winter at the height of cold and flu season is the narrative shifting so aggressively? So without further ado, let's go to Luke Rudowski from We Are Change. This is what we're doing. God will judge you. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Yeah, absolutely insane. That is the brave NYPD that cannot stop robberies and other crimes arresting mainly people of color, including a child, because they tried to visit the American Museum of Natural History and they didn't get government permission and didn't have their medical records in order to do so. That's the world that we're living in right now. But for how long is the question? Welcome back, beautiful and amazing human beings. This is Luke Radowski here of We Are Change the Org, And we're gonna be trying to answer that question here today, especially with the latest numbers coming from the United Kingdom and the United States, where we have two exact opposite approaches right now, as truly what the United Kingdom just did is absolutely groundbreaking and is creating the dam to break, even though there's some absolute sociopaths that are hell-bent on creating as much chaos as they can from this situation that is diminishing right in front of them. We're going to be talking about that, plus a lot more. Lots of crazy Russian news, but before we do, the clip that we played in the beginning of this video is by at L2FTV. Never heard of these guys, but uh, hey, check them out. They, they, they showed us some, some really important videos that the world needs to see, and uh, I definitely do believe Michael Malice's comment here is the spiciest one. With other people commenting that if this was a riot or looting, the NYPD would of course look the other way, just like they have routinely done so. Now, comparatively, the situation in New York City is almost as bad as America's foreign policy, as Joe Biden, the President of the United States, just a few hours ago held a press conference where he virtually invited Russia to invade Ukraine, essentially saying that Russia will be attacking Ukraine, and that if there's a minor incursion, there will be discussion 
question about consequences, propping many people to believe that the United States wants this invasion to happen in order to deflect against the many clear failures of this administration, which Joe Biden has been calling, quote, progress. To the point where even the corporate media, his allies that put him in power, are criticizing him for his clear failures in policy, especially when it comes to the global sickness, which we're going to be talking about in just a little bit. But as some people are calling them mistakes, I think they're deliberate actions that, of course, benefit the special interests that really do call the shots behind the scenes, the suits that are truly in power. They're, of course, they're using Joe Biden essentially as a puppet to push through some of the most unpopular policies that we have ever seen in our current American political system as the ruling establishment is literally going for broke with some of the biggest, most aggressive moves we have seen all done under the disguise of an aging old man who is not there. Now, the Ukrainian situation is an utter disaster, especially for the people of Ukraine, especially with a lot of the people in the international community seeing Afghanistan as a perfect example of American foreign policy. The Biden administration has had to issue another statement after Biden's first statement saying that of course they will protect Ukraine at all costs, that there allegedly would be a swift response. Ukrainian politicians are of course very pissed off on his statements about a minor incursion, which would mean the invasion of their country. And all of this is happening as of course many CIA agents are going into Ukraine along with U.S. Special Operation Forces, and a lot of military hardware, as reported by CBS News, that, quote, the United States is rushing weapons into Ukraine right now. This whole situation will most likely unfold in a limited conflict, a doctrine, of course, proposed originally by individuals like Henry Kissinger that has already seen similar situations currently unfold in Syria, in Yemen, and in other places around the world, where, of course, global powers fight each other through proxies, protecting, of course, against mutual assured destruction, but still feeding the beast of the military-industrial complex as much as they can, as of course everyone still pays the price for this conflict, which is absolutely unnecessary in my opinion. And geopolitically, strategically, I believe the United States is making a grave mistake, especially since a conflict in Ukraine would trigger another one that would most likely happen in, of course, Taiwan, with the Chinese and Russians being brought closer together under the current scope of the foreign policy and geopolitical system that has been deployed on the world stage. I would even go further and to speculate that this deliberate blunder or mismanagement of this entire geopolitical situation might be done deliberately in order to destroy the global influence of the United States, which some would argue already received irreversible damage with the atrocities committed in Afghanistan, where the policy literally built up that country to specifically mine materials for batteries, which China is now coming in, harvesting and using for their, of course, electric car production, which the United States is mandating that they will be a customer of. And the more you start paying attention to American foreign policy, the more you just start shaking your head in absolute ab absurdity of belief with how incredulous it is. I still have a lot more to say about this topic. I'm going to save it for later because we still got a lot of very important information to get into. And of course, I'm going to be doing another video later on to day on the bigger topic of how our young people are absolutely robbed and corrupted in many surprising ways. We're doing a deep dive into the larger social issues that affect us the most later on today on LukeUncensored.com.
today. Now, also on the world stage, there have been two totally different approaches towards this global sickness. And just to quickly use a corporate example of this, you have the Carhartt approach. And then, of course, you have the Starbucks approach that are currently being exemplified and deployed in different countries, depending on which policy they favor. Carhartt, for example, is facing massive blowback and a lot of people in organizations calling for their boycott as the urban hipster and rural workers clothing brand just issued a statement to all of its Michigan-based company employees, 5,500 of them total, to be compliant with Biden's mandates that were recently overthrown by the Supreme Court, mandating them to take a procedure that there's no going back from, that some people don't need, and that clearly don't really have an effect on the global number of cases around the world. So after the Supreme Court just just threw this mandate down, why would you implement your workers to do this or threaten to fire them if they don't? That's a ridiculous policy that absolutely makes no sense at all. And that, of course, is the Carhartt policy compared to, of course, Starbucks policy, which just announced that they're ending any kind of mandate within their business structure, and they're going to be following the Supreme Court's ruling in the United States, and of course, not disrupting or trying to fire their workers for a personal medical decision. And now, 9,000 U.S. coffee shops and close to 200,000 workers won't be extorted or manipulated or discriminated against for their own personal decisions of what they want to do with their bodies. Now, these are two different corporations, two different approaches, which is perfectly represented, in my opinion, with the exact approaches of what the United States is doing compared to, of course, the United Kingdom. In the United States, the Biden administration is still hell-bent on trying to stop this sickness, which, of course, they have done an atrocious job at and have completely failed at doing so to the point where the Biden administration is taking people's tax dollars and buying 400 million plus tests along with 400 million plus masks. And of course, the corporate media is saying that these are going to be free tests and masks. They're not. We're paying for it in one way or another since, of course, the U.S. government is buying it and, of course, will probably do an awfully horrible job in distributing it to the general public, just like they did with the stimulus checks. They couldn't even get that right. But having a mask for one day, getting a test for one day, what is that going to help with our current situation with this variant? That's a question that a lot of people are asking, as, of course, England has just announced that they're dropping virtually all of their lockdowns, restrictions, and mandates, specifically when it comes to this sickness. A major move, an extremely significant domino that has fallen that of course will be impacting other places like the Czech Republic that also just announced that a domestic passport system is absolute nonsense as declared by their political leadership that just ended it even though this policy is being continued in New York City. Also very interestingly in the United Kingdom there's a major medical journal demanding that all data surrounding this procedure that governments have been mandating be made public and released immediately, as of course a lot of people have some very serious questions to what is actually going on here, since of course a lot of the data surrounding this procedure, surrounding the effects of this procedure, surrounding the data of how it was implemented, the studies beforehand, by and large have been hidden from the general public 
Now we have a major medical institution calling for all the raw data to be released. What are we going to find out from that raw data? I don't know, but I bet it's probably going to be surprising. And we're even reaching a point where the World Health Organization is calling for international travel restrictions to be lifted. As of course, many places around the world like South Africa that have dealt with this new variant are what many people say are in the clear and are finished with this nonsense. Also, comparatively, if you look at the numbers in the United Kingdom, they are following the numbers in the United United States just one week behind with the numbers dramatically declining in the United Kingdom and expected to rapidly decline from here. According to a lot of analysts, the, the numbers will continue to drastically go down in the United States, in the United Kingdom, signaling, of course, the end of this nonsense. Are we done? Are we in the clear? Well, no, there's still some bureaucrats that are just hell-bent on fear, destruction, and chaos as Dr. Fauci is warning that this is not going to be over any time soon. The Biden administration is implementing possibly more border restrictions as, of course, Canada is dramatically impacting the global supply chain with, of course, mandates on truckers, which have started a lot of major protests, which you haven't really heard about. And in the United States, just so people don't see how absolutely horrible the situation is now, container ships are told to wait 150 miles offshore in order to, quote, ease air quality issues. Yeah, financially, the situation situation is grim it's not looking good even though we might be over with this global sickness the financial problems are just starting in my opinion and only being exacerbated and made worse by failed policies by the canadian government the u.s government that are looking to extend them which of course will only extend the economic suffering of everyone else 400 million tests and mass what are you doing the numbers are going down this makes no sense at all especially with all the information that we're getting surrounding this new variant and again don't chalk this up to mistakes a lot of this is deliberate a lot of this is meant to so chaos they want order out of chaos and they're going to get it if enough people blindly follow them and allow them to do so that's my always a fantastic uh production by luke radowski i was actually late there trying to get to my video because i was writing down so many notes from it First of all, he mentioned Henry Kissinger. We can actually throw Brzezinski in. And I did a uh, deep dive into Brzezinski last time I hosted by myself. But he mentioned the idea of limited war. And unfortunately, I couldn't run to my, <laughs> my library. My library isn't right behind me like it is in, in Rich's production studio. And by the way, that's only one of Rich's libraries. Rich has like three of them in his house. And they're all voluminous and quite extensive. And maybe someday we'll do a little video tour of all of them. But unfortunately, I live in a small house in the country. My library is my, actually, what should be my second bedroom. I turned into a library, but it is not conducive for my, my setup. Nonetheless, I was researching, you know, I've got some topics here that we can still do a little bit of a deep dive into. What is the concept of a limited war? What does that mean? What was Kissinger talking about? So there's this, interestingly enough, so you have to take it with a grain of salt, but this the comment, commentary magazine. So I'm going to bring this up on screen. So it's sort of a, conservative Jewish opinion magazine. They highlight some of the quotes from Kissinger talking about, and Dulles, by the way, I believe. Uh, I believe so. Uh, talking about what exactly is a limited war. So let's, uh, let's go over some of these quotes, and then I'm going to read um, from his instrumental beliefs of Henry Kissinger. Um, and this comes from, it's a journal. I forget what journal, instrumental beliefs of Henry Kissinger, Kissinger and Brzezinski. I'll have to find who actually did this brief anyways 
let's uh, look into this. So this is in the context of the problem. So Kissinger saw it for somebody who went by self back on screen. Kissinger saw the problem as being an issue of now possessing transcendent weapons of war, weapons that could not only wipe out the human species, obviously the atomic bomb, but also the issue of preventing warfare. What would that mean for the human species? And he sort of introduced this idea of like, well, we still need limited war. Why? Well, you know, when you're profiting off war, there might be more of a reason. So well, it's not just profiting, by the way, it's also securing natural resources and human capital. So they can't, of course, stop war. They can't have situations whereby which we enter a post-war period where the technologies are so, so vast and so powerful that they could actually end the human species and that could stop war altogether. We need to come up with a whole new concept around the idea of how we conduct warfare. So let's look into this a little bit. So let's see here. Where do I want to start? Uh, let's start here. How do we come to... How do we come to the sorry pass? Both Henry Kissinger and Robert Osgood have concerned themselves with this problem. They seem in general to agree that our initial mistake was to overestimate the political advantage of possessing the atomic bomb, and that from this initial error, we gradually drifted into a dangerously exclusive dependence on nuclear weapons. We added that the atomic bomb to our arsenal, Kissinger wrote, writes, without integrating its implications into our thinking. We assumed that the possession of this terrible weapon would enable us to win any war that broke out, and we assumed further that general awareness of this would prevent any war from breaking out. Believing this, it was easy for us to persuade ourselves that there was no pressing need for conventional forces. National security would be protected by seeing to it that we got the biggest bang for every buck expended. And this meant spending our dollars in the atomic stockpile and on long-range aircraft, rather than on foot soldiers, a commodity in which we kept repeating we cannot hope to match the Soviet bloc anyways. This is obviously in the context of the Cold War. Even in the days when we possessed the monopoly of atomic weapons, this was a dangerous kind of thinking, for we never succeeded in fitting the bomb into our declared policy repelling communist aggression. That's not necessarily true, uh, especially with uh, what happened with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Our possession of the bomb was certainly not successful in preventing the expansion of Soviet power and in Central Europe, that's true, but we also perpetuated it. As Kissinger points out, Soviet propaganda alternatively denied the effectiveness of atomic weapons and emphasized the moral iniquity of possessing, let alone using them. And while these tactics confused public opinion in the non-Soviet world, and in some cases caused our friends to view us with fear and suspicion, the Soviets calmly went about increasing and solidify the European empire without effective interference by the U.S., this should have cast some doubt upon the deterrent ability of nuclear bombs, but it did not. Even after the first Russian atomic explosions marked the beginning of the Soviet Union's rapid progress towards parity with us, we went on talking as if our atomic might would solve all power problems. Even after the Korean War had demonstrated how little truth there was in this, the habit persisted. Mr. Dulles's speech about his massive retaliation was not, for instance, made until January 1954. And even after the fall of the Indochina, excuse me, even after the fall of Indochina, had shown that no one in the Soviet bloc was paying much attention to Mr. Dulles anymore. Administration spokesmen clung to their faith in nuclear threats. At the Communist Leadership Secretary Quarles said in June 1956, we're faced with the plain fact that the United States stood ready to use its best weapons to defend its vital interests. They would have to conclude that either limited or total aggression would be unprofitable. So that's the idea here. That limited, how can we make limited aggression profitable. That was what Kissinger really set out to do. So let's see how he, he, he thought this. Let's see how he, he extrapolated this problem into a new workable theory.
In view of the historical record since 1945, these were hollow words. The crucial problem of strategy, as Kissinger has written, is the relationship between power and the willingness to use it between the physical and psychological components of national policy. Faced with the knowledge of the consequences of a thermonuclear war, policymakers would be reluctant to engage in a strategy, the penalty for which may well be social disintegration. If it was true, as Osgood writes, that it was hard to avoid the conclusion in the fall of 1956, the United States was progressively losing its capacity to fight anything but the smallest police action of the largest nuclear conflict. It was also true, and still is, that the possibility of our choosing the latter course was and is remote, except in the case of a direct attack upon our own territory or that of our closest allies, forced in the case of other kinds of aggression to choose between acquiescence and a result we do not like or acceptance of the responsibility for unleashing through thermonuclear destruction, we will almost certainly acquiesce, although we may try, as we have tried before, to hide the true nature of our defeat behind a smokescreen of elaborate explanations, something like what happened in Korea, something like what happened in Vietnam, for instance. That's me speaking, of course. If we are to escape from this embarrassing and date now, this, he goes on to how do we escape from this problem? So he sets up this Hegelian dialectic, right? He sets up what we actually call this the fallacy of the false dichotomy. We either have to acquiesce or we have to be responsible for thermonuclear war. What's the solution to this, Mr. Kissinger? Well, here we go. If we are to escape from this embarrassing and dangerous position, we must, while maintaining atomic parity with the Russians, regain the capacity and the will to fight the kind of war we fought in Korea although without the ambiguities that characterize that conflict. But, excuse me, both Osgood and Kissinger agree that we are going to have to be able and willing to fight limited wars. That is, wars which are fought for concrete, well-defined objectives, which we do not involve, which, excuse me, which do not involve the employment of what Secretary Quarles calls our best weapons and which are not intended to lead to the unconditional surrender of our opponent. The last point is very important for, as Kissinger writes, quote, Limited war is not a cheaper substitute for massive retaliation. Dun, dun, dun. An attempt to reduce the enemy to impotence or remove the psychological balance, which makes it profitable for both sides to keep the war limited. The ability to fight limited wars, in short, is not desirable as a, mean, as a means of satisfying an American craving for victory over communism. It is meant rather to serve as another deterrent to Soviet aggression. Of course, that's how this article spins it. It's really about profit motives. It's also about securing precious resources. Now, let's talk about some of his instrumental beliefs here. Uh, instrumental beliefs of Henry Kissinger. This is from, uh, unfortunately, I can't, I'm not buying the whole thing for $200. It's a book here. Um, I want to find who the, uh, who the author is. Jerry Argus, Andrianopoulos, something like that. Authors at Jerry Andrianopoulos. So this is a reflection on the instrumental beliefs of Henry Kissinger. Interesting, $200. Wow, Jesus. Interesting uh, how these, how these uh, sources are behind such intense paywalls, right? When it comes to uh, these knowledge filtration devices, such as Springerlink or Elsevier or you know all these other journals and whatnot. Anyways, let's talk about the abstract and get into some of the main, the, some of the main pieces here. And I think it'll elaborate a little bit more on Kissinger's thinking. It also gets a little bit into Brzezinski. In the spring of 1974, in The Deceptive Structure of Peace, Brzezinski succinctly outlined what he believed to be matters for which our foreign policy principles, Nixon and Kissinger, can be justifiably seen as accountable. He grouped these under three categories, the predilection for the personal over the politic, the predilection for the covert over the conceptual, the predilection for the acrobatic over the architectural. 
These matters, he argued, contributed to the administration's failure to fashion a foreign policy that will shape the future. The matters discussed by Brzezinski, and got to remember he was instrumental in shaping the Middle East narrative that would come in decades later. So Brzezinski has a little bit more of a, forward, a forward-looking, foreshadowing, future model-specific approach, where he's thinking like we're going to longer term. He's thinking a little bit more longer term. Not that Kissinger didn't think that way. But he, he wanted to use these proxy wars to sort of set up certain groups to be fall guys way later on when, you know, certain events like 9-11 happened, for example. The matters discussed by Brzezinski focused primarily on Kissinger's instrumental beliefs, that is, beliefs regarding the different approaches to calculating political strategy and tactics. So I'm just going to get into only one more section here, and then we're going to cover the rest. Uh, we're going to move forward in the show card and cover the rest of the material we have to get to tonight. In spring of 74, in the deceptive structure piece, Brzezinski succinctly outlined what he believed the matters for which our foreign policy principles can be justifiably seen as accountable. He grouped these under the three considerations. Kissinger's notions of correct strategy and tactics in the context of political action were evident in his analysis of the 19th century European diplomacy, and particularly his critiques of U.S. national foreign or security policy. An understanding of Kissinger's instrumental beliefs is essential in explaining his design of the National Security Council and his view of the role of the National Security Advisor, as well as the impact of the U.S. national security policy. This chapter examines Kissinger's beliefs regarding strategy and tactics for achieving national goals. The content of his beliefs is presented quite frequently in Kissinger's own words. So what is the best approach for selecting goals for political action? And here's so we're just going to go over a couple of these and then we're going to move on. What is the best approach for selecting goals or objectives for political action for Kissinger? Goals or objectives for political action should be selected on the basis of the power realist approach, the strategic long-term approach, and a non-ideological and a non-moralistic approach. Anyone seeing a pattern of pragmatism here? Hmm. And in utilitarianism for that matter, and the conceptual approach. So Kissinger's belief in the power realist approach is evident in all his writings, which focus on power, particularly military power, and its uses for the achievement of national objectives. And that gets into the idea of the limited war. And so without going into greater detail, you can see how being a part of the National Security Council's creation and also the role of the National Security Advisor, how he's sort of laying out this sort of long-term strategic approach to how to use military conflict in order to be more acute and justifiable, arguably, by his standards, uh, and also profitable in his own words. Because, of course, thermonuclear war, although it would create the complete destruction of civilization, if it doesn't fully wipe out civilization, would create the need for the rebuilding of said civilization. Well, no, he's found ways to now change the narrative around profitability. And it's like, no, we can have limited wars, more focused objectives. Of course, we still hide those objectives from the world, because they wouldn't be tenable and it wouldn't stand up to a public of moral scrutiny. But, you know, when it comes to things such as what happened in obviously the Middle East or in South America, especially in the 1950s. And so when we look at that and look at the securing of natural resources, uh, logistics concerns, also uh, profit, the military industrial complex that was uh, cogently warned about by Eisenhower, who himself is a dubious figure, had a psychological warfare in World War II. You see th this pernicious sort of cycle uh, of actors all participating in this dialectic together. Some taking one side, others taking the other, but they're all sort of marching in lockstep to the idea that, no, we always need some type of war. 
let's just define what we mean by that. And Kissinger's plan was this idea of limited war. So I'm glad that, you know, Luke went into, or at least mentioned that concept. And perhaps when Rich gets back or next week, when I have time to get scour my books, we can get into that in more detail because that was something very interesting to point out. Obviously this Ukraine Russian situation, we're going to get into that a bit later. If we have time later tonight, the fact that Luke mentioned that as well, that's a problem. That's a serious problem. Biden reading from a script, of course, is stating that, of course, we're not going to give any sort of military help to the Ukraine. Well, that, of course, incentivizes Putin to put to reinforce his border in preparation to possibly go about uh, invading the Ukraine. Of course, we're now supplying military support to the Ukraine, but we're not supplying troops. We're just supplying arms. The CIA is over there. So, you know, that's they're there not necessarily to help in the war effort. They're there to do deal with in the narratives. And then obviously we talked about military hardware and the idea of limited conflict. There's going to be a limited conflict. There's going to be a bunch of proxy groups and it's going to turn into a big international mess. This is perfect for the neocons, which are now, I call them neoprogs because the neocons were once conservatives or associated with the PNAC and uh, Leo Strauss, the Straussian types. Now they've all of a sudden hide under the smokescreen of the, the progressive movement. So they're now neo-progressives in the whole woke military concept. But either way, they still need to profit from war somehow. They still need to create artificial conflicts all over the place. Now they're just fomenting one. And Eastern Europe, what a surprise. What else is new there? Um, let's see what else he talked about. So that goes, you know, and we'll get into more detail later on about all of that conflict. It's disturbing on many, many levels. And I have some clips to show if we get to later in the night, it could be a late show tonight. Talked about the BMJ, the British, uh, British Medical Journal, talking about the need for raw data. I have been saying this actually for the past couple of weeks, because one of the biggest issues I'm seeing, and this goes back to, I think, what was his name? Norman Fenton. So this was a statistician from the UK that showed how easy it was for the UK statisticians and the NHS to manipulate the data to show that you know it's a pandemic of the unvaccinated or it could be the vaccinated. He was able to take the same data that they made available to the public and create the exact same graphs, both for the vaccinated and unvaccinated, depending on how you control for co-variables or co-factors within the data. In other words, attributes associated with the population sample. And so in other words, it's very easy to manipulate the data. So when you get these large scale studies from like, you know, the Texas Health Administration, for example, showing that like, you know, 20% increase uh, in death and hospitalization of the vax or for unvaccinated juxtaposed to vaccinated. But if you don't get into the details, like, are we controlling for cofactors of like age, uh, morbidity, um, comorbidities, I should say, uh, yeah, you know, immunocompromised situations, uh, whole, uh, obesity, which is a comorbidity. It's a whole a genetic factors. I mean, there's immuno, we talked about immunocompromised. There's a whole host of factors that could greatly change that data or those data that they're presenting. And that's the problem. Like without having the raw data, you know, I say this being someone who teaches the trivium, start with the general grammar, who, what, when, and where, if we get that wrong, no matter how consistent and how valid your logic is, the truth is going to be incorrect because the, the data is incorrect. So you could have perfect, you've perfectly processed that data, but you processed data that was incorrect to begin with, or you didn't have access to. So in other words, you're just creating, it's cir inherently circular and meaningless. And unfortunately, with, we need raw data. Now, unfortunately, I couldn't find the raw data for some of these studies that I wanted to critique, which made me question them even more. And I'm like, hmm, 
I wonder what they're hiding in that regard, or are they just incompetent and didn't release it? We see this all over the place. I'm not surprised. And I'm glad for the BMJ actually calling that out and needing and asking for the raw data, because I bet you under different statistical scrutiny from people who don't have incentives to back up a specific narrative due to uh, financial incentives and other incentives, uh, you might get a bit different opinion. And that idea of scientific incentives might melt away a little bit. Off the, and off, also the fact that the WHO, World Health Organization, is talking about lifting restrictions. They also mentioned the need for children not to be vaccinated. So now there's this contrast between national governments and the World Health Organization. Before they were all acting in lockstep, now many national governments are belligerently forcing the vaccine on children when obviously it's not needed. Um, children are not. You know, Fauci and Walensky came out last week and talked about how children are just not affected as, as seriously by the virus yet they're still promoting the vaccine for it. Of course, there's a reason why, and we, I think we're very aware in this community as to, re, as to why that is. So I'm not going to go into too more detail. There's too much to get into tonight, but I wanted to make sure that we got, um, we covered some of these topics now because we're going to revisit a lot of them later on. And it's important to sort of have these sort of sort of floating in your mind uh, to start out the rest of this podcast. And so when we approach them later on, it's not just completely out of nowhere. Let's go ahead and now move into the Fauci, Wuhan, and SARS-CoV-2. Now, uh, Rich did a lot of good work this week reading through the um, the proposals, the DARPA proposal, the Project Diffuse, and we're going to get into that. And he sent me some uh, screenshots he took of key sections to highlight. Luckily, I actually highlighted many of them myself, and I noticed that he caught a couple I didn't. So it's going to be a perfect uh, juxtaposition between what I was able to find, what he was able to find, and I'm going to go over that. That'll be the main deep dive for this tonight's episode until the intermission, which we'll get into concepts of Dostoevsky and utopia. But until then, let's uh, let's move into the next clip. Let's see. This is Russell Brand. This is sort of I think talking about it's talking about the lab leak. He's talking about the Fauci emails, stuff that we covered last week. So this will be sort of intermission again not intermission, sort of reintroduction, I should say, to a lot of the concepts we presented last week before we get into more of the details of the fallout of the discoveries from those emails and the Project Diffuse and that very strange letter um, that the major in the military sent out about this American-made recombinant virus. But we'll get to that in a little bit. Without further ado, let's go to Russell Brand talking about lab leak uh, revelations. A couple of emails here. COVID definitely come from a lab. Get these emails out of my way. That's not me, of course. That's Fauci. He dismissed emails from prominent scientists who endorsed the lab leak theory. Why? (coughs) Hello there, you 4.7 million wonders. It's a miracle you continue to be you after everything you've been through, after everything we're going through together. Remember to stay awake, stay present, and not to allow yourself to be diminished by the forces of oppression that surround us. Let's have a look at these Fauci emails and the increasing access to evidence that the Wuhan lab leak theory is legit and real. What are the moral, ethical, spiritual, political, economic implications of that reality? Why is that information being controlled and covered up? Why don't governments tell us the truth? Let's have a look. 
Early in the pandemic, multiple scientists urged NIAID director Anthony Fauci and NIH director Francis Collins to seriously consider the theory that COVID escaped from a Chinese laboratory, arguing that the lab leak theory, which Fauci and Collins have downplayed since the pandemic began, was more plausible than the natural origin explanation. As soon as I consider those options, this is what comes to my mind. If it was made in a laboratory, it means that the people, human beings, and also particularly scientists working in a laboratory for particular interests with particular intentions and particular aims are to blame for something that affected the entire planet. If that's true, that's very different from, oh, look, it's nature. I mean, the difference, obviously, between being punched in the face by a person or having a bird drop a rock on your head are pretty sort of obvious, the impact, even though, ow, it hurts anyway. There's a kind of distinction when human error is involved even if it's obviously accidental, it brings to the forefront of your mind all sorts of ethical, moral, and again, financial considerations. What's going on? Mike Farzan, an immunology researcher and the discoverer of the SARS receptor, Bob Gary, a virology expert, and Dr. Andrew Rambau, a British evolutionary biologist, all observed that a particular feature of the virus, the furin cleavage site, grow up, was peculiar and suggested gain-of-function engineering. Their comments were made during a February 2020 conference call of experts, the notes of which were presented to Fauci and Collins and obtained by congressional Republicans. I suppose what I would expect is that if during a conference call, an open discussion around the origins of the pandemic, someone said, do you know what, that particular uh, aspect of the virus, that looks like it might be as a result of gain of function, that you would go, wow, well, when we're reporting to this to the public, in the interest of transparency, we'll say, we don't know where this comes from. It could come from these wet markets, maybe or it could come from bats in some other way. But it's also possible, you know, famously, as John Stewart said, that given that there's a Wuhan lab of virology in Wuhan and they are working on gain of function, that it possibly could have come from there. Now, what reasons are there to repress that? Is it like that people were immediately like, you bloody idiots, you morons, you know, all of us suddenly in Planet of Apes mode, you blew it up, why have you done this? What are you doing? Like the more integrally involved the people that are presenting the solutions to this problem are involved in the origins of this problem, even if it's just as a sort of a genus, the less likely you are to trust them, the more likely you are to question their motivations. One month later, in March 2020, Colin said the lab leak hypothesis was outrageous. Similarly, in May 2020, Fauci told National Geographic that COVID could not have been artificially or deliberately manipulated. Of course, what will happen, I presume, as this plays out, is that, oh, at that time, I was telling the truth as best as I understood it. But the leaks suggest that there's no legitimacy to that because people in positions of authority with deep understanding of the issues at hand were going, do you know what? That looks like it was made in a lab. So it's like, oh no, I just didn't understand that. Could it be possible that there are other reasons that you didn't want the lab leak theory to come to prominence? And it tells us something about you as an individual and about the systems around you if there's an agenda there. In his summary, Farzan stated that SARS-CoV-2 had the marking of laboratory experimentation that resulted in a virus that immediately proved highly infectious to humans. Comparing the probabilities associated with accidental release and natural event respectively, Farzan said that he was 70-30 or 60-40 in favour 
of the former explanation. So he was pretty much drifting in the direction of this has come from a lab. Referring to another scientist, he said, he is bothered by the Furin site and has a hard time explaining that as an event outside the lab, though there are possible ways in nature, but highly unlikely. Just to speculate for a moment that if you're not told the truth about the possibility of it being an accidental lab leak, don't you think it's more natural in my think, well, what if it's a deliberate leak? You know, like you start to then think, what we know for certain is they're not telling us the truth. So now we can speculate. Imagine if you could just assume that people were like, look, we don't know if this came out of a lab. This geezer thinks it's much more likely it came out of a lab. We're obviously a bit scared of telling you that because it makes people culpable and it might affect economic relationships down the line. It might make the pharmaceutical industry culpable, might affect the relationships between China and America, might affect finance in all sorts of ways. But that's not a priority right now. Our priority is your health. So we're going to have to tell you the truth. Please bear with us and be patient. That's not impossible. I just did it, you know, but, but I don't have the same interests as they have. I don't operate within the same systems that they do. So the problems are the systems, the individuals, the challenges, the way that things are set up. You see again and again. That's why this issue is so important. Gary echoed Farzan in his analysis, adding that the virus's chemical makeup would mean that the bat virus would have had to have undergone an extremely intricate alteration, more likely to have been performed in a laboratory setting. He later specified that the furing cleavage site present in the original COVID strain would be unlikely to emerge in nature in a way that made the virus highly transmissible in humans. That's science. That's a scientist doing science, looking at evidence and offering a theory based on their knowledge and their understanding of agreed upon theories. That makes me feel secure just looking at it. Oh, I see, you understand what you're doing. And presumably, hopefully, it's not someone with an agenda that's like, you know, I work for people that pay me a load of money if I come up with stuff like that, or I've got a vested interest in managing this information. There's so much stuff you have to filter out. Who said it? Who'd they work for? What do they want? What channel was it on? What's their political alliances? Man, sometimes I think that we should be more appalled. Like, have we lost our ability to be appalled? Have we been bludgeoned by disgust? to the point where you just sort of sink back into your chair and go, what, they killed the president? What, they're doing that? Yeah, okay, fair enough. <laughs> you're just unable, you're kind of numbed by it, aren't you? Numbed by the kind of revulsion of it all. Otherwise you'd be in a constant spasm of rage. While questions circulated among these researchers, the scientific establishment was eager to quiet their suspicions, branding the lab leak hypothesis as a conspiracy that must be suppressed, the phone conference noted. Reveal. There's been a lot of conversation about censorship online of various experts around the subject of COVID and vaccines, etc. I feel that regardless of the veracity of the individual speculations or theories, censorship in and of itself stokes mistrust. Transparency creates trust. The more you censor, the more you invite speculation. So take the example of the lab leak. If you start censoring that information, no, no, don't talk about the lab leak, don't talk about the lab leak, and then it seems increasingly likely that it was leaked from a lab. Now what you do is you license speculation. You create an environment where you're saying, well, Fauci is saying that, but we don't trust that dude. And increasingly what happens is this division becomes politicized. But truth is way beyond temporary ideas like whether we're a Republican or Democrat. That's some little thing floating around in the dust. We're talking about deep ideas such as truth and reality. Now, it seems to me that they would know that. So they either think that, well, enough people will be duped by the censorship and won't even think about it, or possibly they like an environment of mistrust and tension and accusation and loathing. Some of you now might be just fatigued and exhausted and just say, I don't give a shit no more. I just want to move on and get on with my life. Well, 
The chances of that happening while you are being governed by corrupt institutions are impossible. So you might as well face reality. An unsigned meeting note, which was presumably signed off on by Fauci and Collins reads, I share your view that a swift convening of experts in a confidence-inspiring framework, WHO seems really the only option is needed, or the voices of conspiracy will quickly dominate, doing great potential harm to science and international harmony. Like, you can't do harm to science, actually, if it's in empirically undertaken. What you can do harm to is economic interest and political interest and international harmony. Oh, let's all buy the world of Coca-Cola. What you mean by international harmony is the ability of the powerful to pursue their interests without the, those pesky populations going, hey, did you just give us this fucking virus because of your irresponsible, mercantile, venal, godless pursuits? Yes. Dr. Ron Fuchsia, a Dutch virologist, remarked during the conference that further discussion about such accusations would unnecessarily distract top researchers from their active duties and do unnecessary harm to science in general. Oh, science. Oh, poor old science. How can science hurt science? Like, oh no, this bit of science, the truth, is going to hurt that bit of science. Stuff we've made up. Do some bloody science, then tell us what happened. Don't worry about science as if it's like a little old lady. Do unnecessary harm to science in general and science in China. Science in China, not some hobbling little orphan child. Hello, it's me, science in China. Are you okay, science in China? Oh God, let's get a cup of tea with sugar in it down your neck, you poor sod. This massive, powerful force. Collins wrote in an April 2020 email to Fauci and other officials, Wondering if there is something NIH can do to help put down this very constructive conspiracy with what seems to be growing momentum. And he then embeds a hyperlink to an article about Fox News anchors supporting the lab leak theory. The next day, Fauci responds to Collins saying, I would not do anything about this right now. It is a shiny object that will go away in time. Oh, man. The idea of censorship, the only legitimate uh, argument, I guess, for it is like, oh no, this information that's untrue is so bad, we better censor it, otherwise everyone's going to get all befuddled and confused and outraged. Well, who do you think has the authority to make that decision? And do you think that the people now that are deciding what's getting censored are acting legitimately? Or do you think that their own biases and prejudices are very much at the forefront of their intentions? While Fauci and Collins insisted otherwise, the debate surrounding COVID's origin remains unsettled. The natural origin theory was widely accepted by the mainstream media. Hello, guys. And enforced by social media censors. It was enforced. You were not allowed to talk about it. I mean, what does that imply? What does that suggest? What does that tell you? Until a number of thorough articles in major magazines granted credence to the mounting, countervailing evidence, at which point public health authorities, reporters and pundits began to admit their ignorance. As of December 2021, the majority of Americans believe the virus leaked from a lab. If you don't want conspiracy, if you don't want conjecture, then the solution the remedy, the inoculation, you might say the vaccine, is transparency. That's the only answer. Because otherwise, this is how my mind goes, accidentally, or is it deliberate? I know that, why, why shouldn't I? Why wouldn't I, when one thing I know for certain is that the people that were charged with controlling this, telling the truth, were like, whoa, don't tell them that. End censorship, support free speech. If you don't support those ideas, then what you're arguing for is just, I want my ideas imposed on other people. So as an individual, what can you do? <sighs> Take a deep breath and have loving conversations with people you disagree with. And I know how hard that is because that's life. That's marriage. That's family. 
family, that's community, that's society, that's who we are, that's what we have to get good at. Thank God there's something we can do individually, because let me tell you, the people in power are not going to do it for you. But that's just what I think. Let me know what you think in the comments below. How does this make you feel? What does it bring up in you? What do you think the solutions are? We learn so much from you and your insights. Give us a thumbs up. Share this around. If you enjoyed this video, tell your friends. Tell them. Tell people you disagree with. Have a look at this little video. Have a look at this, the Spiritual Awakening side channel, so you can get yourself ready to handle this kind of stuff. Sign up to my mailing list where I'll tell you exactly what I'm up to. For example, between January and May, God willing, I'm touring all around the UK. We can get together, we can see each other. I believe if regulations and legislations allow it, and so far they do. Stay free. Stay free indeed. You know, he always was on the strangest clothes. Just had to point that out. I mean, what, what is he wearing there? I don't know. It's a strange like V-neck sweater, psychedelic thing i don't you know god bless him he's an interesting fellow nonetheless uh you know it made me think of this sort of four-term analogy of course in my logical mind transparency is the trust as censorship is the mistrust so i thought you know you said that earlier on like well you know if we're if there's more transparency there'd be more trust well that begs the question why isn't there more transparency is there a possibility they actually have something to hide here uh, just speculating a little bit, I wonder why it's been so difficult for Francis Collins, the former director of the NIH, and for Anthony Fauci, the current director and has been for many, many decades of the NIAID, which is underneath the NIH. In other words, Collins was Fauci's boss, them to not be so open to the idea or allowing for competing hypotheses to emerge and theories to uh, be extrapolated based on the evidence as to what where this all came from because maybe they have a little bit of an issue of being involved in the whole thing in the first place. just want to get this on the record before we move on to the next, uh, move on to the next clip. We're going to play one more clip, but then I'm going to get into the, some of the deep dive into the articles that Rich sent me this week uh, into the uh, diffuse proposal and also into the email that was sent by that major in the army talking about the fact that it was a American-made recombinant virus. And we're talking about a little bit more of the Farron Cleavage site and all that good stuff. But for now, let me just get this on the record. I wonder if they have an issue here with maybe being involved in some capacity. Why would they want to send $50 million? Now, this is under Fauci's order. Scientists who were instrumental to COVID-19, quote, natural origins narrative received over $50 million in NIAID funding in 2020 and 2021, which means our taxpayer funding to go about creating a narrative that quickly debunks it in the first place. Yeah. Talk about transparency. Yeah. Four prominent scientists who played key roles in shaping the public narrative. Let me make this big for everyone. Okay. Around the origin of COVID-19, received substantial increases in grant money from the NIAID, headed by Dr. Anthony Fauci. The subsequent two years, a review funding data by the Epoch Times has found three of these scientists, Kristen Anderson, Robert Gary, and Michael Farzan, were advisors to the teleconference. These are the ones that they were, uh, uh, Russell was just mentioning. Uh, especially Michael Farzan, the one that was like 70, 30, 60, 40, that it was probably from a lab because the Farron Cleavage site, although yes, there are some examples of it existing in nature, I think there is a bat population in like Southern Texas that has this site. It doesn't all have the unique inserts specific to the site that would make it transmissible to humans the way SARS-CoV-2 is. 
All of those inserts are similar to the GP120 HIV protein, spike protein, not, not spike protein, but protein, has four amino acid sequences that are very similar. That, of course, that redacted paper early on, it's redacted now, but that paper very early on, I wonder if I have that up somewhere, that Rich has brought it uh, from a team in India, noted that, hey, these four amino acids are very similar to the glycoprotein 120 from HIV. should look at this because this is very strange to have this occurring in a bat coronavirus. Of course, that got poo-pooed pretty quickly. I wonder if this money had anything to help do with that at all. I don't know. I'm just speculating. There's also you know, so many other uh, issues that we'll get into as far as uh, transmissibility. Uh, you, you have the CGG, CGG insert, and you have... Um, there's also one other main feature besides fear and cleavage that makes it very disconcerting is that it being potentially uh, manipulated in a lab, but I'll get to that later on. Three of these scientists, okay, I mentioned the scientists were also instrumental in the publication of the Proximal Origin, a highly influential paper that promoted natural origins theory for SARS-CoV-2. In other words, specifically Michael Farzan, who they really, who presented the, the main critique to, uh, or the main sort of contrary hypothesis, if you will, to the natural origins one, all of a sudden he's now promoting this publication of Proximal Origin, a highly influential paper that promoted a natural origin theory of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. This goes to what Russell Brand was saying. Like we, It's so difficult because we, we have to remove so many weeds. Like who are these people financially tied to? What's their incentive structures? Who do they work for? You know, What's their history? Blah. There's so many things you have to remove just to like, and all of that doesn't mean that they're lying, but it does mean that they have the potential to assuage the data to make it look like something that they would, to make it look as though it's being objective when in fact there are subtle confirmation biases that maybe they're not even aware of on a certain level because of the fact that they've been in a system for so long that's promoting them and they don't want to upset that order. I mean, there's a lot of different ways we could speculate on this as their, their psychological issue regarding it. But nonetheless, that means they're in some ways potentially influenced and it's very difficult, which is why you need an open scientific debate, which of course they paid $50 million to silence that debate seemingly, or to promote scientists rather that are going to promote the natural origins theory. Emails released under the FOIA requests show that the scientists had told the senior members of Fauci's teleconference they were 60 to 80% sure that COVID-19 had come out of a lab. Now they're saying it's accidental. We get into the documents in a little, in a little bit here. Uh, not so sure it's doc, uh, not so sure it's accidental or as accidental as they claim it to be. What did Peter Daszak say? He said the lab release theory, as Rich likes to say, lab release Nothing about accident there. There's no qualifying uh, sort of accidental property to it at all. That was an adjective there. Notably, despite their private concerns about the origins of the virus, the first draft of Proximal Origin was completed on the same day of the teleconference. <laughs> I mean, give me a break. Are you serious? Anderson and Gary were co-authors of Proximal Origin. Farzan was acknowledged in the Nature version of Proximal Origin for his participatory discussions and the article's creation. He's the, he is the main contrary position. Additionally, Fauci's NIAD provided a subsequent increase in funding to EcoHealth Alliances, or EcoHealth's Peter Daszak, through whom NIAD funded controversial gain-of-function coronavirus research at the WIV in China. Some of these funding amounts have continued through 2021, and on the one of the newest grants will continue through at least 2025. Yep, still going on. A significant portion of funding increase for Daszak, as well as for Anderson and Gary, was provided through NIAID's creation for, of the Centers for Research in Emerging Infectious Diseases. So 
That's interesting. I wonder when that was started. Creation of the Centers for Research in Emerging Infectious Diseases. That's interesting. I've not heard about that acronym before. The program, which was originally referred to as, ah, see, that's what I'm familiar with, the Emerging Infectious Diseases Research Center. Okay. Huh. Dur during the early planning stages in 2019, it was formally announced under a new name. Ah, uh, I see. They changed the name. <laughs> of course. I mean, God, these people are so evil. It's unreal. It's not known why the program was initially delayed or why it was renamed. Of course. Now let's look at some of these uh, grants here. The new initiative described as a global network that involves, quote, multidisciplinary investigations into how and where viruses and other pathogens emerge from wildlife and spillover to cause disease in people, end quote, provided 11 new grants totaling 17 million of new funding in the first year and 82 million in total funding across five years. I mean, that's cr still going on. Anderson and Gary were the co-recipients of a new 8.9 million five-year grant. Yeah. So it's all about making sure they they get their grant money. That's the other thing they, about continuing research. You know, you don't want to upset the you know, the apple cart too much there. Jesus Christ. I mean, this is just insane. Um, let's see if there's anything. Let's finish these last two. We're not last two, but these two paragraphs here, and then we'll move on. Anderson and Gary were the recipients of 8.9 million, uh, made under the CREID initiative that established the West African Research Network for Infectious Diseases. DASAC was the recipient of a new 7.5 million five-year CREID grant that established the Emerging Infectious Diseases Southeast Asia Research Collaboration. The other participants of the NIAID CREID program can be found here. Notably, Although the creation of the CREID -CR was not publicly announced until August 27, 2020, the award notice date for the grants to Anderson and Gary are listed as May 21, 2020, which would have been about the time that they were discounting the potential lab leak narrative. How interesting. The CREID grant to DASAC lists an award notice date of June 17, 2020. The timing of DASAC's grant is particularly noteworthy as it came shortly after President Donald Trump had revoked Dazek's previous grant from Fauci's NIAID in April 2020 due to Dazek's entanglements with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Well, we'll stop one and start another. And so it shows you who's really in power in regards to what's going on in the hallowed halls of the White House and God knows where else. So before we get into the deep dive into those documents, let's go ahead and go to the Ryan Grimm here. Project Veritas DARPA report adds to growing evidence of lab leak origin. Uh, this is sort of like a continuation of what he presented last week with the Fauci email. So this is him getting into sort of the DARPA evidence that then we're going to do a deep dive into afterwards. What's on your radar, Ryan? Well, there have been a lot of questions raised the last few days about the latest Project Veritas documents. And I've gotten a bunch of messages from some of the viewers of this show saying that because I'm a liberal, which I'm not, but that's beside the point, we'll get to that later, but because I'm a liberal, I just don't want to believe what Project Veritas has exposed. So now let me first say this about Project Veritas. It should be clear that I disagree with their politics on pretty much every level. And I think they've been guilty at times of going way over the line. Some of their stuff, like their famous acorn sting, relied on taking advantage of low-level workers just trying to help people out who were in need. But all that being said, I always take a look at what they produce and judge it based on its relevance to the public and whether it's substantiated. So let's take a look at this one and see if it holds up. So the first document they have is a letter from Marine Corps Major Joseph Murphy, who served as a fellow at DARPA, which is the military's research center. The other major documents are related to a grant proposal by EcoHealth 
Alliance for Research it hoped to do on bat coronaviruses in its labs in North Carolina and Wuhan. So first, the letter from Murthy. He writes, you probably saw earlier this week that more official documents linking NIH and EcoHealth Alliance to the Wuhan Institute of Virology were published by The Intercept. I came across additional incriminating documents and produced an analysis shortly after leaving DARPA last month. This report was routed to the DOD IG office, unquote. So first of all, the idea that I'm involved in some kind of cover-up is difficult to square with the fact that Major Murphy here is citing the reporting of The Intercept, where I'm the DC bureau chief. Many of the documents that have, been ex that have exposed the NIH and EcoHealth Alliance's role in gain-of-function research in Wuhan were only made public because The Intercept sued the NIH to get them. So if you believed the opposite, that we're actually trying to cover up a lab leak hypothesis, you might want to question the quality of your detective work. If you can't get basic things like this right, what are the chances you're going to independently work your way to the right conclusion on something much more complicated than that? Now, for people who are genuinely curious and not just looking to confirm their partisan priors, let's keep going. So much of the rest of the letter includes what Murphy himself acknowledges is his own conjecture based on the other documents he reviewed. And it's not necessary to go over all of it because we can review the documents themselves. The conjecture includes Murphy's assessment of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, he believes they're curative, and his take on the vaccine, which he's not a fan of. In a previous segment on these documents, I was highly critical of some of his conjectures, and I stand by that criticism. But even if you think that Murphy himself is a crank, and even if you hate Project Veritas, that doesn't mean that the document Murphy leaked isn't authentic or important. Again, his take here on things like the vaccine is roughly as important as yours or mine. But he does say something interesting at the end. He writes, I presumed that unclassified files would be concealed on a higher network and found them where I expected them to be. I understood what they were and their content, pushed the files off site, and compiled this report, unquote. So the documents in question were first published by the research group Drastic and also reported on by The Intercept. Murphy's document includes an undated cover letter and also his letter to the Inspector General, which is dated August 13th. Now, the Intercept story he's referring to, in which we published 900 pages of documents related to the NIH's funding of EcoHealth Alliance, was posted on September 6th. He mentions in his letter that our story was published earlier in the week, so that puts him later into September. On September 23rd, we reported on the contents of those documents. The Telegraph in Britain reported on the documents on September 21st and said that a Trump administration official had confirmed their authenticity. So what Project Veritas has added here is a few things. One, they spoke with Murphy, who confirmed the authenticity of his own letter and of the documents, though that's the first full-on, on-record, named confirmation that the documents are authentic. EcoHealth Alliance had not denied their authenticity in the past, and there wasn't much doubt, but this confirmation should put it fully to rest for the public. Okay, so what do those documents say? Here's from the Intercept report written by Sharon Lerner and Maya Hibbett. A grant proposal written by the US-based nonprofit, the EcoHealth Alliance, and submitted in 2018 to the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, provides evidence that the group was working, or at least planning to work, on several risky areas of research. 
Among the scientific tasks the group described in its proposal, which was rejected by DARPA, was the creation of full-length infectious clones of bat SARS-related coronaviruses and the insertion of a tiny part of the virus known as a, quote, protolytic cleavage site into bat coronaviruses. Of particular interest was a type of cleavage site able to interact with furin, an enzyme expressed in human cells. Now, you can probably imagine why that's so relevant. Even though the research wasn't funded, that doesn't mean some of it wasn't being done anyway, or they didn't get other funding elsewhere. And it's this potential research that led scientists last fall to say publicly that they were starting to come around to the lab leak theory. Here's Richard Ebright, a molecular biologist at Rutgers University. Quote, the relevance of this is that SARS-CoV-2, the pandemic virus, is the only virus in its entire genus of SARS-related coronaviruses that contains a fully functional cleavage site at the S1-S2 junction. And here is a proposal from the beginning of 2018 proposing explicitly to engineer that sequence at that position in chimeric lab-generated coronaviruses. And here's Martin Wachelski a director of the Max Planck Institute of Animal Behavior in Germany, whose work tracking bats and other animals was actually referenced in the grant application without his knowledge. Quote, the information in the proposal certainly changes my thoughts about a possible origin of SARS-CoV-2. In fact, a possible transmission chain is now logically consistent, which it was not before I read the proposal. So these documents are extremely important, and it's important to have on-record confirmation. They're authentic. Now, one criticism I have with the Project Veritas report is that it states as fact that the NIH went on to fund this project. That's not exactly right. The NIH was already funding EcoHealth, and there are still questions left to be answered about what exactly they were doing with that funding. But we do know what they wanted to do, and it was the kind of research that could have led directly to this pandemic. And what I'd say to people on the left is don't discount the importance of this DARPA proposal just because Project Veritas reported on it. Yeah, this is very uh, important stuff, yeah. and it should not be dismissed because of the source. Like you, I've been critical of some of James O'Keefe's um, antics in the past. Um, we've. Uh, 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 in particular, what I don't like that they do is those undercover interviews with uh, people who work at CNN or mm -hmm. a social media company, where they're like at, 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 with, with uh, getting drinks with them or something, and they're trying to goad them into saying something about the bias of the company. But you know what? If you recorded me having drinks with some pals, I bet I would bet I might bad mouth my employers or you or my friends or whatever. Like it's not if it's if it's obtained under uh, false premises, then you can't necessarily rely on what people are saying. I think sometimes the undercover stuff is is great. Like there, like there there is a world in which undercover journalism can expose things that no Positive. other type of reporting can do. He just said something there pissed me off. Um, okay, so Ra Suave, not Rico, Rave, of course. Okay, he, he can't, so yes, it does call into question some of their tactics and some of the strategies they employ. I understand that. But you always, and I think this is where Ryan Grimm is more, that has stated it more correctly, you have to not shoot the messenger, kill the messenger, you have to look at the message. So it seems as though Suave is being conditioned by their antics more than the message. And so it's a little bit tricky. You need to always, in logic, we always say it's bait. 
you, you have to pay attention to the evidence. Everything else, fallacies, misdirect from evidence. That's the main key of fallacies. It's the, the great terminology that misdirects from the evidence at hand. And the problem is a lot of times the evidence is incomplete. We don't have access to raw data, or maybe they got it by underhanding, underhanded means. Certainly some of the strategies and tactics that Project Veritas employs is ethically questionable. And I understand that, but at the same time, you know, I have to sort of contest there and agree with Ryan, contest Robbie and agree with Ryan that no, like you have to listen to what the message is first and foremost. You have to analyze it and you have to remove the fallacies and you have to see if it's logically valid and see if the statements are true and see if there's any truth that you can extricate from what's being presented. And a lot of times it's very difficult because it's oftentimes incomplete. So that leaves us with sort of incomplete theories and different hypotheses that we can test later on. Or if, if we can't test them, then they'll just be general theories and we can debate them endlessly based on the circumstantial evidence that may or may not exist. But um, I think we get the point of that clip. And uh, Ryan Grimm did a good job there of spilling out the sort of issues that first it was the intercept. So let's go to this, this letter from Major Murphy. So let me bring this up here real quick. I have a ton of, oh my God. Yeah, a ton of stuff here. So here's the letter. So for people who aren't familiar with it, it's a lot of issues here. Oh my God, too big. Okay. We'll just read this real quickly. Thanks for responding. I'm reaching. So this is Joseph P. Murphy. So this is DARPA. Um, thank you for responding. I'm reaching out to communicate some information relative to COVID that I don't believe you or your director are aware of. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Um, you probably saw this week documents linking the NIH and Equal Health Alliances. This is probably the documents released by the Intercept. Uh, I believe that was through a, oh, they sued them. They sued the NIH for them. The Wuhan Institute of Virology, uh, published by the Intercept. Yes. Okay. I came across additional incriminating documents and provide analysis shortly after leaving DARPA last month. This report was routed to the DID IG office. I'm unsure whether the significance of what I communicate is understood by those that received the report. Decisions with regards to the vaccines do not appear to be informed by analysis of the documents. The main points being that SARS-CoV-2 matches the SARS vaccine variants the NIH EcoHealth program was making in Wuhan. That the DOD... So here's another issue with... Um, with uh, uh, Ryan... Not Ryan. Yeah, Ryan's take. So he does state that the main points being that SARS-CoV-2 matches the SARS vaccine variants the NIH EcoHealth program was making in Wuhan. Well, okay, so we had the Milken Institute back in 2017 talking about the need to modernize vaccines. We have Trump signing and signing in late 2019, I believe it was either late, sometime in 2019, the Vaccine Modernization Act. We presented both of those evidence or that those evidence uh, before in this show many many weeks ago. So we have this incentive to modernize vaccines. Uh, and there's uh, financial incentives with the NIH having uh, receiving royalties, I think specifically for the Moderna vaccine, uh, which is very interesting. We also have Whitney Webb pointing out that Moderna was already about to uh, be liquidated in some capacity. Um, we can you know, bring up um, unlimited hangouts and check out some of her work, but we already did that as well, showing that they needed, a, according to her, a Hail Mary a Hail Mary. It wasn't just according to her research that she had done stating uh, from market insiders saying that they were pretty much going to go under unless they got a Hail Mary. Well, they sure got their Hail Mary. Uh, and the Hail Mary was in the form of a pandemic, a pandemic that they, it seems eerily strange 
uh, insofar as its origins, insofar as its manipulation, insofar as the grants associated with it, the, the players, the NIH, there's so many interconnected pieces, the NIH actually having um, supposedly even the amino acid sequence going back two decades before. I mean, that's uh, uh, a dubious uh, David Martin perspective in regards to um, patents, which may or may not be true. He himself is a dubious individual, but you know he points that out, and that's something we could look up. Uh, to see if there's any sort of uh, truth to that. He claims early on, it was either 97 or 2003, something like that, that they had already sequenced the amino acid structure. So they had sequenced the nucleotides that would make up the amino acids that are, correspond to the proteins and specific, the spike protein, the S1 and S2 proteins that make it infectious to humans. And the furin cleavage site, furin being the enzyme and sort of the cleavage site being where the inserts were were done in order to make it infectious to humans. One of those inserts being for arginine, which I was saying earlier, is one of the ways in which an amino acid that's being produced makes it makes the cleavage site active. So the S1, if I remember correctly, has to do with the receptor binding domain, is these subunits essentially. And the S2 subunits has to do with uh, how it connects into the cell. And so it does so by this sort of production of arginine, I believe, that sort of helps in the process of the enzyme breaking it down and connecting it into the cell. And so it's these very complex processes that these virologists are looking at and being like, this doesn't occur in nature. Like we can find a ferrin cleavage, like I mentioned, maybe in like, I think it was South Texas, they found it, but they're not, that's not the exact same type of ferrin cleavage. This, that, fer, that ferrin site doesn't, isn't infectious to humans. It's these specific inserts at these sites that make them infectious to humans that don't occur in nature. And I think it was Richard Fleming back in like May, Del Bigtree interviewed him and he went over the spike protein and how it's impossible by random mutation. It would take too many successive generations of random mutation to even get the potential possibility of these types of inserts emerging in the first place. And nature most likely wouldn't select for these sorts of nucleotide sequences to produce these sorts of amino acids because it's the least likely type of amino acid sequence or nucleotide sequence to use or that nature would tend to use. So many problems around it from a virological standpoint, from it just being natural selection. Hence why, you know, putting it down and spending what, $50 million and helping to fund grants for other researchers that were also questioning uh, the natural origins hypothesis. You know, and this is, these are grants that were done from the NIAID. So it's under Fauci's watch between 2020 and 2021, starting as early as May, 2020. And that is what the article just showed back there. I mean, if you just, it's unreal. But anyways, I think the, the main thing about this. So the main points being that the SARS-CoV-2 matched the SARS vaccine variants, the NIH Eco Health program was making in Wuhan, but the DOD rejected the program proposal because vaccines would be ineffective. And because the spike proteins being inserted into the variants were deemed too dangerous. So I don't know if Ryan Grimm is being intentionally deceptive or he's just misread this a little bit. Later on, he does, Murphy does go in to interject his opinion as far as vaccines. But this is actually true. The vaccines they were trying to create as part of the proposal uh, wouldn't have been effective. That's, I mean, that's part of the issue, I think, with them denouncing the, the diffuse proposal in the first place, which we'll get to in a bit here. But the fact that he's talking about specifically that the DOD rejected the program proposal because vaccines would be ineffective is actually one of the points. They didn't have effective therapeutics and the vaccines, at least the technology they want to use, wasn't available and also wasn't shown to be thus, thus far. Um, the preclinical trials done in 2012 with that sort of mRNA technology wouldn't have been effective and could have created something like ADE, uh, antibody-dependent enhancement. So 
And because the spike proteins being inserted into the variants were deemed too dangerous. In other words, they had gained a function associated with them. That the DOD now mandates vaccines that copy the spike protein previously deemed too dangerous. To me and to those informed by my analysis, the situation meets no-go or abort criteria with regards to vaccines until the talk. So this is his, this is his opinion now. The second part of his opinion, the first part actually comes from the diffused documents. So to me, that's stating that he's qualifying an opinion. And to those who informed my analysis, the situation meets no go or board criteria with regards to vaccines until the toxicity of the spike protein can be investigated. And that's a reasonable issue because we have over a million adverse reports now and over 21,000 deaths with another almost 8,000 pending in the VAERS system. That's just VAERS alone. It's not talking about the Pfizer first 90 days, 1,200 deaths and over half the participants of the 40,000 had suffered severe adverse reactions. So that's a reasonable deduction there. There's also information within the documents about the, which drugs effectively treat the program SARS-CoVs. And I've gone, we've gone over ivermectin uh, in total. I think the most important element of this, and let me see if I have it here. I have it on another list here, is something he says at the end. Um, oh no, it's right here. I'm sorry, it's not at the end, it's right in the middle. SARS-CoV-2 is an American-created recombinant bat vaccine or its precursor virus. It was created by an EcoHealth Alliance program at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, as suggested by the reporting surrounded the lab leak hypothesis. The details of this program have been concealed since the pandemic began. These details can be found in the EcoHealth Alliance proposal response to the DARPA preempt program. Preempt is the, uh, the program that's supposed to take viruses from nature and work with them to develop vaccine technologies. And Part of that work is doing gain of function to see how it can be transmissible, how zoonotic transmission can occur, and but they do it in a laboratory setting. DARPA preempt program broad agency announcement uh, dated March 2018 and a document not yet publicly disclosed. So let's get this straight. In March 2018, they're proposing to essentially take back coronaviruses, make them more infectious, and re-release them back into bats. One of the proposed, one of the uh, modalities of that proposal was using aerosols, if I remember correctly, in these bat caves. So like, that's what they literally wanted to do. They stated directly through uh, DARPA's preempt and Project Diffuse specifically, that they want to re they actually want to make these infectious so they can understand and have a therapeutic ready to go. So there's conscious intent right there. The fact that they want to work with these to gain, to find the gain of function to make it more transmissible and then re-release them into the wild to see how they react in bat populations and also gain uh, the ability to create vaccines based off of it. So they wanted to do that. They wanted to release a virus back into the wild. It's just not, you know, with the understanding of how to make it more, I guess, transmissible amongst other bats first. Okay. Potentially. So there's that. And that goes back to March, 2018. Um, I think that highlights the main function we want So this gets into HR 118S17, and this is what this is here. Um, I'm not going to go over all of this, but here's the, here's the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency. Here's the summary sheet. This goes back again, 2018, preventing emerging pathogenic threats, preempt, right? Um, James Gimlet, PM name, EcoHealth Alliance is the proposal. Proposal title, Project Diffuse, Diffusing the Threat of Bat-Borne Coronaviruses. There's the ID number. I reviewed the attached proposal and evaluation reports and find that this proposal is selectable. Hold on here. Are we seeing? Okay. So DARPA, we have two things going on. We have EcoHealth 
the NIH, NIH and really specifically the NIAID wanting to find, wanting to do the zoonotic research. We know there's conflicts of interest, you know, because of what we heard about with the Melkin Institute, finance, uh, Fauci's uh, incentives from major ph pharmaceutical companies, NIH's incentives associated with Moderna patents. And we have the Milken Institute talking about modernizing vaccines. We had the Trump administration approving that modernization in 2019. My God, I mean, how, many much, how much more overlapping evidence do we need? But now we have DARPA looking for proposals for this. So to me, this whole DARPA, this whole project diffuse seems to be a massive red herring. It begs the question, why is the, why is the military and specific DARPA allowing these types of documents to be released? Or why are they sort of acting? They're sort, it seems to me like they're sort of washing their hands clean of all of this. If we remember from what Ben Swan reported on back in like May or June, when he did a deep dive into this, what was it? They, they say it's only three and a half million came from EcoHealth, right? Um, NIAID funded through EcoHealth. But DARPA had over 40 million and similar grant proposals out there that they are looking to spend money on. 40, I think it was 40 million, something like it was an enormous amount of money. So EcoHealth was actually a small portion of that. So DARPA here is searching around for essentially, uh, you know, programs and proposals that would work with gain of function. So it's almost like they released this. It's in other words, EcoHealth is being set up as the fall guy, as well as the NIAID's Anthony Fauci, which certainly deserves it at this point, because he's certainly implicated directly in covering it up. And not only doing this type of research, helping to fund it, being aware that it's going on, but then trying to cover it up. I mean, what's, what's really egregious here is this change of definition, right? Because with the Ferrin Cleavage site, one of the main issues is the fact that they can act like, well, we weren't really doing gain of function because it's a bat recombinant virus. So what they're doing is they're taking humanized mice and the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and they're, inter they're injecting various types of bat coronaviruses and other types of amino acid sequences taken from other viruses or nucleotide sequences that then encode for those amino acids. And they're injecting it into the mice and allowing it through a process of natural selection for the viruses to sort of recombine with one another. And so a lot of times what happens is there isn't a gain of function, there's a loss of function. So they can be like, look, the half the time, 90, 70% of the time, it lost function. We're not doing gain of function. It's, you know, we're just trying to understand you know, the pathways, the different binding, uh, receptor binding does the uh, domains and all these sorts of things, different pathways by which it could be more transmissible to various types of species, including our own. That's a very clever sort of wordplay they're using here. But in fact, the thing is they eventually did find a thing that makes it transmissible and does gain a function and it doesn't seem to occur in nature. So it's just a sleight of hand trick. They're playing with terminology. It's still gain of function research because you're using a recombinant process, which sometimes loses function, doesn't mean you're not doing gain of function research. It just means it took a long time to figure out the, the sort of mediated pathway by which it can be transmissible to human beings. And it required a couple of different inserts, which Ralph Barrick, I think, helped to innovate alongside Xi Sing Li. It was mainly produced by American researchers, first and foremost. And then it was just allowed to, the, the playground for a lot of this, you know, uh, develop emerging technology is China, obviously. So in 2014, we had the moratorium uh, that stops it. We send it over to China. 2017, this, the Bio I think, which the parent company is Sanofi, um, you know, essentially sets up this lab. It's ready to go. And then the moratorium is lifted. We send more funding over there. And at the same time, Valchi's talking about 
this idea that there will be, you know, a pandemic under the Trump administration. And then the Milken Institute in 2017 is talking about modernizing vaccines. And so they had this issue is the fact that they had these patents associated with these vaccines. They needed a problem to emerge. I call this a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, it's just fucking absurd. Um, these people, and, and like, it's also absurd that the DARPA is trying to wash their hands clean of this when in fact, they're also implicated in this too. They're just setting up the eco health rightfully so, because they're implicated as being the only fall guy. Well, DARPA, no, you're, you shouldn't get away with this either. The fact you're looking for proposals like this, this is the reason why I say here, I have reviewed the attached proposal and evaluation reports and find that this proposal is selectable, meaning they're actually, we can select this based on the evaluation criteria included in the BAA. However, I'm not recommending funding at this time based on the rationale provided below. Part of that rationale was the issues do not expel over, the fact that the research might be too risky, all these other things, you know, they just want them to sort of change it up a little bit. Um, and let's just real quickly go over here. That, so funding requested, look at this, they're looking for $14 million. And it ended up not being that much, but that's uh, the initial proposal request for Project Diffuse. This proposal aims to identify and model spillover risk of novel pandemic potential SARS-related coronaviruses in Asia, focusing specifically on known hotspot back caves in China and prior work under USAID, predict, what a joke that is, of the obvious term for the CIA, a team identified high-risk SARS-R uh, coronaviruses in specific caves in Asia. The project has a good running start since the hotspot caves already test positive with high prevalence for several SARS viruses. So the team won't be looking for needles and haystacks, meaning they've already started this process, right? That's what they're saying. Like, we're already very well aware this exists. You know, we're, you know, God knows they might already be doing some research there. The team will build on past surveillance work as well as some, in fact, they have already done work. They're just looking, they're looking to extend that work through DARPA grants. The team will build on past surveillance work as some impressive work in developing geo-based risk maps to zoonotic hotspots based on past spillovers and blah, blah, blah. Two approaches are proposed to preempt zoonotic spillover through reduction of viral shedding in the back caves, innate immune boosting to downregulate bioregulation and target immune boosting via vaccine inoculations using chimeric polyvalent, polyvalent recombinant spike proteins to protect against specific high-risk viruses. Chimeric. It means it's, a, uh, it's made up of many different types of viruses all stitched together like a golem, like Frankenstein, right? Chimera comes from, it's one of the sort of symbols that's used quite often in alchemical symbolism. This idea of few, this, this sort of anthropomorphisms that are oftentimes associated with that type of symbolism. Well, this is now applied to viruses and various types of viruses. And the process, what they used was recombination. It wasn't a CRISPR technology. They infected a bunch of humanized mice with human cell lines in them and then let a bunch of different viruses and nucleotide sequences from other viruses recombine and find pathways for it to become more pathogenic to human beings. And of course, then they had the vaccine ready to go. Yeah, that's if that's not a self-fulfilling prophecy, I don't know what is. There's, there's a bunch more we could get into, um, some more detail, the concept, the impact, the approach, context. I think I hit the main hot spots of it all. It's just... You know, here they're so here the Eco Health Alliance is talking about trying to do this. They want to do this. They're already doing it. Then DARPA is looking for proposals for stuff similar to that, and or consider considering awarding Eco Health Alliance. So there's an actual sort of conscious motivation by Eco Health Alliance 
So like, okay, you're not going to allow us to do this with Project Diffuse. Well, we'll do it anyways, and then we'll ac accidentally release it. But again, it's not. Dasak didn't say accidental. He said lab release. That's all he said. So they did it anyways, in other words. And they got their pandemic and they got their vaccines out. How convenient. How absurdly fucking convenient. Um, let's now go to... Let's go to this America Uncover report and sort of get into... I think this covers all of the details I just highlighted, but sort of gives a condensed fashion to all this. And then we'll get into... Jim Jordan, then we'll move into the next section. So um, let's go ahead with this uh, American Uncover report. Unredacted versions of Dr. Fauci's emails have been released. And what they show about COVID's origins could be explosive. Welcome to America Uncovered. I'm Chris Chappell. Is it just me or has COVID-19 felt like a roller coaster? And we didn't even get a souvenir photo. What's that, Shelley? This episode is already demonetized? I didn't even say anything yet about the mysterious origin of SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus that causes COVID-19. Okay, I see why this is demonetized. Last week, Republican members of the House of Representatives released more details from Dr. Anthony Fauci's infamous emails on COVID's origins. And it was yet another piece of a very complicated puzzle, or the worst game of Clue ever. Either way, it left a lot of people outraged. Except Hillary Clinton, whose excited Republicans are finally focusing on someone else's emails for a change. But before we get into those emails, let's take a look back at how we got here. Remember when everyone thought the coronavirus came from bats? Or possibly pangolins? That was approximately 16 years ago, in February of 2020. It feels like it's been 16 years. Back then, according to the media, the idea that the coronavirus might have come from the Wuhan Institute of Virology was an already debunked conspiracy theory. Conspiracies get debunked so fast these days, they barely even have a chance to bunk. Dr. Fauci repeatedly dismissed the Wuhan lab as the source of the coronavirus. And later on, the Biden administration reportedly shut down the Trump-era project pursuing the Wuhan lab leak theory. That was the story. But then, everything changed. The Wuhan lab leak theory suddenly became credible. So does that mean it was undebunked? Rebunked? I'm going with rebunked. Fauci decided he was not convinced that COVID-19 developed naturally outside the Wuhan lab. Biden set up his own investigation into the virus origin as the lab leak theory became an object of debate rather than ridicule. And the Washington Post quietly modified their headline. If things keep going the way they're going, soon the Post is going to have to change the headline to this. Why was this rebunked? I'll tell you right after the break. Welcome back. So a little over a year after the initial COVID outbreak in Wuhan, China, the narrative among politicians, bureaucrats, and the media regarding the lab leak hypothesis suddenly went from fringe conspiracy theory to credible and worthy of investigation. Kind of like hearing Snuggies are awesome. Seems ridiculous at first, but you can't dispute the facts. What changed to make the lab leak credible? 
Well, one thing that changed was public opinion. In April of 2020, a Pew poll showed that nearly 30% of the American public believed that SARS-CoV-2 originated from a lab in Wuhan, a theory that was almost certainly not true, according to CNN. By December of 2021, the Ronald Reagan Institute's 2021 National Defense Survey showed that more than 70% of Americans believed the lab leak hypothesis. There's only so much time politicians, bureaucrats, and the media can spend telling more than 70% of Americans they're wrong before it starts to backfire. Except when it comes to saying Marvel movies are overrated. Hey, you want to see the same exact superhero origin story for the 27th time? Why does everyone love them? Am I out of touch? No. No, it's the children who are wrong. One reason public opinion changed on the lab leak hypothesis was more information became available. Articles were published, some of them in science journals, others in the news, and Freedom of Information Act requests were made and fulfilled. There were a lot of those, including the one that led to BuzzFeed and the Washington Post getting a hold of Fauci's emails. You may have seen that BuzzFeed article, take this quiz to see which Fauci email you are. In addition to Freedom of Information Act requests, there were also document leaks. The evidence began to pile up in favor of the lab leak hypothesis and began to look like U.S. tax dollars could have paid for research that ultimately led to a worldwide pandemic. Why don't tax dollars ever go towards anything we want, like free Snuggies? We did a whole episode on it for our other channel, China Uncensored, if you want to know more about the evidence for the lab leak hypothesis. Of course, of all the thousands of pages of documents that were dredged up by the FOIA requests, the ones that got the most attention were Dr. Fauci's emails, released last June. And we did an episode on that as well. We've been demonetized a lot. But the big problem with Fauci's emails and many of the other released documents was that they were heavily redacted. It looks like someone emailed the black flag logo. All those redactions left more unanswered questions than anything else, which is why I said in our episode on Fauci's emails that this story wasn't over yet. Oh, how I hate being right all the time. So let's tell the next chapter of this never-ending story, right after the break. Welcome back. Or not, it would seem that YouTube is still part of the fewer than 30% of Americans who believe the virus didn't come from a lab. I bet they also loved those overrated Marvel movies. On January 11th, Republican Congressman James Comer and Jim Jordan wrote a letter to Javier Becerra, the Secretary of Health and Human Services. In that letter, they included copies of previously redacted emails from Fauci, now unredacted. And what they found definitely makes Fauci and others in the National Institute of Health, like former director Francis Collins, look a little sus. Right-leaning media outlets reporting on the unredacted emails claimed that the emails show Fauci at best ignoring prominent scientists saying the virus looks like a lab leak, and at worst, actively covering it up. Meanwhile, prominent left-leaning media outlets reporting on the unredacted emails claimed Nothing. They simply didn't report on it. At all. Believe me, I looked. Couldn't even find a top 10 iconic unredacted Fauci clapbacks list to call on BuzzFeed. The major exception to this was The Intercept. 
But Fauci's unredacted emails contain quite a bombshell. A bombshell with a really long, slow fuse, so stay with me here. Fauci's original emails showed that on February 1st, 2020, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Francis Collins, who was then director of the National Institute of Health, and at least 11 other scientists attended a teleconference together. The conference call is not on record, but on February 2nd, the attendees continued their discussion over email, a discussion where each scientist weighed in on the origin of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Sadly, none of them confirmed my suspicion and said that Zoom was behind it. That's one conspiracy theory that's still pre-bunked. But what several scientists did say was it looked like it could have come from a lab, like Mike Farzan, who discovered the receptor of the original SARS virus in 2005. In his notes on the teleconference, Farzan said he was bothered by the furin site. Farzan was talking about the coronavirus's furin cleavage site. Now, furin cleavage doesn't look like this, but sounds like it should. And that's how you get people interested in virology. The furin cleavage site is actually a place on the coronavirus's spike protein. Basically, it guarantees the virus will be very infectious to humans. Fun fact, this furin cleavage site doesn't exist on any other known bat coronaviruses. Fun fact number two, furin cleavage sites are often inserted into viruses as part of gain of function experiments to make them more infectious to humans. In fact, gain of function experiments with furin cleavage sites has been conducted in the past by the head of coronavirus research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Hmm. So that's why Mike Farzan said he was bothered by the furin site and says he has a hard time explaining how it got there if it wasn't in a lab. I also often wonder if doctors had something to do with adding furin cleavage. So how could the furin cleavage site have gotten there in a lab? Farzan argued that a likely explanation could be something as simple as passage SARS-Live-CoVs in tissue culture on human cell lines for an extended period of time, accidentally creating a virus that would be primed for rapid transmission between humans. You see, so simple. In short, he believed that the best explanation for SARS-CoV-2 was that it was a coronavirus that had been intentionally passed multiple times through human cells in a lab, which would result in a virus that was much more infectious to humans. This technique is called serial passage or repeated passage. I haven't heard of viruses being passed around that often and irresponsibly since college. Andrew Rambout, a evolutionary biologist, also had some issues with the furin cleavage site. He noted that the furin cleavage site has resulted in an extremely fit virus in humans. We can also deduce that it is not optimal for transmission in bat species. Another scientist on the call was microbiologist and virologist Bob Gary. Gary's notes on the teleconference stated, I really can't think of a plausible natural scenario where you get from the bat virus, or one very similar to it, to NCoV. I just can't figure out how this gets accomplished in nature. Yeah, those definitely don't look natural. Hey, considering how often we get demonetized, we need to get the most bang for our buck on graphics. Evolutionary biologist Edward Holmes claimed to be 60-40 in favor of a lab origin. And director of the Wellcome Trust, Jeremy Farah, said he was 50-50.
Days earlier, on January 31st, immunologist and microbiologist Christian Anderson had given his opinion. He was also at the teleconference, and he had written that some of the features of the virus potentially looked engineered, and that he, Edward Holmes, Robert Gary, and Michael Farzan found the genome inconsistent with expectations from evolutionary theory. Virologist Ron Fouché, meanwhile, argued that a non-natural origin of 2019 NCoV is highly unlikely at present. Any conspiracy theory can be approached with factual information. What we have here is innocent enough. A simple debate between experts over the origin of the virus, with several experts expressing doubts that the virus evolved naturally, and one expert expressing doubt that the virus came from a lab. Debates like these are exactly what makes science, well, science. I know, it's disappointing. Science is less Rick and Morty and more 12 angry men. The weird part is what comes next. Dr. Fouché went on to say that further debate about the origins of the virus would unnecessarily distract top researchers from their active duties and do unnecessary harm to science in general and science in China in particular. So debate, discussion, you know, all that academic sciencey stuff would do harm to science. Makes sense. That's like saying slapping a puck with a stick would do harm to hockey. Apparently, Ron Fouché made a forceful case. By the end of the conversation, Dr. Collins, the head of the NIH, said that he was coming around to the view that a natural origin is more likely, particularly due to Ron Fouché's arguments. And he agreed with Fouché about more than just that. Collins wrote that if experts didn't weigh in, the voices of conspiracy will quickly dominate, doing great potential harm to science and international harmony. Harm to science and international harmony? Strange's opinion on the origin of the virus seems more political than scientific. Anyway, there were at least 13 scientists on the call. Eight expressed their views on the origin of the virus. Seven of them at least started out leaning towards a lab origin. Then, three days later on February 4th, four of those scientists co-authored a letter to the editor of Nature Medicine titled The Proximal Origins of SARS-CoV-2. Previously, all four authors had fallen on the side of a lab origin. By the time the final draft of the letter was published in mid-March, the authors argued that our analysis clearly shows that SARS-CoV-2 is not a laboratory construct or a purposefully manipulated virus. And by clearly show, they meant as clear as stained glass covered in yogurt. Greek churches are weird, man. This letter was widely used to debunk the lab leak hypothesis. Yet four out of the five authors had previously said in their emails they thought a lab origin was likely. What happened in between their email comments on February 2nd and the final publication of that letter on March 16th? Of course, people can change their mind. But if you suddenly saw a commercial that said four out of five dentists suddenly no longer recommend sugarless gum, you're going to have some questions. One thing that happened is that the authors of Proximal Origin sent the first draft to Dr. Fauci and Dr. Collins for review. And the feedback they got seems to suggest that something else happened somewhere in there, something we didn't see. Dr. Fauci responded to the draft letter with a sort of scientific WTF. He wrote, 
question mark, question mark, serial passage in ACE2 transgenic mice. It's hard to know exactly what that means, but it seems to be a reaction of disbelief that the paper includes any mention of lab manipulation, even just serial passage. Later, Dr. Collins responded that the paper was arguing against engineering, but repeated passage is still an option. It's hard to tell. Is that a comment or a criticism? Kind of like when your mom says you would have done well in law school. Whatever it was, it became apparent much later that Dr. Collins wanted more than he got out of the proximal origin letter. And what he wanted was for the lab leak hypothesis to be put to bed. The debunk bed. On April 16th, Collins wrote, wondering if there is something NIH can do to help put down this very destructive conspiracy with what seems to be growing momentum. I hoped the Nature Medicine article on the genomic sequence of SARS-CoV-2 would settle this, but possibly didn't get much visibility. Anything more we can do? So Collins is saying the proximal origin letter didn't work, so what else can they do? He cited this article as proof of the growing momentum of the conspiracy. Fauci responded with, I would not do anything about this right now. It is a shiny object that will go away in time. But the next day, Fauci cited the proximal origin letter as evidence against the lab leak hypothesis while speaking at the White House. You know the letter that he and Collins reviewed and possibly edited? It now looks like Fauci and Collins were influencing the debate over COVID's origin from the very beginning. Not only is this bad because they were in positions of power to stifle scientific debate, it's also bad because if this was a lab leak, Fauci and Collins could be directly implicated in funding the kind of risky research that led to it. Clearly, there are still missing pieces to the puzzle. Even now, the story isn't over. It really is a never-ending story. And what we have took a lot of work to get. House Republicans had to invoke an obscure law called the seven-member rule to gain access to the redacted Fauci emails. And even then, they were only allowed to see them in person with their own eyes. No phones, no cameras, no copies. They had to transcribe the emails by hand. Hopefully the Republicans have good handwriting. Typical reasons for redactions, such as taking out identifying information, don't seem to apply to the emails the congressman saw. So what is the justification for the redactions? And the stonewalling? And the restricted viewing? What more is there still to learn? Where will this roller coaster lead us next? Given how the ride has been so far, this is our face when they eventually take the souvenir photo. So what do you think about these new emails? Let us know in the comments. And since this episode is about the origins of the novel coronavirus, it's very likely that we will be demonetized, which happens often. So please go to our Patreon page, contribute a dollar or more per episode to help us continue to cover controversial topics in a nonpartisan way. Once again, I'm Chris Chappell. Thanks for watching America Uncovered. Good report by American Uncovered. You know, one of the things he points out at the end of that is the issue of the redactions. Why need to redact it? Oftentimes redactions are done usually because of ongoing investigations is one of the reasons oftentimes. There's a whole code, by the way, 
associated with redactions. They usually apply while oftentimes, like I said, ongoing investigations, military sensitivity, it's a whole host of, you know, reasons they can come up with and that it applies to the, the redacted codes that are associated with those redactions. But nonetheless, like I, you know, going back, it would be interesting to look at the codes associated with those, if there are any, in fact, or if they just redacted it and then just never allowed anyone to see it except for those members of Congress. And then they had to evoke the seven members rule or whatever it was. Just it, the whole thing is just very absurd on so many levels. It, it clearly points to the fact that they are conscious of this. They wanted to stifle the debate and they wanted to make sure this didn't get out. Um, There's conscious intent to make sure this didn't get out. That is not it's circumstantial still to the fact like the smoking gun evidence would be the fear and cleavage site for an enzyme and the, 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 S, the spike one and spike two, the subunits I talked about before uh, that make it infectious to humans and this unique inserts uh, that for amino acid sequence taken from the GP120 HIV virus, you have the CGG, CGG insert, those nucleotide sequences that can code for arginine you know, all these weird insights around this, uh, this furin cleavage site, that this doesn't make any sense. So the fact that they're aware of this and don't want to have open debate or, you know, stimulate that in the public, uh, is, is very damning to say the least, because it at least shows that they have some sort of conscious intent behind trying to, uh, cover this up and, you know, which then portends their being knowing that they are in fact implicated and could be possibly indicted on charges, um, if this, you know, was a more objective sort of, uh, situation, uh, in regards to Congress and trying to find the origins of what has happened. But I doubt at this point, we'll ever really know, um, the smoking gun, as I mentioned, has to do with these nucleotide sequences and this fur and cleavage site, but the Chinese have by now had to have covered everything up. It's been two years. And um, all we have left is a, a plethora of very strong, but still yet only circumstantial evidence that would work in a civil case. But in a criminal case, the only strong evidence we'd have as far as a smoking gun, again, would be that fair and cleavage site, um, which makes this all very difficult. And then we'd have all the circumstantial evidence to show potential cover-ups, stifling of the debate, all these other issues surrounding it. The fact that they're trying to change the definition of gain of function that Fauci you know, did with uh, 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 Rand Paul. I mean, it just gets very messy and murky. And then you have the issues of DARPA and the Project Diffuse, which shows intention to take back coronaviruses and make them more, more pathogenic. You know, the fact that there was serial passage, that's the aspect of recombination I mentioned earlier. Through serial passage, these viruses and all these extra inserts recombine in a chimeric process to, to essentially become infectious to humans or infectious to other animals. That's what we call gain of function. Um, it's, it's one big absolute shit show and one big mess. And at this point, it's unlikely to know if we'll ever find out for sure exactly how this all went down, but we have a large incriminating trail of evidence thus far that points to uh, conscious intent behind, uh, the perpetuation, the progenitor and perpetuation of this pandemic with the ability to profit off the one and only therapeutic that they have prescriptively are now mandating across the world uh, in contrast to the number of other potential therapeutics that certainly could have been used, would have been much safer and arguably even more effective depending on the person, um, especially if used early, but we're not allowed to mention those, of course. Anyways, I think uh, we've gotten enough out of that section for now. 
And let me see if there's anything worthwhile to cover anymore here. Jim Jordan's questioning. Let's let's real quick. Let's play this three minute clip from Jim Jordan claims Dr. Fauci is covering up, and then we'll we'll go on to the next section after that. I just want to see. I haven't seen this and see if it's worthwhile in any way. Uh, two years ago this month, Dr. Fauci has put on notice that the virus most likely came from a lab that was doing gain-of-function research. He gets a letter uh, on January 31st, 10.32 p.m., 2020. He gets an email, excuse me, from Dr. Christian Anderson that says, the virus looks engineered, virus not consistent with evolutionary theory. Dr. Fauci goes into complete overdrive to cover this information up and not present it to the American people. He organizes a conference call the next day with Fauci, Collins, and 11 virologists from around the world on that call. Mr. Gary, Dr. Gary on that call says this, I don't know how this happens in nature, but it would be easy to do in a lab. Four days later, those people who express those sentiments start to change their position. They write a piece in Nature Medicine magazine on February 16th. It first gets published online. That piece is then cited on February 9th, 2020, in the now famous letter in The Lancet that becomes the gospel that this thing, according to Fauci and this group, didn't come from a lab. All that happens in 20 days. So they go from this thing looks engineered This thing is not consistent with evolutionary theory. This thing could not have happened in nature. This thing would be easy to do in a lab to completely changing their position. And here's the kicker. The two guys who said those things, Dr. Anderson and Dr. Gary, three months later get rewarded with an $8.9 million grant from Dr. Fauci to continue to do research on coronavirus. I mean, I I, I think there's a couple obvious questions that should have been, that, 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 that should have happened Two years ago this month, why didn't Dr. Fauci, when he first got put on notice that this was happening after that uh, conference call on February 1st, why didn't he notify the commander in chief? We have no evidence that he talked to the president of the United States. We have no evidence that he talked to any of his bosses. He spent the time trying to change the narrative. Dr. Fauci got a chance to edit the very article that became the basis for the letter in The Lancet, which, as again, we all know, became the gospel that this couldn't have come from a lab, according to these these experts. So I think those are important questions. If, in fact, the American people put us back in charge, uh, this would be something that we will spend a great deal of time getting to the bottom of. I want to thank my colleague, Ranking Member Comer, uh, for the letter that um, we put out last week that begins to highlight this and uncovered the redacted emails where we now know what Dr. Gary said when he said this thing had to have come from nature. So I think this is important. We will continue to work on this if uh, this year as much as we can. But again, the obvious question, I'll leave you with this. The obvious question is, why don't Democrats want to know this? Why don't they want to know how the virus started that has disrupted our lives for now almost a full two years? Why don't they want to know? Why don't they want to do the investigation? Why won't they call in these virologists, Dr. Gary, Dr. Anderson, who initially said this thing came from a lab? They won't do it. That's a question that needs to be answered. This status becomes so political. And this had been, uh, this should be a partisan review, you would think, wanting to know where this came from. But they have taken. You got to remember, Fauci is essentially a saintly figure, uh, almost a godly figure at this point to the left. Uh, I just think of like Whitmer, you know, the governor of Michigan, having the Fauci throw pillow and bobble doll, bobblehead doll in the background. Also, Del Bigtree pointed this out last week when they showed a. Uh, 
a video of Fauci on one of the news segments he was talking about. He's a bunch of pictures of himself in the background. Dude seems to be very sort of narcissistic, maybe megalomaniacal at this point, like a psychic, a psychological uh, pathology that sort of emerged with him of extreme egoism that he might even not even be aware of because he's just so self-obsessed. You know, here's that famous, you know, nature medicine, you have the Lancet as well. Proximal origins. This is the day after he talks about this. It's just a shiny object, nothing to see here. It'll go away. You know, then all of a sudden you have the proximal origins come out. And again, you have those issues of the redactions. We also, you know, I, we talked, uh, it's wrong. Where did I have it here? Uh, this one. Yeah. Anderson and Gary. So let's go, if we go back to the proximal, let's put this over here. Proximal Anderson, Gary. And then if we go here, Anderson and Gary were the recipients of 8.9 million, just as Jim Jordan said, their five-year grant under the CREID initiative that was established West. So in other words, it was to fund grant research for continual development of uh, or understanding of um, viruses. Um, DASDAC also got seven and a half million. So you can see this incredible conflict of interest. The fact it seems like they're buying these individuals off so they don't perpetuate uh, a narrative that they find to be sort of unpopular amongst their ranks. It could cause some sort of political harm to them potentially. Um, in regards to all of this. So I think we've beaten this horse to death enough as the old cliche goes. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what emerges, especially if the Republicans win back the House and Senate in the midterms, if they will actually bring charges, if they will indict Fauci and or Collins alongside them and maybe get some of these um, virologists to take the stand and actually talk about some of these conflicts of interest, uh, these sort of wayward incentive structures that were set up. And all of a sudden, the fact that they changed their tune pretty much in line with once they with receiving these new uh, grant funds uh, that was shelled, what was basically shelled out by Anthony Fauci from the NIAID. We're talking about over $50 million. Um, it's just absurd. Anderson and Gary, again, 8.9 million and Dajak getting another seven and a half. Yeah, there's nothing to see there. And I'm not sure, but somewhere in here, you might sign Farzan as well. Let me see if I can find and see how much money he got. Uh, doesn't sit. Now he doesn't look like he got anything. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Oh, no, he did. Ha. He got 9.9 million in 2020. Now, the scientist who advised this is the one that talked about the Fahrenheit as well as Gary, but Farzan wasn't one. I think he was Farzan's the one that said 70, 30, 60, 40, that it most likely came from a lab and not from nature. Another scientist who advised the February 1st, 2020 teleconference, Michael Farzan, received $9.9 million in grants from Fauci's NIAID in 2020, followed by another $7.9 million in 2021, and an additional $919,000, or approximately another million at the start of 2022. By comparison, Farzan had received $3.8 million in grant money from NIAID in 2019. Although Farzan, so in other words, he got many times that amount um, between 2020 and 2021. 2020 and 2021. Although Farzan received substantial increases in grant funding, none of the money appears to come under grants provided by the CREID initiative. Farzan immunologist who in 2005 discovered the receptor of the original SARS virus. I told the senior members that, yeah, so we already went over that. Lots of very strange puzzle pieces to try to put together over the next year or two. And uh, it's just hope that more legitimate information comes out. Again, I think the smoking guns exist. It's just the fact that they're trying to cover that up. 
And there's actually, we have evidence that they intentionally tried to cover that up, at least cover up the debate, because that could point back to research that then Fauci and Collins were, especially Fauci was well aware of, and was helping to funnel money to through EcoHealth Alliance. EcoHealth Alliance is not only funneling the money, they're like the project managers, if you will, or they're man- Peter Dajak sort of managing the entire project. He's, he's working with uh, Barrick and using Lee and making sure all this, you know, is, is, is working as planned. And um, obviously the project diffuse as well, you know, that proposal through Equal Health Alliance, he's trying to, you know, get DARPA grant money. So it's just, the whole thing's so fucking absurd. Anyways, let's go on to the next section and let's go ahead now to the Samuel Rivera clip that I talked about earlier. Again, this is a filmographer, producer, uh, editor, does really powerful, very visceral work, um, high production value, but he deserves a lot more uh, recognition and exposure than I think he's gotten thus far. So let's see how this montage he put together of Joe Rogan sort of understanding in his own way what this whole coronavirus narrative actually means for the world. It really is almost like we are being attacked. They're just mandating that people do this one thing, one size fits all. You want to live? You're going to have to trust us. When they're saying that, like the unvaccinated shouldn't have access to health care, what they're doing is they're signaling to their tribe, who the people that also took the vex, the good people, they feel this way. We're going to fight off those outsiders. We're going to deny them health care. Fuck them. Cast them out of society. It's what happens when cowards encounter adversity. When cowards encounter adversity, they give in quick. They give in quick and they decide that what they're doing by giving in quick is virtuous. There's also very clear influence of both the media and of the politicians by these massive pharmaceutical companies. If you want to talk about the most criticized and most disparaged aspect of our society when it comes to like the dangers to people's health, the, the desire to earn unstoppable and constantly ever-growing amounts of money every year, a big one was pharmaceutical companies. Forever we've been suspicious of those people. Forever people have pointed to them as being one of the real problems with capitalism that mixed with medicine. And here's my biggest fear. It's an engine for controlling the population. It's an engine for the institution of some sort of social credit system. If we give in to that kind of surveillance over here, the government will be watching every goddamn thing you do. And I think that's coming. For someone like Joe Rogan, who has the biggest podcast audience in the world, to say that um, is extremely powerful. Because he he's really he his audience tends to be more sort of just moderates, right? I'm sure it's made up of males for the most part, but generally speaking, it's more people of moderate position on a lot of different policy issues. And so, in other words, they bridge the gap of people that might be into some of this research that obviously were in the weeds of, but people that are more the normie spectrum, so to speak. And the fact that he's saying that, that he's recognizing that, and he's able to present that in a language that's familiar to millions and millions and millions of people is very powerful. Um, I, I think that was a great presentation, a great production that Samuel Rivera put together of the fact that Joe Rogan even is recognizing these things. And obviously the fact that he's been conducive to people like Alex Jones, at least recently, uh, Robert Malone, Peter McCullough, uh, Pierre Corey, and has allowed them a platform to get at least their truth out there. Uh, says a lot to the ongoing narrative and how much, uh, 
sort of public awakening is taking place and also how polarized it's also becoming as well, because that's just creating a situation where, you know, the lines and the draw, the lines in the sand are being drawn and people are essentially saying like, I am for team Fauci and team big pharma, or essentially you're for individual rights or for like the freedom of choice and like the ability to have bodily autonomy. And uh, it's unfortunate it had to be made conspicuous like this by this mass formation psychosis, by creating this potentially this uh, pandemic in a laboratory and then releasing it. Um, I want to give myself a, or want to update the audience quick correction. The Melkin Institute was 2019. Thank you, James, for that. And so the same year that Trump signs the Vaccine Modernization Act, we get the Melkin Institute talking about the need to modernize vaccines, a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy there, a little bit. So, and then again, in 2017 was when the moratorium was lifted. So the funding could re, uh, start up again from the NIAID through EcoHealth to the Wuhan Institute, which was, I think was finished in 2017 or 2018 um, by BioMilieu, was that French um, pharmaceutical development corporation, I think owned by Sanofi, if I'm not correct, or if I'm not mistaken, rather. So anyways, uh, let's do this. Let's do uh, Paul Joseph Watson, just two minutes of him talking about some of the good news this past week. And then we'll jump right, let's go right into the Jeffrey Jackson report. And then we'll come back and get into uh, a lot more clips uh, in regards to the vaccine section from all these subsections, mandates and lockdowns and the vaccine injuries, therapeutics, and Joe Rogan breaking the internet. So lots of stuff coming up, but let's play those two. Well, now just real quick, because we skipped over that section, I just want to make sure, Tony, in Pennsylvania, I know you're in an undisclosed location. You didn't pick up any monkeys over the weekend, did you? Oh, you mean the chimpanzee in my library right now? I was like, oh, no, <laughs> okay, okay. All right. That's a no. I thought All that right. was in Washington State, not Pennsylvania. Wink, wink, you know. Oh, that's close to home for you. That is close to home. A little disconcerting, right? Some lab monkeys on the on the run. Isn't that a movie? I mean, art imitating life, life imitating art. Holy shit! I mean, it does sound like a movie to me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Go for it. I know it sounds weird, but there's actually been a lot of good news recently. And after the last two years, good lord do we deserve it. Omicron is incredibly mild and some experts say it could end the pandemic. In response, technocrats have been forced to back off. Restrictions in England are being lifted and are close to being removed in other countries. Mandatory jabs were abolished in the Czech Republic. Germany could potentially be about to follow suit after the most widespread protests in the country's history. The entire lockdown narrative is crumbling, with its former advocates now behaving like rats fleeing a sinking ship. The global elite are panicking at the fact that no one trusts them. Major institutions are admitting that, yes, mass censorship is actually a bad thing. Populists have a chance of winning the upcoming election in France. And the situation in America has turned round massively. Biden's first year in office has been an unmitigated disaster. His approval ratings have sunk to a record low. His public appearances continue to be an absolute car crash. Democrats are so royally screwed they've basically given up on the 2022 midterms. And they're so desperate for a candidate when it comes to 2024 that there's even talk of Hillary Clinton making a comeback. When it comes to information about Corona, the American media has a 10% trust rate truly pathetic. Joe Rogan has an audience literally 11 times bigger than CNN, 
as their ratings continue to plummet. So it all goes to show, even when it appears to be constantly raining black pills, there's always light at the end of the tunnel. 2022 could be our year. Famous last words. Jeffrey, wish you were here to, you know, get a little piece of the concert, but uh, uh, hopefully uh, you enjoyed it on that end. <laughs> oh, it was wonderful. That's really, that's really great to see that stuff. Um, you know, it goes really great with these headlines too. Preparing this segment, I, I had to wonder, are we looking at the final closing ceremonies of COVID-19? Mm. Take a listen to Boris Johnson, the prime minister in the UK, just came out and said this this week. All right. We can return to Plan A in England and allow Plan B regulations to expire. As a result, from the start of Thursday next week, mandatory certification will end. Organisations can, of course, choose to use the NHS COVID pass voluntarily, but we will end the compulsory use of COVID status certification in England. From now on, the government is no longer asking people to work from home. Yeah. And people should now speak to their employers about arrangements for returning to the office. And having looked at the data carefully, the Cabinet concluded that once regulations lapse, the government will no longer mandate the wearing of face masks anywhere. Yeah. Mr Speaker. Mr. Speaker, from, from, tomorrow, from tomorrow, we will no longer require face masks in classrooms and the, Department, and the Department for Education will shortly remove national guidance uh, on their use in communal areas. In the country at large, we will continue to suggest the use of face coverings in enclosed or crowded spaces, particularly when you come into contact with people you don't normally meet, but we will trust the judgment of the British people and no longer criminalize anyone who chooses not to wear one. Man, it's some incredible, powerful statements. I have to tell you, Jeffrey, I have some mixed emotions on this. Like, I mean, this is a guy that has driven this. Uh, he's supported the home of the Imperial College, which is the debacle and university has put out these, you know, um, stats and models that have just driven everybody in these businesses out of our nations. But he's come around. Now, is this is this real? Is it not? I'll tell you, I wouldn't trust this guy further than I can throw him. But it does it does feel like over the last little bit of time that, you know, and I've been saying it, these guys are committing political suicide by pushing this agenda on the people. Maybe he's thrown in the towel. Maybe he's had it. Certainly feels like he is, you know, really, you know, giving some gestures to those that tend to control politics. My concern yeah. would be, and I think one of the things we'll watch is, you know, do they replace him? Do we suddenly see, you know, Boris Johnson being replaced and putting some other puppet in place to get back to the agenda? But I mean, it is certainly a sign that the tides have shifted. 
Well, whatever they do with him, it's going beyond Boris Johnson, too. Okay. So let's look at some of the headlines, though, in the UK really surrounding this. Now, this was right before he made his announcement. They were uh, ditching the self-isolation. This was the rumor. So self-isolation law set to be scrapped. It is scrapped now in favor of move towards learning to live with COVID. Remember, we did a whole show on that last yeah. week. We really saw the drumbeat the drumbeat there. But now let's look at some of these other headlines here. This is a big one and it has implications for the United States. NHS uh, Health Department uh, warning over vaccine mandate for NHS staff in England. Exclusive leaked document says data on jabs effectiveness against Omicron weakens case for compulsory vaccination. So uh, the Guardian there had a leaked doc uh, drawn up by the Department of Health and Social Care. Mm. And they were warning the ministers that they really should rethink going along with um, firing almost 5% of the NHS staff who remains unvaccinated at this point. And those those firings, those letters to fire these people are going to be going out February 3rd. So all eyes on what they're going to do with the NHS staff there, because that has implications here in the U.S. But speaking of the NHS staff, here's maybe some of the reasons why Boris was forced to make this. Waiting lists at uh, the hospitals in England, this is the headline, hit 6 million. This is an all-time record. Absolutely crazy number there. And then we even have another internal, I guess you want to call this guy a whistleblower, but he was part of this thing called the nudge unit. So this is the headline. Ministers have used propagandistic tactics to scare public into complying with COVID rules. Founder of Number 10's nudge unit claims. Now, Number 10 is like their White House, and this was a co-founder. And he said, you know, initially fear was used to boost the compliances for the first lockdown, but then it became the driving force for all the restrictions. And he was worried about basically what it's done to the population. And we've reported on that in the past. They were using their secretive uh, PSYOPs military as well alongside of this. So there's a lot of things to answer to here, but it goes beyond the UK's borders. So let's go to wider Europe. Sweden, uh, Sweden scraps demand for negative COVID tests to enter country. Now, I might add, just today, the WHO came out and called for an end to international travel bans completely, wow. saying that they cause partly uh, economic and social unrest. They have the... Uh, uh, ability to cause those. So they want to end those completely. Scotland taking UK's uh, uh, lead really and saying they're going to end. So Scotland Omicron restrictions to end on Monday. That's their leader, says Nicola Sturgeon. Now let's go to Israel. Their finance minister is calling for a cancellation of the COVID vaccine green pass. This is really good news here because they yeah. had one of the strictest green passes. Uh, it says here in the article, there is no medical or epidemiological logic in the green pass. Many experts agree, says Lieberman. There is, however, direct harm to the economy, to daily operations, and a not insignificant contribution to daily panic among the public. All things we already knew, but it's really great to hear these people parroting this. Now, looking at the restrictions, let's take those and let's jump because we really know now that Omicron ended this thing if it yeah. is if it is the final stages here. So yeah. now let's look at the vaccine. What's happening with the vaccine? Is it still being pushed? Is it being trashed? Well, first of all, Belgium is axing Moderna's vaccine for people 31 years old and under because of myocarditis risk. So that is out in that country. And then we have Norway doing a, a turn as well for kids. And it says here, Norway is going a completely different direction than Denmark, would not recommend Corona vaccine to the youngest. This is translated. Norwegian authorities believe the five to 11 year old children may be better protected against future Corona variants if they are infected, infected naturally rather than vaccinated. Wow. And even here in the US, 
the Wall Street Journal is writing stuff like this. They're admitting this, which is just blowing my socks off. Yeah. Prior COVID-19 infection offered better protection than vaccination during the Delta wave. Now, this was the CDC saying this, that during the Delta wave of the summer and fall of 2021, that the natural immunity protected had greater protection than the shot. So there's a lot of people out there who's just jaws are on the floor reading these headlines. Well, there's and you still can tell people it's, suffering it's something... from some form of mandate, whether it's the university. Fauci has been saying, you know, refuses to sort of promote the idea that natural infection, you know, is obviously better than the vaccination, which every study we've shared here uh, has shown. What, what's really, I think, I know there's a lot of us, you know, we're, we're, we're gun shy, right? We're, we're questioning mm -hmm. where this is going. But one thing right. is for sure. I think the one thing we could take away from this, whether this is a part of a bigger game or a bigger play, and, you know, obviously we are here to keep our eyes on it. What this is showing us is that they clearly feel like they have lost the, you know, the support of the world, the support of the citizens of the world. They clearly now recognize we have lost this battle. We are losing it. Now, maybe this is a game and a trick to try and get it back. And then they'll surprise us with something else. I, I see all of this on Twitter and Facebook, all the conversations. Mm -hmm. But let's be clear. So far, right now, everyone watching the higher wire, all of you out there, those of us that do this work, that are sharing this information, pat yourself on the back right now and recognize that you have scared the powers of the world. They now recognize they're outnumbered, that they can't get reelected, that we may not have a vaccine program that works. We may be losing, you know, faith in all of the health ministries of the world, all of the, you know, the CDCs and the FDAs and the WHOs. And so now they are trying to win us back by giving us what they think they want. Now, is that going to last? Should we be fooled by that? You know, this is like, you know, a witch handing out candy. But in the end, what we do know is what this signals to us is they know we're here and now they're afraid of us. You bet. Well said. And now we're into the booster shots. Uh, we're obviously past the two doses. We're into three and four doses. And even the boosters are getting some bad press. By some, I mean a lot. So check this out. The WHO has turned on the boosters. It says uh, there's no evidence healthy children and adolescents need COVID boosters. Now that's in direct contra contradicting the CDC's recommendation. Mm. So it's going to be interesting to see what the CDC does coming out over this next week to, to try to align with the WHO or do they keep right. plunging ahead? Because the European Medicine Agency, EMA regulator is aligning with WHO. Europe's drug regulator warns excessive COVID boosters could lead to problems with immune response. Joining WHO pushback, we've reported I mean, on that quite a bit. Immune again, exhaustion. This is like if you, if you, I grew up playing sports. When you start seeing the other teams starting to argue with each other, you know, and scream at each other on their sidelines, you know you are clearly winning the game. And this is obviously what's happening. You have divides amongst the ranks going at each other's throats. It's fantastic. It is clear divide. And in Israel, Israel's up to the fourth uh, booster shot. And they're even showing, they're throwing in the towel, it looks like here. This is the Times of Israel. Front page headline, Israel trial, world's first, finds fourth dose not good enough against Omicron. It says in the article, we see an increase in antibodies after the third dose, Rajab Yashi said. However, we see many infected with Omicron who received the fourth dose. Granted, a bit less than in the control group, but still a lot of infections, she added. And this, this is in line with all the studies we're seeing, including this one. This is a world's first study out of uh, South Africa looking at German tourists who traveled to Cape Town, South Africa. They had their shots and their boosters. This was in the Lancet. And it says here, a group of German visitors who had received three doses of SARS-CoV-2 vaccines, including at least two doses of the mRNA vaccine, experienced breakthrough infections with Omicron between late November and early December 2021 while in Cape Town, South Africa. And I bet it goes bef even further than yeah. just those six 
German travelers. Now, last week we covered the big breaking news. We had Aaron Sirian, a lawyer at ICANN, uh, Biden's mandate uh, strike down. So Supreme Court blocks uh, Biden's vaccine or test mandate for large private companies. That's with 100 yeah. more employees. So the fallout here in the United States is starting to happen. We're seeing Starbucks. Just last week, Starbucks was trying to force their employees to get the shot. They've backed off. Starbucks drops worker vaccine or test requirement after SCOTUS ruling. Then we have GE, General Electric, huge company here, suspends COVID vaccine and testing rules after Supreme Court blocks Biden mandate. So we're seeing the drum start to happen here in the U.S. U.S. is not really following uh, the U.K.'s uh, head, head forward charge in this. But as we pull back from this, there's a wider picture that has to be described and has to really be looked at at this point. So we have unexplained medical events that are happening in healthy people, extremely healthy people in some cases, and they just yeah. keep happening. And there's really no explanation from the medical community. And here's another one. This one just happened recently. Take a look. All right. Another one, another one is just, I mean, yeah. I think we're, we're probably over a hundred or so now, right? Around the world with these athletes dropping. Of course, we have the video that we put out and, and to let people know out there, um, as we've said before, there's no proof that these athletes uh, are having a reaction to their vaccinations. We are going to continue removing the videos from that montage that you'll always find on our website. As we discover more information, we're looking for more information if they were not vaccinated or if there's some other reasoning that or credible reasoning is given. But we are here, right, Jeffrey, asking the question, when do you ever remember seeing or hearing about a story like this? I mean, maybe one in a year, but hundreds? I mean, this is really, it's really sad and, and, and shows how incredibly easy it is to make people put on blindfolds. Right. And, you know, just last week we had... Um, we had the stories about uh, Djokovic, Novak Djokovic. Yeah. And at the time he was facing a trial, we know now that he has been deported. Right. Um, and you know, these are the headlines here out of Newsweek. Uh, Fear Novak Djokovic would stoke anti-vaccination sentiment led to deportation. This is the judge. So- Uh-oh, looks like we just lost Jeffrey. And I, well, I'll just say it so we try to get Jeffrey point. back here. Um, oh, here we are. Well, well when you look at yeah. that, Jeffrey, you know, that the fact that he is being removed for fear that he stokes some idea. I mean, what does that have to do with tennis? That is even a statement about health. I mean, they're not they're not saying we're concerned about him putting other athletes at risk. We're concerned that like. So what difference is that than saying, you know, he's Catholic and we think that he would be offensive to Muslims or Jewish people. So because of his religion, we're sending him home. His statements might, you know, bolster the idea and belief yeah. in Catholicism. I mean, there is no difference here. And um, it, it's really shocking. I think a huge mistake because he's, he's, he, there's thoughts he might sue over this issue, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it goes it goes beyond him. So we're seeing other sports, too. We have an Olympic runner uh, from Switzerland. This is Fabian Schwumpf. She's a triple vaccinated Olympic athlete, develops myocarditis, possibly end of her career. She was diagnosed with myocarditis um, shortly after being vaccinated with her booster shot. So wow. these are some questions that really need to be answered. But, you know, what's interesting is these athletes are performing in front of large, large audiences. They have medical teams and ambulances standing by. But what does it look like when someone has an issue with their heart or per perhaps a vaccine issue when they're at home with their family or when they're by themselves? Does it look like this? Bob Saget had hand on his chest at the time of death. Hotel security called his wife from the scene. Now, we don't have confirmation that the vaccine, the cause of death is still being ruled at this point. It's still unknown, but we have to ask these questions. And well, he was you know, I mean, whatever. He, out, he, went on, he went out to his followers and, and bragged about getting that third booster and recommended that other people get it. And so as far as I'm concerned, I know we get attacked every time we put these stories out there. We're not supposed to speculate. But here's the point. If you are an artist or an, an actor or an athlete and you are putting yourself on video, giving a recommendation to the world, which is none of your business on their health decisions, but you say, I'm doing it. Look at me. I'm the poster child. You just invited the high wire into speculating when you die a couple of weeks later, all by yourself with no known history of some sort of heart disease or, or, or brain problem, uh, you put yourself on the chopping block. So for all of you actors out there thinking you're going to do a PSA for this vaccine, go ahead. Go ahead and get that shot right on camera. And when you die, just please know we're not going to forget that that happened. We're going to remember you told us to look at you as the example. And that example will be followed all the way to your end. And, and listen, this if, if it was just a couple people, we wouldn't re really be reporting right. on this. But now it's expanding across the whole country. Remember, reported last week out of Indiana, this is an insurance CEO, uh, Indiana Life Insurance CEO says deaths are up 40% among people ages 18 to 64. Now that was last week. It's yeah. moving beyond Indiana and beyond the CEO. So this is a headline out of Epoch Times. They did some great investigation here. Uh, states investigating surge in mortality rate among 18 to 49 year olds, majority unrelated to COVID. It says deaths among people aged 18 to 49 increased increased more than 40% in the 12 months ending October 2021 compared to the same period in 2018 and 2019 before the pandemic, according to analysis by the Epoch Times of death certificate data from the CDC. Now, now let's on, look so at I some want, of the I states wanna, here. I wanna, for people that are seeing this for the first time, I didn't see our coverage of this last week. The statement made by the CEO of this insurance company that he saw a rise in deaths in, in Indiana, a 40% rise in deaths in this age group. What he said was to put that in perspective, we look mm -hmm. at a once in a 200 year catastrophe. One of those right. once every two century catastrophes, the big one, when we look at that, we plan for that, we expect a, about a 10% rise in deaths during an event like this. This is a 40% rise. Just to give perspective to these numbers that we're looking at right now, as we've been reporting, what will be the effects of these vaccines? What are we seeing? 40% is an astronomical number. Right. Th thank you for that perspective. Yeah. So important. And here's here's some of the states individually broken down from this okay. article. Texas saw an 18 uh, saw the 18 to 49 age mortality jump 61 percent, the second highest increase in the country. Of that, less than 58 percent was attributed to COVID-19. Florida 
which saw an increase of 51%. 48% of that was attributed to COVID-19. Nevada saw the highest increase, 65%. They only had 36 that was attributed to COVID-19. And then the District of Columbia experienced an increase of 72%. None of it was attributed to COVID. And that, now let's look at a map here. Now this is the surge of 40% uh, and up are highlighted. So you have 40%, 50%, 60% and 70%. You're looking at almost half the country there is seeing this surge. So there's a problem here. This is a flashing red light. It's, it's a major, major signal. And people are going to have to really come to terms with what the heck is going on here because there are some major mortalities among this age group that shouldn't be having it. Man, it's really shocking. And, you know, um, of course, as we're reporting this, we don't have the columns, right? Because our data collection is so slow in the United States of America. It doesn't matter we're the home of Microsoft. Apparently, it doesn't matter we're the home of Apple and some of the greatest technological minds that ever lived. We are incapable of getting you accurate, accurate death information like, you know, what they died from probably for a year or two or three years out. It's, a, it's deplorable that we live in a modern society that is moving slower with its data production than almost every nation in the world. But at some point, we're going to start looking at heart attacks. We're going to start seeing the strokes. I'm really curious about those categories. I'm curious about autoimmune disease, anaphylactic reactions, right, right. you know, pneumonias. Remember, we know how many of them had COVID, but what if they had flu? What if they had something that wouldn't be COVID? Are they having that antibody-dependent hand reactions and enhancing other, you know, upper respiratory conditions and causing deaths that way. All of this is super fascinating. But here's what we know. Deaths are through the roof in a way that we haven't seen, I don't think, in our lifetime. Right. You bet. You bet. And, you know, people are pointing fingers. Who's to blame? Who caused this? Why are these deaths up? You know, we're still asking where this thing came from, where this mm -hmm. virus came from. And, uh, we can count on Rand Paul to ask those questions over and over and over again, anytime that he gets a seat in front of Anthony Fauci. And this was his latest. Take a listen. All right. Your desire to take down those who disagree with you didn't stop with Harvard, Oxford and Stanford. You conspired with Peter Daszak, who you communicated with privately and other members of the scientific community that wrote opinion pieces for Nature. Five of them signed a, a paper for Nature, an opinion piece. Seventeen signed a paper that called it conspiracy theory, the idea that the virus could have originated in the lab. Do you think words like conspiracy theory should be in a scientific paper? Senator, I never used that word when I was referring to it. You're distorting virtually everything. Did you communicate with the five scientists who wrote the opinion piece in Nature? Were they... We're describing, oh, this, there's no way this could that have come from, was from the lab. That was not me. What did I you did, talk with any of those see, scientists but privately? You keep, the, you keep distorting did you? the truth. It is, it did is you stunning talk, how did you, you do talk that? to any of the scientists privately yes. who wrote the opinion? You did. Well, what were they telling you privately? Well, well, let me explain. You know you're going back to that original discussion when I brought together a group of people to look at every possibility with an open mind. So you, not only are you distorting it, you were completely turning it around as well, most you of the scientists do. that came to you privately. Did they come to you privately and say, no way this came from the lab? Or was their initial impression, Dr. Gary and Dr. others that were involved, was their initial impression actually that it looked very suspicious for a virus no, that came from a lab? Senator, we are here at a committee to look at a, a virus now that has killed almost 900,000 people. And the purpose of the committee 
was to try and get things out, how we can help to get the American public. And you keep coming back to personal attacks on me that have absolutely no relevance to reality. Do you think anybody has had more influence let, over let a response finish. to this than you have? Do you Madam think it's a great Chair, success? Do you think it's a great success what's happened right. so far? Do you think you, the lockdowns are good for our kids? Do you think we slowed down the death rate? More people have died now under President Biden than did under President Trump. You are the one responsible. You are the architect. You are the lead architect for the response from the government. And now 800,000 people have died. Right. So you think it's a, a winning success what you've advocated for government? Exactly the right question, the one I've been asking the whole time. How do you still have your job with one of the highest death rates in the world, with the greatest hospitals and medical facilities and doctors at your fingertips? Uh, it's an abomination. Rand Paul's all over him and naming a lot of people there, too, on, on top of just um, Anthony Fauci. Yeah, we're throwing he's throwing a lot of names out there. We have Peter Daszak, EcoHealth Alliance. These are becoming ho common household names now yeah. of directions of where this thing might have started. We have Francis Collins, the former head of NIH, is in there as well. He's been popping up on his emails quite a bit. And then, you know, it reminds me of like those Scooby-Doo episodes when they catch one person, which would be Anthony Fauci, everyone's focused on him and they pull the mask off. But in the background, you see some guys and some people running in the shadows and they, they okay. run and grab them too. And one of those people here, who really needs to be looked at is Jeremy Farrar. Uh, this is the head of what's called the Welcome Trust. It's a, a charity in the UK, and it's one of the top, uh, world's top funders of health research. And if you really wanna understand the Welcome Trust, check out this BMJ write-up of them. Uh, it really gives an idea of, of their inner, it, it, the intertwining of pharmaceutical relationships, conflicts of interest. It's called COVID-19 Trust and Welcome, How Charities Pharma Investments Overlap with Its Research Efforts. It says in here, this was written in uh, March, 2021, that they're one of the top organizations to gain from this pandemic with all of their conflicts of interest. So there has to be something on that. Yeah. But looking at this and Jeremy Farrar, he was recently written up in The Guardian, and this is what it looked like. He was a top SAGE advisor in the UK. Top okay. SAGE advisor admitted lab leak theory was most likely origin of COVID in February 2020, but debate was shut down because it could cause harm to China, bombshell emails reveal. It says in this article, the British scientist, that's Farrar, was shut down by his counterparts in the U.S. who warned further debate about the origins of the virus could damage international harmony. Now, this article frames Farrar like someone who thought this thing was uh, lab created and really tried to warn the world, but it was shut down by his U.S. counterparts, Fauci, Collins. But that's not yeah. what the evidence says. And as Fauci pointed out there in the clip we just listened to, there's absolutely not one shred of evidence for Paul's accusations, but we're going to show you that there actually is. So let's look at this. Now, just recently, Congress, uh, a congressional committee unredacted emails that were public and had those big that uh, you know the redacted emails those yeah. big blackouts on there yeah well they found out what was behind those and it's just adding so what i want to do here really at this point is let me take you through a timeline i'll put together using um uh, the informed consent action networks emails that were obtained through the FOIA requests that uh, showed Fauci and Dayzak and all of these other people, okay. along with these new congressional unredacted emails. So, so these and are the ones that we, we were. I was, here. I was talking to Aaron Siri last week. We put it out. And by the way, for all of you right now that are maybe watching the High Wire for the first time, if you want to be the first one to see the document dumps that we're getting from our FOIA requests, you're about to see some of those emails. Aaron Siri was doing that work. He puts out these requests. That document dump, the new uh, of you know, emails coming from Fauci were in your hands first if you are on our news.
newsletter. Uh, we want to make sure that you get the breaking news first because we want that commitment from you. So just go to thehighwire.com. This doesn't cost you any money. Just put in your email. It's all. We don't send you advertisements. We're not, you know, selling you anything. We just want to make sure that you get the information. All of the data, the articles about Ferrari right there. We went right very quickly through that Daily Mail article, but that will be in your inbox on Monday if you want to, you know, really get into the details. It's a hyperlink, super easy. I want to read that whole article. Uh, we want you to be able to say to your friends, here's what the article said, or here's the exact study, or here are the emails that came out. And I have to say, here's what Del Bigtree said. I want to change the culture of news. We want transparency. Facts is what matters, not people's opinions, not expert opinions, and not talk show host opinions. You need to be looking at the facts. We're doing something that nobody else in news is doing for you. We're providing you with all of the data that appears on the show. Every video, every single article is in your hands so that you continue that research. Sure, we have to grab a couple of quotes to keep this moving and not make it a 10-hour show, but that doesn't mean, you know, if you want to say, well, then you're cherry-picking, who else would say, fine, here, look at the entire document. If you're not a part of this newsletter, right now, you're not getting the, the body of work that international scientists are helping us put together for you. So please just sign up to that newsletter right now uh, so that you can also get these document dumps. So here, Jeffrey, uh, to get back to it, we now are going to go through emails that the Congress has had unredacted and the email dump that came to us at the Informed Consent Action Network through our lawyer, uh, Aaron Siri. Our, and and so, so this tells a story then, I guess, is, is what, you're, what you're telling me. Yeah, it sure does. It sure okay. does. And uh, a bombshell one at that, too. So let's go. It's going to be like a rough timeline here. Let's start okay. with February 1st, 2020. Okay. There's a conference call. Now, Jeremy Farrar is on this conference call, and he's kind of playing secretary at this point. He's taking notes. This conference call was uh, a bunch of uh, world leaders, uh, world uh, uh, leaders in genome research and genetic engineering and things like that. And he's okay. taking notes and he writes an email of those notes. He says, here's my notes. He sends that email to Collins, Fauci, and a, a gentleman called Lawrence Tabak. He was uh, the second in command at NIH. He is now the acting director. So all three of those okay. people get this email. This is what Farrar writes. He says, from Michael Frazen, uh, now, Michael Frazen was discoverer of the SARS receptor. So this guy has been around the block on this. He says, he is bothered by the furon site and has a hard time explaining that as an event outside the lab, though there are possible ways in nature, but highly unlikely, goes on to say, acquisition of the furon site would likely destabilize the virus, but would make it disseminate to new tissue. So given above, a likely explanation could be something as simple as, pass, uh, as passage sars live cov in tissue culture on human cell lines under BSL-2, that's Biosafety Lab 2, uh, for an extended period of time, accidentally creating a virus that would be primed for rapid transmission between humans via gain of furon site from tissue culture and adaption to human ACE2 receptors via repeated passage. Basically, he's saying it looks like it might have been in a bi uh, biosafety lab accidental release. So yeah. Farrar says in his own words, he finishes this email to Fauci and Collins and everybody. He says, so I think it becomes a question of how do you put it all together? Whether you believe in this series of coincidences, what you do, uh, or what you know of the lab in Wuhan, how much could be in nature, accidental release or natural event? Question mark. I am 70-30 or 60-40. That's Whoa. saying he's 70, 30, 60, 40 on an accidental release. Now, at that same, now those are big, that's a big that's prediction a at that statement. point. Now that's right. huge statement. Now at that same time, there's a gentleman named Christian Anderson. He sends an email to um, Anthony Fauci, 
uh, copied Jeremy Farrar on this as well. And he says here, I should mention that after discussion earlier today, Eddie, Bob, Mike, and myself, now this is a, a separate group that has gotten together and they're all talking, these are all experts. Eddie, Bob, Mike, and myself all find the genome inconsistent with expectations from evolutionary theory. So point number two, right out, right out the gate, you have pretty much almost all of the experts that are that are taking these calls out the gate saying this really, it, it looks it's like it may be something that was created in a lab. Yeah, absolutely. So now we have one of the ICANN emails and this one, uh, this one uh, has to do with Eddie Holmes. Uh, this was the ICANN email and it says, here's Farrar sending to Fauci at the top there. Farrar says, I'm pushing WHO again today. And then he shares a rough draft of what we what we now know as, as a nature article we're going to cover really shortly. But um, Eddie Holmes says to Jeremy Farrar, who's one of uh, Jeremy Farrar, he says, it's fundamental science and completely neutral as written. Did not mention other anomalies as this would make us look like loons. As it stands, it's an excellent basic science, I think, which is a service in itself. Now, of course, they're talking about which will eventually be a nature article on the origins of this, saying it's a natural right. origin. So that's that's on February 4th. So now we go back to another ICANN email. Fauci, this is a day later, Fauci's already being allowed to pick a group. So this is Jeremy Farrar to Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins, and he says this, uh, Farrar says, I spoke again with WHO this, WHO this morning. I believe they have listened and acted. Let me know if you agree. At the WHO meeting next week, they will set up the group who will, quote, look at the origins and evolution of 2019 NCOV. They didn't name it at that point. He also says they have asked for names to sit on that group. Please do send names. So now here we have Farrar pressuring the WHO to form a group and telling Fauci to stack this group with people that he wants in it. So let's go forward to that WHO uh, that WHO meeting. Okay. And here it is right here. This is that one Farrar was talking about a week later, Global Research and Innovation Forum towards a research roadmap. The whole point of this, from the words of this forum, was to form a consensus on strategic directions, to discuss research priorities, and to, uh, to address a framework of natural history of COVID-19, of 2019 novel coronavirus. So they weren't even saying anything about a lab. They just said, we want to find the natural history. That's the tracks we're going to lay, and that's where we're going to look. People all focused. We're going to stay in this hallway of natural evolution, even though all the scientists a week ago were saying it most likely does not have a natural origin. But let's just keep the conversation there because we don't want to look like loons. Wink, wink. <laughs> right. And so yeah. lo and behold, who's presenting at this conference? None other than Jeremy Farrar himself, right from the conference blueprint sheet right here. And that's at 1600 hours. And he is talking about main knowledge gaps and research priorities uh, for for this uh, for the research activities laid out by the WHO with a group that Fauci picked. So now we fast forward to um, about seven days later, February 13th. And we have Fauci talking to then CDC head Nancy Messonnier. And what he's saying to her is really the handing of the baton. So Fauci, Collins implicated in this, but here we have, he says, Nancy, the official USG group will be convened by NAS, National Academy of Sciences. Bob, 
Cadlick is the person with direct knowledge of that. In addition, there is an ad hoc group informally led by Jeremy Farrar of Wellcome Trust. This group has about 15 people, all of whom are highly respected scientists, mostly evolutionary biologists who are convening by email and conference calls. I have been on two of these calls since Jeremy invited me to look at all the bat, pangolin, and human coronavirus sequences to try to determine the evolutionary origin. This is not my area of expertise, so I have backed off and I'm leaving it all to Jeremy. Best Tony. That's amazing. On February. So bats, 13th. That's where we're going to focus this thing. He has totally erased all the people reaching out and saying it looks like lab origin. Right. And just a couple days later, the hammer comes down. This is in the Lancet. This was published. This is now the infamous Lancet conspiracy article statement in support of scientists, public health professionals, and medical professionals of China combating COVID 19. We now know that Peter Daszak was one of the brains behind this. There's and it says, we. Yep. Yep, Jeremy Farrar's on there. You have yeah. even uh, Christian Drosden. He was the PCR test guy. It says here, we stand together to strongly condemn conspiracy theories suggesting that COVID-19 does not have a natural origin. So we're talking, Dell, two weeks out from the initial February 1st emails where everyone's saying this really does look like it. I'm 70, go 30, from... I'm 60, 40, two weeks later, we got to crush this crazy idea, this conspiracy theory of uh, lab origin. And Unreal. You know, what a the... bunch of sellouts. It's absolutely disgusting and despicable. And every fact checker in the world took that, ran with it, and used it as the impetus to ban people off the internet and mass uh, Twitter, wow. Facebook, everywhere. So now we're going to March 5th. This is another ICANN email talking the media talking points. Fauci has his hand in this as well. So lo and behold, he picked Clifford Lane uh, as one of the, the leads. Now, Clifford Lane was the second in command at NIAID. So he was one of the leads in the WHO mission to China to find the natural origins. So this, this email from ICANN is talking about the main talking points. So these are what the media is to be told. So this is what the media can ask, what it can write about. This is what it's told. So here we have NIAID uh, crafting the media narrative. And it says here that key questions related to natural history. So the joint mission is focused on key questions related to natural history. We're always worrying about this natural history. The same words coming out of the WHO uh, almost less than a month before that. So now it gets really interesting because then a couple of days after that we have the nature article that comes out the origins the proximal proximal origin of sars cov2 there we have christian anderson we have eddie holmes we have robert gary he was on one of the initial emails about talking about this thing so we have them there's putting this out there and then this is an interesting email here this is um a biosafety, Fauci starts getting questioned about Wuhan Institute of Virology and biosafety. This was in April, there is April 2020. And this was um, for Secretary Pompeo. It said uh, down a little bit, it said, I would appreciate that you and your office could help us with the following observations, exchanges, and agreements with the Wuhan Institute of Virology on the issues of biosafety biosafety and enforcement and inspection mechanisms at Wuhan Institute of Virology or any other Chinese high biosafety labs your institutes have interacted with and the extent to which the U.S. has been involved in building the Chinese labs and helping enforce the safety standards and ins inspections. So right there, Fauci is probably starting to feel some real heat. Now that email says it's not, this is an investigation. We just want some answers. We want, it's a pre preliminary questioning. But here's, let's really bring this home here because we, we talked about, and so did uh, Rand Paul, 
the Great Barrington Declaration, we now know from emails, was was kind of put down and crushed in the media thanks to the work of uh, Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins. We and know through clear, those emails. For those people they were talking watching to... for the first time, the Great Barrington Declaration, which was put together by world-renowned scientists, Dr. Martin Koldorf, Dr. Sunetra Gupta, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, it essentially was into sort of a focused protection. Let's protect those in the high-risk categories while letting the rest of the people that are healthy, let's not lock them down. Let's go ahead and just let those that are healthy enough catch this virus naturally so that we get to herd immunity and protect those in the high-risk category where the body of all of our deaths ended up occurring. Uh, none of that happened. In fact, most of the people that were terrified of this pandemic and this disease ended up making laws where they forced uh, the um, nursing homes to take on patients that were sick and then basically lit a dry grass fire that killed untold amount of elderly. Shockingly, all probably people that were getting pensions and things like that. When you start to look at this, there, it's really hard to not sort of jump to some sort of diabolical, you know, concerns. But it was weird that instead of focusing on protecting those that were vulnerable over 80 in nursing homes, other comorbidities, those, you know, many people like Cuomo forced the disease into those nursing homes. So really shocking. Yeah. The opposite of what the Great Barrington Declaration. But we now know as of last week that the head of NIH, Francis Collins said we need to squash this idea that uh, we should let this run its course, let people live their lives and just protect the elderly. Um, clearly not open to that science. They had a different agenda in mind. Correct. And he was asking for a devastating takedown of three fringe epidemiologists that right. wrote the Great Barrington Declaration. So he was coordinating that. And now we see here that he's coordinating another takedown. So listen to this. So Collins writes to Fauci, Lawrence Tabak, and Clifford Lane. Uh, those are three names that we just covered. He writes this, wondering if there is something NIH can do to help put down this very destructive conspiracy with what seems to be growing momentum. And there's an article link there. What he's talking about is the Nature article that just was released. He says, I hope the Nature Medicine article on the genomic sequence of SARS-CoV-2 would settle this, but probably didn't get much visibility. Anything more we can do? Ask the National Academy uh, to weigh in. Now, to this, Fauci responds just directly to Collins. So it's a one-on-one -on -one email we have. This is unredacted. Take a look at this. Fauci says, I would not do anything about this right now. It is a shiny object that will go away in time. Well, we know now that it hasn't gone away. Going it's grown. Away. It's become shinier. And a Just, lot of people are focusing on it. To bring me back to my memory, if we, the, the Lancet article, has it been pulled? I know that they broke apart the group that wrote this. They sort of sent this team of scientists to Wuhan. All of them have been connected to the Wuhan uh, lab work or most of them. And so them making these statements, uh, have those papers been pulled or have they just been looked at and said, we no longer trust this and we're disbanding the people involved? Like where, where technically uh, is this conversation at uh, around these people that, that authored these articles, but did it from what we now know to be a completely biased position? They had to go back because Peter Daszak had obviously extreme conflicts of interest and he signed that. So they had to go back and put these conflicts of interest on there. It was, okay. a, it was a huge egg on their face and also other people that had those conflicts of interest with the Welcome Trust and so on and so forth that were on that article. Okay. Peter Daszak was removed from the Lancet's, uh, the Lancet had its own uh, investigatory 
committee that was looking into these origins. Peter Daszak was removed from that after okay. his, uh, his ties with the Equal Health Alliance and the Wuhan Institute of Virology. But all was done after public pressure. So none of right. this was done on the front end as Lancet did zero due diligence um, a, as they did, just like they did with hydroxychloroquine, had right. to be pulled on the back end. But, you know, totally discredited on, on those two points. And, but and, and, and at frankly, this point, it frankly treasonous, treasonous, um, you know, uh, I think uh, actions, because all while you were, you know, building this lie, shall we say, you're giving China and all the people in that lab time to erase any ability mm -hmm. to investigate in the future. So instead of doing a proper job, you know, what, how you would with anybody, any, any other criminal, which is kicking the door and surprise them, you told them that you were coming, you sent all the best friends of the lab that had been funding the lab, they whitewashed this whole thing, and now we may never get to the truth of what will be, you know, this dark blot in, you know, leaking through the pages of our history books. Right, right. And the, the winds seem to be changing, at least in the public. You know, the people that used to be hard supporters of Fauci, hard supporters of the lockdowns and the things that Fauci was kind of putting his weight behind are now turning on him. Everyone recognizes this guy. Take a look at Dr. Oz. The challenge is a debate. I'm challenging him, doctor to doctor, to actually argue about the merits of vaccine mandates, about ignoring naturally acquired immunity. So if you've actually had the illness, why would that not count as protecting you like it has for all of known human history? And what about these inexcusable delays with therapeutics? And I'm not just talking about right now, although it is a catastrophe now that we don't have monoclonal antibodies and any of the pills that we think might work, but some of these pills have been around since before COVID started. So what gives? How is it possible that in America, which is 4% of the world population, we have 15% of the world deaths? I think Dr. Fauci is basically the J. Edgar Hoover of public health. He's a petty tyrant. He got COVID wrong. He continues to get it wrong. I keep hearing from people inside the public health space and outside, regular doctors like me, that he's not managing this correctly. So let's get to the root cause of why this is occurring. And I want to specifically go over the issues that they've been so confident about that they've gotten diametrically wrong. Damn, fighting words. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it makes me wonder. I, I know that there's issues. He has talked about vaccinations before, saying I don't get into that. My wife handles that. It makes me wonder if he's winning some family I mean, or losing some family arguments at home and is a little pissed off about it because he followed Fauci's lead. I know some of us are thinking of all the people to debate Anthony Fauci. How about not one of his number one fans that's been promoting him throughout this, you know, mm -hmm. COVID epidemic? Why don't we have Dr. Peter McCullough or Dr. Robert Malone uh, get in there to debate him? But either way, the sentiment is there. And clearly, as we start to see, you know, I think you're going to see these guys turning on each other. This is just like a mob bust. And once, you know, what do you think Fauci is thinking about Farrar? These guys cannot trust each other. They know someone is going to spill the beans. Someone's going to throw them under the bus. That's shifting public opinion, television promoters. I mean, this is, this is uh, an amazing, amazing time, Jeffrey. Yeah, it is. And every time they appear in public now, they're saying the exact opposite thing that they were saying literally two weeks ago and throughout the entire pandemic response. So watching them basically sound like us now, it's really something to see. And like you said at the opening of this, we're going to have to really watch where this goes. I think there's going to be some really important broadcasts here as far as strategy and next directions about where we can see this going. All right. Well, I know you're deeply watching every move. You know, you've got your finger on the pulse, as they say. And so we'll see you next week. Thank you for the great work, Jeffrey. All right. Thanks, Del.
All right. Well, there is a lot to comment on there. Um, incredible reporting by Jeffrey Jackson. Oh my God. So it's just, what's really fascinating is the ICANN emails because those we didn't have access to. Um, I mean, obviously the congressman, we did have access to them, but I forgot about those specific emails and the congressmen are talking about other emails not associated with the ICANN. So ICANN obviously the Informed Consent Action Network. That's uh, the essentially the network they use for uh, filing um, you know, against the government uh, for FOIA requests and different things of that nature to obtain documentation in regards to a whole host of different things, but obviously their focus is oftentimes vaccines. And um, so it's a non-for-profit that, you know, helps to, you know, get the re relevant data and they've been doing it for a long time, long before COVID-19. One of their biggest focuses in fact was the safety of vaccines in general and whether or not vaccines studies there, whether or not there are legitimate vaccine safety studies um, then, you know, a lot of the requests showed that, no, there weren't, um, obviously there's no double blind, but that gets into a murky territory. Is it ethical to do double blind, but then is it ethical to roll out a vaccine if you haven't done adequate testing and it gets really murky. But the fact is they've been using, um, a not-for-profit to file these FOIA requests and to bring charges also, uh, to, to basically sue, um, various organizations to get relevant information either through FOIA or through, um, other methods such as, um, you know, su suing this organization. So, you know, kudos to them. It was fascinating to see that Fauci mentioned Jeremy Farrar. There's a whole little deep dive we can do on Jeremy Farrar. And we're going to do a little bit here um, about the Welcome Trust. Now, before I get into that, I think it's interesting that he acknowledged him and set up the scientists that he pretty much handpicked to debunk, of course, all being evolutionary biologists to debunk, not only to help debunk the uh, lab leak, lab release theory, but on top of that, to help essentially create a possible way by which it could be of zoonotic transfer. In other words, it jumped from animals to human. In other words, they were going to use the penguin as the intermediary, intermediary species, which that one fell on its face pretty early uh, for a multitude of reasons. One is this, the fact that genetic sequence between the penguin and um, uh, the bat SARS, and then the, the specific pharyncyte made no sense. And it didn't really correspond. Um, it's for more related to a bat coronavirus thing called a rat TG13, something like that. Uh, rat G13, something. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. And it's like 90 some, 96, 97% similar to that with these minor modifications um, that we talk about with these inserts that I talked about earlier that make it unique and that give it its unique profile. So that was sort of the backbone. They were rat G13. Uh, coronavirus, back coronavirus, if I remember correctly. And so the pangolin, but the fact that they, he handpicked these organizations or, or these individuals to head up this organization to make sure that they were promoting a very specific conclusion. Uh, it looks like he's, you know, concerned about something. It might be aware of something certainly uh, as an ominous sort of uh, viewpoint by which he's going about doing all of this stuff. So let's look at this. If people aren't familiar, obviously Whitney Webb, as RFK Jr. pointed out, probably the best uh, best investigative journalist, I think, of our time, certainly of our generation. I somewhat agree with that. I mean, she's one of a couple, but she's one of the best. And she did a, this is back in June 25th, 2021. So this is back at the beginning of summer, 
In fact, Summer just started and she entitled it a leap toward humanity's destruction. That's for Regina Dugan. And she's an interesting figure because I believe not only does she work with DARPA, but she also works as part of either Facebook's or Amazon's or both at one point or another, they're sort of advanced technologies department where they're helping to produce advanced sort of neuro type neuro link type of technologies. Um, and she obviously has associations, I believe, with DARPA. The world's richest medical research foundation, the Wellcome Trust, has teamed up with a pair of former DARPA directors who built Silicon Valley's skunk works to usher in an age of nightmarish surveillance, including for babies as young as three months old. Their agenda can only advance if we allow it. Sort of the subtitle to all this. Not subtitle, sort of the paraphrasing of the, of the whole thing. So it's a long document. I can only go over sections of it, small sections of it, just because of its length. I think it's important if you're interested to check out just, first of all, who Regina Dugan is. We actually, I think we, we might've skipped this because I had this on the show card, like back probably around June, July. I think she spoke with Corbett. She spoke with a couple other individuals also about Regina Dugan and her, her uh, expose of the, through this article of the welcome trust and the fact that it's connected with DARPA and it's sort of shady background. So it's a UK nonprofit with ties to global corruption throughout the COVID-19 crisis, as well as historical and current ties to the UK eugenics movement, launched a global health-focused DARPA equivalent last year. The move went largely unnoticed by both mainstream and independent media, just to give some context. And we're going to focus on Jeremy Farrar in this. The Welcome Trust, which has arguably been second only to Bill Gates and its ability to influence events during the COVID-19 crisis and vaccination campaign, launched its own global equivalent of the Pentagon's secretive research agency last year, officially to combat the, quote, most pressing health challenges of our time, end quote. Though first conceived of in 2018, this particular Welcome Trust initiative was spun off from the trust last May with $300 million in initial funding. It quickly attracted two DARPA, former DARPA executives, who had previously served in the upper echelons of Silicon Valley, demands and plan its portfolio, portfolio and projects. Um, let's see here. So let's go to Farrar. There's a whole section just on Farrar. And if you look on the right side, you can see all the highlights here. It's quite, quite a bit. You know, we're talking about what here, 26 matches associated with Farrar. And there's a whole like subsection within this, um, uh, within this uh, post here in regards to Jeremy Farrar, which obviously Jeffrey Jackson just did a, a whole host of interesting research on by showing his connection with Tony Fauci and the fact that Fauci sort of picked Farrar and Farrar as being the main guy that would help lead the initiative to downplay any sort of lab release hypothesis or lab, excuse me, lab release theory. So while Dugan and Gabriel, so let me just, uh, we're going to read just a couple sections. Cause I'm build out this, you'll see a picture of why he was picked and that's, and uh, it won't take long to build this out. While Dugan and Gabriel ostensibly led the outfit, Welcome Leap is the brainchild of Jeremy Farrar and Mike Ferguson, who serve as its directors. Ferguson was also mentioned, if I'm not correct, incorrect. Farrar is the director of the Welcome Trust itself, and Ferguson is deputy chair of the Trust Board of, Gov Trust Board of Governors. Farrar has been the director of the Welcome Trust since 2013 and has been actively involved in critical decision-making at the highest level globally since the beginning of the COVID crisis. He's also an agenda contributor to the World Economic Forum, and co-chaired the World Economic Forum's Africa meeting in 2019. Farrar's Welcome Trust is also a WEF strategic partner, not just a partner, but strategic. That qualifying term there is very important to understand and co-founded the COVID action platform with the WEF. 
Farrar was more recently behind the creation of Welcome's COVID Zero initiative, which is also tied to the WEF. Farrar has framed that initiative as, quote, an opportunity for companies to advance the science, which will eventually reduce business disruption, end quote. Thus far, it has convinced titans of finance, including MasterCard and Citadel, to invest millions in research and development at organizations favored by the Welcome Trust. Hmm. Sounds like a a larger form of the eco-health a little bit, doesn't it? Some of Welcome's controversial medical research projects in Africa, Africa, as well as its ties to the UK eugenics movement, were explored in December. Article published at the end of the Hangout. The report also explores the intimate connections of Welcome to the Oxford AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine, uh, the use of which has now been restricted or banned in several countries, as mentioned in the introduction, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So let's see if we can get into a little bit of his correspondence here. Now, if I remember correctly, let's go... I had this up earlier, somewhere around here. Yeah, Fauci. Okay. Over the past year, many questions have arisen regarding exactly how much power for our wields over glo- global public health policy. Recently, the U.S. President's chief medical advisor, Anthony Fauci, was forced to release his emails and correspondence from March and April 2020 at the request of the Washington Post. The released emails reveal what appears to be a high-level conspiracy by some of the top medical authorities in the U.S. to falsely claim that COVID-19 could only have been of zoonotic origin, despite indications to the contrary. The emails were heavily redacted, as such emails usually are, supposedly to protect the information of the people involved, but the B6 redactions, there's the codes I was talking about, so B6 redactions, also protect much of Jeremy Farrar's input into these discussions. Chris Martinson, economic researcher and postdoctorate student of neurotoxicology and founder of Peak Prosperity, has had some insightful comments on the matter, including asking why such protection has been offered to Farrar, given that he is the director of a charitable trust. Martinson went on to question why the Welcome Trust was involved at all in these high-level discussions. One Fauci email, I need to take this off here, one Fauci email dated February 25th, 2020, and sent by uh, Emilie Rue of the WHO stated that Jeremy Farrar's official role at that time was to act, quote, to act as the board's focal point on the COVID-19 outbreak to represent and advise the board on the science of the outbreak and the financing of the response, end quote. Farrar had previously chaired the World Health Organization's Scientific Advisory Council. The females also show the preparation within a 10-day period of the SARS-CoV-2 origins paper, which is entitled The Proximal Origins of COVID SARS-CoV-2. It was accepted for publication by Nature Medicine on March 17, 2020. The paper claimed that the SARS-CoV-2 virus could only have come from natural origins as opposed to the gain-of-function research, a claim once held as gospel in the mainstream, but which has come under considerable scrutiny in recent weeks. Now, recent weeks, this is back June 25th. And this is largely due to, I think, the Fauci email release and a, a, a bunch of other revelations that emerged because we did a whole show that was pretty much just that, maybe two shows back to back sometime in like, it was around May, June, uh, when I remember doing a whole section, we spent most of the time on just the Fauci and the lab release hypothesis. Shaping the presentation of an origin story for a virus of global significance is something for art. And this is important. This is the context. So this, pay attention to this paragraph here. Shaping the presentation of an origin story for a virus of global significance is something Farrar has been involved with before. In 2004-2005, it was reported that Farrar and his Vietnamese colleague Tran Tinh Hien, the vice director at the Hospital for Tropical Diseases, were the first to identify the reemergence of the avian flu H5N1 in humans. Farrar has recounted the origin story on many occasions, stating, quote, it was a little girl. She caught it from a pet duck that had died and she dug it up and reburied. She survived, end quote. 
According to Farrar, this experience prompted him to found a global network in conjunction with the World Health Organization to, quote, improve local responses to disease outbreaks, end quote. An article published by Rockefeller University Press's Journal of Experimental Medicine in 2009 is dramatically titled, Jeremy Farrar, When Disaster Strikes. Farrar, when referring to the H5N1 origin story, stated, quote, the WHO people, and this is not a criticism, decided it was unlikely that the child had SARS or avian influenza. They left, but Professor In uh, stayed behind to talk with the child and her mom. The girl admitted that she had been quite sad in the previous days the death of her pet duck. The girl and her brother had fought over burying the duck, and because of this argument, she had gone back, dug up the duck, and reburied it. Probably so her brother wouldn't know where it was buried. With that history, Professor Hien honed excuse me, phoned me at home and said he was worried about the child. He took some swabs from the child's nose and throat and brought them back to the hospital at night. The laboratory ran tests on the samples and they were positive for influenza A. With Farrar now having been revealed as an instrumental part of the team that crafted the official stories regarding the origins of SARS-CoV-2, his previous assertions about the origins of past epidemics should be scrutinized. As a director of a charitable trust, Jeremy Farrar is almost completely unaccountable for his involvement in crafting controversial narratives related to the COVID crisis. Oh man, this is just like, this is me talking now. Oh man, I can't believe I'm going to space on the name. Uh, give me two, I'll, give me two seconds to look this up, but oh, Philip Zelikow, Philip Zelikow. This is just like Philip Zelikow, which also has, I thought was, has some, um, connection into crafting this whole COVID narrative as well. Philip Zalokal obviously did the 9-11 commission report, which was, he, ba- <laughs> you want to see uh, a way to do leading questions and adding your antium fallacies and uh, complex questions and all these different types of fallacies. That report is a perfect example of it. He basically, it was 100% prescriptive. He had already crafted the questions and determine the type of data that would be used to fill those questions. And so it was a pre-established report before the commission even took place. And I mean, he's as dirty as dirty gets. Obviously, went in uh, deep into his connections. I should bring the brain up and just go over Philip Zelikow again. But maybe I'll do that a little bit later on. But nonetheless, this is Jeremy Farrar is like the Philip Zelikow, but with zoonotic transfer rather than uh, you know uh, terrorist organizations, supposed terrorist cells in the Middle East. As a director of a charitable trust, Jeremy Farr is almost completely unaccountable for his involvement in crafting controversial narratives related to the COVID crisis. He continues to be at the forefront of the global co- response to COVID in part by launching the Welcome Leap Fund for unconventional projects funded at scale as an overt attempt to create a global and charitable version of DARPA. Indeed, Farrar, in conceiving Welcome Leap, has positioned himself to be just as, if not more, instrumental in building the foundation for the post-COVID era as he was building the foundation for the COVID crisis itself. This is significant as Welcome Leap CEO Regina Dugan has labeled COVID-19 this generation's Sputnik moment that will launch a new age of health innovation, much like the launching of Sputnik started a global technological space age. Welcome Leap fully intends to lead the pack. That is quite an analogy. The Sputnik moment reminds me of um, Kant's component, uh, his idea of a, his, uh, the philosophical equivalent to his Copernican, the Copernican revolution uh, that he did through his antinomy analysis and this phenomenal noumenal split he created in the Critique of Pure Reason, outlined in the Critique of Pure Reason. Um, this idea that he's come up with something so pivotal that it'll change mankind. Now, if I remember correctly, there's that document that Jason Burmis loves to 
throw around Bushnell. Dennis Bushnell comes from like July 2001, I think. I think. And it has to do, let me bring that up um, real quick here. Because what's important about that, let's see if I can, I have... I remember I had this here. What's important about it is this, this age, these new ages, these technological ages that we're going to uh, end up being in. So, God damn it. I knew I have it here, but it's going to take me. I'll have to go to a clip and we'll come back to it. Either way, what's fascinating is I think we entered the bio nanotech age, if I remember correctly. So it's like one step closer to the transhumanistic Ideal. And Dennis, Dennis Bushnell was a, I think a managing director at some participation in high levels of NASA. And Burmis loves to quote that often, but it's an interesting document because remember 2010 was the start of the uh, decade of the vaccine. 2019, we had the Milken Institute, and we also have the vaccine modernization. We also have a patent going, supposedly ending around 2019 in regards to this mRNA technology that could be used for vaccination. They need a pandemic to start or to happen. So you have this project diffused in 2018 presented to DARPA. DARPA is considering it. They it says it's selectable, but they have questions about it. And the, I mean, the fact that they're saying we're isolating, we already have been, but we want to continue to isolate and then reintroduce viruses that have been manipulated to see how they affect different bat populations. We have the fact that there's the admission that Xi Lee had already worked with furin cleavage sites before. In fact, this is one of the main inserts they work with because this is the way in which it can become effective to other animals, including humans. Um, and that being really the smoking gun as it relates to the virus itself. I mean, there's a lot of moving pieces here and a lot of parts. And Regina Dugan, I mean, she's by herself. I mean, she makes up a huge portion of this document here. I can't get into the details beyond the scope of what we're discussing here, but for people that are really interested, this is a fantastic read. And if you're not really into reading long um, uh, blog posts such as this, then I would suggest, um, I think Corbett did a interview with her back sometime June or July. I might have already looked that up where she talks about the welcome trust. So it was either, it might've been Reiner Fulnick. There was a couple of different individuals around this time. Now this was published in like June. This essay was published June 25th, 2021. So it would have been around June, July time. So LD in the background, we were playing some videos. See if you can find that, but obviously, um, you know, here's Leap's leadership merging man and machine for the military in Silicon Age. We, we've actually showed clips of her, you know, talking, I think, about Google. Oh, she worked at Google, too, and their advanced sort of research departments for technology. Talked about that pill. She's the lady on the stage talking about, oh, you take a pill and it has a little receiver in it. It can tell you how it's working and when you need to take another one and do all these great things that we can tie it to your phone. And, you know, nothing to see here, nothing to worry about. Keep moving along, people. But it's disconcerting that we had the age of the vaccine then in what 2020 this Bushnell document shows that we've entered this sort of bio nanotech age and of course correspondent with that is this mRNA technology this this gene therapy pathog synthetic pathogen producing gene therapy um, that is now you know run right through the culture and we don't know the long-term implications but the fact that you know this insurance agent has said 10 percent is what we expect in a 200 year span. That would be a catastrophic event from 18 to 64 year olds, 10% death increase. And the fact there's a 40%, I mean, you know, obviously it's hard to tie that directly to the vaccine, but the problem is even if we'll never, they never will tie it to the vaccine. It's the same issue with the myocarditis data. The UK group has come out and showed that Moderna's vaccine for minors 
is way out does any sort of myocarditis that's induced from getting COVID-19 naturally, which is about 650 or so individuals supposedly have gotten uh, COVID-19 induced myocarditis. But the, the UK group came out and showed that Moderna is many times over that. But then there's the issue with the Pfizer. It's Pfizer says only 65 individuals have gotten um, a myocarditis induced from the vaccine. So they, you know, Pfizer's trying to po- or some position itself as though it's the much safer version. We've seen now in the, the Jeffrey Jackson report, them saying that, well, you know, Moderna's banned in a couple countries and other countries are not recommending Pfizer or Moderna for any of their children. Um, we don't know the long-term fallout of this, but antibody dependent enhancement, remember uh, other respiratory viruses typically are coronaviruses. I think all of them are. And so the fact that, so it's going to have some basic similarity in structure and due to waning immunity, uh, it could create a situation of creating a cytokinic storm because of original antigenic sin. In other words, we created a vaccine for one specific virus for the adaptive immunity one specific viral structure, but it's when it comes in with something that's, you know, quite a bit different, but similar, the body becomes confused and starts attacking itself, producing antibodies specifically for that one specific strain when it's supposed to do for this other virus and the body runs, you know, amok with uh, all sorts of inflammation and bacterial infections and a whole host of issues. And I bet many of those considerations about myocarditis or death, um, or at least part of the ideology has to be the, or it wouldn't surprise me the vaccine is at least part of it and exacerbated maybe even pre-existing genetic conditions or other health conditions for whatever reason that exists within that individual. And therefore we're never going to get really accurate data on this. Unfortunately, it's really tragic, but I've, you know, I talked about this earlier about getting accurate data and the fact that, you know, the UK released their data Norman Fenton went through with many other statisticians and said, look, this, this data, the way in which you're running the statistical models is meaningless because of like, you're not essentially dealing with attributes associated with different age groups and doing relative risk assessments. That's Peter McCullough's point as well. Also Robert Malone, but Peter McCullough has really been beating that drum about relative risk assessment. So as Malone pointed out, the data is heavily sanitized and it's heavily corrupt. And then we had the VAERS reporting, which obviously it's mostly reported. It's like 65 to 75% reported by health practitioners. It takes around an hour to fill out takes an enormous amount of personal data and actually does have a small review process associated with it. So having over a million reports now and over 21,000 deaths, a million adverse reactions plus 21,000 deaths as part of that million, that's very disconcerting. And that's being underreported by, if we take the Harvard Pilgrim study, multiple of a hundred, but then there's the Columbia study recently that said it was something like at least by the factor or multiple of 20. I have to go back and look at that one, but either way, it would put the number close to about 200,000 people. If you just take the Columbia study, not the, if you take the Harvard study, you're looking at what, 2 million, something like that. But if you take the Columbia study, you're looking more at like 200,000, which is still just, and if you look at the fact that the CDC Walensky accidentally said last week that most of them died or 70, 70 or 75 years older with four plus comorbidities, and they're going to revise the death count. If they revise the death count, we're looking at maybe a third of the deaths associated with the vaccine. If you take this underreporting uh, issue in hand to be due to the vaccine alone. Now, as far as I remember it, when there's like something like five or 10 deaths associated with a drug, it gets a black box warning and anything over like 10 or 20 deaths, it's usually pulled under any consideration. Of course, they had to poo-poo effective therapeutics because we have effective therapeutics, you couldn't get the emergency use authorization. Um, So you can see this sort of narrative, although it's so much circumstantial evidence. I mean, 
when there's that much smoke, you can't help but wonder if there's a damn fire, especially when ha- when the half the uh, forest is covered completely in a canopy of uh, smog and smoke. Um, you can see and try to look for the origins here. And we even have some smoking guns associated with it. But my God, it's uh, becoming almost overwhelming at this point. Anyways, let's go back to the show card. Um, hey, real quick, okay. Tony, you, you were asking about uh, Whitney Webb talking with Corbett, I think. Perfect, yeah. So back it. in July, uh, episode 1650, she discussed uh, uh, dissecting the welcome leap in tran- into transhumanism, and then it refers back to uh, a couple months before that interview, 1619, on the a- Oxford AstraZeneca eugenics links. Awesome. Perfect. Thank you for finding. Yeah. So I was okay. So my memory served me correct there, which I, oh, perfect. And, um, thank you for bringing that up. So if people are interested and don't want to read, uh, the lengthy essay that she put out, you can go ahead or the report, you can go ahead and check out the corporate report interview. She did, um, that she goes into quite a bit of detail about Regina Dugan and the welcome trust and the welcome leap initiative. And it's really powerful. I think we might've shown some of it on GTW. I forget so many clips. Um, and it all seems to cram together, but, uh, we, I certainly had it on the show card. Let me put it that way. So we didn't get to it. It was definitely on the show card. I know we had just shown her before that. So we might've skipped her that week, but nonetheless, check it out. I think it's very important to understand the welcome trust and welcome leap initiative in regards to this whole COVID narrative. Um, I appreciate that, Maddie. Yeah. Zellical is on the COVID cloud. Okay. So the COVID collaborative national advisory board. Uh, very interesting. So COVID collaborative national advisory board. I knew Zellicow had some connection with crafting the narrative as well. So that is very, very fast. I'll have to look up that while we play another clip here. Um, and I appreciate that. And, you know, as far as why there, I'm looking at some of the comments here in the zoom, why are they pivoting now? I think we're going to get into that. We're going to get into some, at least why now some of those questions. So let's go ahead into the subsection of the main section, vaccines, lockdowns, and therapeutics. This would be uh, the subsection mandates and lockdowns. So just show you here what it looks like. That's the entire, yeah. That's just one subsection. We're not going to get to all this stuff, obviously. We're just going to get to the couple of the beginning clips. I tend to prioritize the clips I found most meaningful in the beginning of each section. So let's go ahead. And so this is what I want to do here, LD. So in this subsection here, I want you to play... Let's play the first two clips. I'm going to come back for just quick commentary, and then we're going to go to. Um, was let me see where is it? Um, I have it on here somewhere. Well, maybe not. Well, I mean, I might have to bring it up. I thought I put it in here. Anyways, the uh, Dave Collin clip. So while I find where I put that. Um, go ahead and play those first two and then we'll come back for commentary. Oh, no, it's right underneath that. Play the first two. We'll come back for commentary and then we'll play the uh, a Dave Collin clip from, I think, what is his? Computing Forever. I was right. So that's his uh, sort of moniker on various uh, platforms. Odyssey might be on BitChute and Rumble maybe as well. He's been doing a lot of work. He's been a podcaster for a long time. I think he writes articles as well as his own blog been going on i don't know if it's been like a decade but it's been many many years he's out of ireland he does a lot of good work and he asks he asks a very pertinent question as to why now why now why why this pivot all of a sudden so paul joseph watson sort of outlines what's happened 
but then we're going to go into asking the question, why now with Dave Collins? So let's play those first two, and then we'll come back and then get into uh, Dave Collins' report. Prime Minister Boris Johnson is being warned that he must ditch all rules on face masks or face an even bigger Tory rebellion. Mandatory mask rules for venues like cinemas and shops were reintroduced off the back of warnings about Omicron causing... 6,000 deaths per day. That didn't happen. It nowhere near happened because the bedwetting alarmists that advise our government are always wrong. And in fact, countries like Wales and Scotland, which introduced even stricter face mask measures, recorded higher cases. All corona restrictions brought in to fight Omicron legally end on January 26th. The government has indicated that it will scrap most of them, including COVID vaccine passports and work from home advice. But some reports suggest they could be quietly planning to keep face mask rules. Why? The government's own investigation admitted that the evidence for the efficacy of face masks stopping the spread of COVID-19 in schools is quote, not conclusive. As University of Oxford professor Jim Naismith pointed out, when England dropped its face mask rule in July, cases dropped. Scotland kept their face mask rules and cases spiked higher. Unless he chooses to completely override the democratic process, Boris needs a new vote in Parliament to keep the face mask mandates. And although he can rely on Labour's ever loyal opposition, he faces another humiliating three-figure backlash from Tory rebels. One senior Conservative MP warned that the government would be, quote, mad to pursue an extension of mask rules and predicted it would provoke a rebellion of more than 100 backbenchers. He added that keeping such rules in place would be doing the bidding of the same technocrats whose predictions on Omicron were massively inaccurate. Tory MP Bob Blackman, who sits on the 1922 committee executive, said, quote, I don't see any point in having rules that everyone is ignoring. He said that during a visit to a supermarket in his Harrow East constituency last week, half of the shoppers and none of the staff were wearing face coverings. The prevarication on mask rules is yet another indication that they're trying to keep face covering mandates in place on a rolling permanent basis, primarily as a psychological tool of population control to keep people in an anxiety ridden state of emergency. It must not be allowed to happen. Tory rebels must make it immediately clear to Boris that along with the odious vaccine passports, face masks have to go. It all has to go. Omicron is barreling its way through the world, causing frightening levels of mild symptoms and widespread natural immunity. In England, the rules are being lifted and the masks are coming off. The government will no longer mandate the wearing of face masks anywhere. The entire lockdown narrative is crumbling, as the same media that aggressively lobbied for it desperately attempt to fool people that they questioned it all along. And while it may only be the beginning of the end, the corona grift will soon be over. But like little Japanese imperial soldiers still fighting World War II after their country had surrendered, some people just refused to let it go. Taking away all restrictions suddenly, um, despite the data, is too much too soon. Right now we have so many people in hospital, so many on ventilators. The number of people on ventilators is the lowest since July. And figures from the Office for National Statistics show that total deaths in England and Wales are 7.8% below the five-year average. Such a, a high case uh, uh, load of COVID. <coughs> yeah, more than half of those cases are people in hospital with COVID 
Not from it. People won't be able to get their operations in hospital. They won't be able to get treatment for strokes, for heart disease, for cancer. No, they weren't able to get treatment in the first place because of lockdown. Remember, the same thing that you vehemently supported. Dr Hillary really doesn't have good form. So, you know, those people who haven't been vaccinated, we'd really love you to think Please. again and be vaccinated because 90% oh. of people in hospital are unvaccinated right now. With That's a really figure that we have to really concentrate on. 90% yeah. of people in hospital have not been vaccinated. Probably not a figure that we should have concentrated on. Given that it was completely wrong, the actual figure was 36%, leading to Ofcom to issue an official warning after the show received 4,000 complaints. Nice grift, though, mate. Two years solid of primetime TV appearances gonna make anyone miss that cash cow when the party inevitably comes to an end. Wait a minute, weren't you the same guy who said this about masks before you got the memo? You know, there's still very little evidence that this is very useful at all. Some people say it's actually worse because you're touching your face more often. And the quality of the mask, if the quality of the mask means that the mask quickly gets wet because it's a paper mask, it's probably worse than having no mask at all. And cloth masks, really very little benefit. Three months later... Going to make it uh, obligatory for people to wear masks on public transport makes no sense not to do that in public spaces, public areas where people can't socially distance. Who's pushing medical misinformation now? The best way to stay safe from COVID in England, don't ditch the mask. Boris Johnson's easing of restrictions is in stark contrast to what other countries are doing to control Omicron. Here's a corona case graph of those other countries, virtually all of which had stricter mask mandates than England for much longer. Yeah, the masks worked really well over there, didn't they? Hashtag wear a mask was trending on Twitter yesterday. Alarmist bedwetters devastated that they can no longer impose their pedantic hypochondria on others. Crestfallen that their noble activist crusade of harassing other people at supermarket checkouts is about to become redundant. The wear a mask hashtag is like prisoners refusing to leave the camp when the guards have quit, left the gate open and gone home. <laughs> Sorry, what? <laughs> Take the mask off, mate. Can't hear a word you're saying. Get out of my fucking face, weirdo. Wearing a face mask makes you more attractive to the opposite sex, study finds. Yeah, ugly people hiding half of their face will make them more attractive. By default, Sadiq Khan says masks will remain mandatory on the London Underground as a, quote, condition of carriage. The Underground carries about two million passengers a day. And before it became law, about half of those didn't bother wearing a mask anyway. So good luck enforcing your poncy condition of carriage. The worst thing about all these illicit Downing Street parties is that they will make COVID sceptics and anti-lockdowners feel vindicated in their suspicions that the virus was never that dangerous, or why would the people running the country all be ignoring the rules so brazenly? Right, because given how serious it was, who'd be so callous as to ignore the rules so brazenly? Who'd screech at everyone to wear a mask while not wearing one themselves? Well, this is awkward, but Piers, I accept your apology. Let's check in on friends. Mandatory mask rules since July last year, vaccine passports up the wazoo, rules so pedantic they banned drinking while standing up in cafes and bars. Result? 
464,000 new cases recorded in a single day. There hasn't been a Gallic cell phone of this proportion since the inventor of the guillotine was executed by a guillotine. Let's check in on Israel. Even more enthusiasm for mask mandates and vaccine passports than for occupying Palestinian territories. And what happened? They just broke the global daily record for corona cases. Guess they just didn't wear enough masks. Let's check in on Canada. Au vaccin, vous autres? Oui, tous les deux, on a une seule dose. Ah oui, puis est-ce que vous êtes d'accord, vous autres, avec la vaccination obligatoire? Oui. Oui? Oh. Ah oui, hein? Wow. On dirait que je les ai drillés, Julie. Oui. <rire> puis qu'est-ce qu'on devrait faire avec les gens qui veulent pas se faire vacciner? On devrait euh, appeler la police. Ouh, oui, oui. oui. S'ils n'ont pas leur vaccin, ça peut mettre beaucoup de personnes en danger. Fait comme le gouvernement est en train de faire en ce moment, il faut leur couper petite chose à petite. Jusqu'à temps qu'ils qu se tannent et qu'ils se fassent vacciner. En tout cas, vous avez, on a des futurs politiciens à côté de nous. <rire> Merci! Future politician? More like future COVID camp guard. Although send her to Australia, they'll probably make a supreme leader for life. Fact checkers say mass formation psychosis isn't happening. Despite British government behavioural scientists admitting that that's exactly what they did. Oh yeah, and those vaccine side effects? All in your head. Then we told them that most of the vaccine side effects were actually caused by the nocebo effect. <laughs> but why is anyone bothered about vaccine side effects? The media told me they were actually a good thing. <laughs> the media also tells me that morbid obesity is the future of fitness. Let's check in on the media. CNN to create team dedicated to covering misinformation. Marlborough to create team dedicated to covering health benefits of cigarettes, but some major international newspapers are apologising for their hysterical coverage and their failure to hold authorities to account. The rats are fleeing the sinking ship that is the lockdown narrative. Sky News, our daily case is now meaningless. Why do we live with flu? Is media ignoring vaccine side effects? Oh, now you're asking these questions. The only question you asked at government press briefings for the past two years is why aren't we locking down harder? And now, only as we near the end, are you asking these questions? Sky News once more, highlighting the important distinction of people who died with and from COVID. Again, where were you two fucking years ago? You don't suddenly get to pretend that you're speaking truth to power, when for the past 24 months you've been begging the power to abuse their powers even more. For the lion's share of the decade so far, you've behaved like dutiful members of the lockdown Politburo, like Nazi collaborators in France on VE Day. Me? Vichy? No. Informant? No, I was always in the French resistance. Honest. The same media class grifting off all the lockdown heartache stories to score cheap points against the Tories. Missed cancer screenings, loved ones dying alone in hospital, funerals via a live web stream, depression, alcoholism, suicide. When they all vehemently lobbied for lockdown, for harsher lockdown measures than the Tories even imposed. You don't have the moral high ground. You never did. Sit the fuck down. Look, I'm not saying this is all over just yet. The consequences of what they've already done to us will be felt for a generation or more. And Bill Gates promises there'll be more pandemics on the way soon. But boy, is it a refreshing white pill to see some of these mercenaries scuttle away with their tail between their legs. The pandemic may not be over, but the grift appears to be coming to an end, as it increasingly becomes clear we were right, and they were on the wrong side of history. His juxtaposition of contradictory evidence 
I love that. 90% of the vaccinated in the hospital. No, but it's like 36% or 34% after 4,000 complaints are sent to the network. The guy that sits there coughing, you know, talking about, no, we need to, con- need to continue these mask mandates. And then he juxtaposed that to data in other countries that have very strict um, uh, policies when it comes to mask and vaccine mandates like Israel. And yet Israel is still struggling. And we saw earlier with Luke Radowski that Israel is getting ready to just shun the fourth shot because it's doing nothing with COVID. Last week, we went over two studies, one out of Canada. I forget another one was out of South Africa or someplace in Europe. One showed negative efficacy for Omicron. The other one was like 36% efficacy after seven or eight days, which probably waned quite dramatically within another week or two. So it just goes to show you that the vaccine is not prepared for Omicron. They have these backstores of vaccines that have not been used. Even if they're going to retailer it to the genetic sequence of Omicron, Omicron that won't be available to March, according to Albert Borla, uh, at the very earliest, and they still have to get rid of these 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 backstores first. Um, sitting in these warehouses or all these individuals that refuse to get vaccinated. So it'll be interesting to see what what's going on here. Now I want to get a different perspective. We're going to go to Dave Collin from Computing Forever again. Sort of an Irish libertarian. Uh, he's been a podcaster for a long time. And he's sort of a voice, voice for not only the Irish people, but many people over in Europe in regards to globalist agendas. And I think, you know, when I first came across him, he was commenting a lot on the uh, sort of critical theory, critical race theory stuff. I don't know if he got a start there, if that's just something he was commenting on at the time. This is a couple of years ago. I know a lot of people got big audiences by sort of critiquing that theory and, you know, the fallout in society culturally. Uh, for example, Ben Shapiro, really his meteoric rise to fame had to do a lot with the, the critiquing critical race theory and the culture. Uh, Tim Poole also was heavily on that front as well as uh, uh, Stephen Crowder. And there are a number of like other alternative hosts that it really got big doing the critical race. I'm not saying he is one of those individuals. That is, that's when I first noticed him. My only issue about critiquing and debunking critical race theory is it's low-hanging fruit. It's very easy to debunk from the philosophical, psychological, and scientific sides. You know, philosophically, it's relativistic, inherently self-defeating, and violates the law of identity. You know, from the psychological side, there's so many studies that show that, unfortunately, there's a lot of trauma, physical and sexual abuse, severe uh, uh, rates of depression in transvestite communities and transgender communities, um, high rates of suicide even after gender transition or, uh, you know, and all those sorts of issues. And then when we look at, you know, something like, uh, the scientific studies, I mean, it's even more damning. You have, you know, things like, uh, John money where the guy who came up with the theory, I think it's Johns Hopkins. He just set up the gender identity clinic, if I remember correctly. And John money, what's interesting. So he based it off a botched surgery that happened amongst twins and the botched surgery. So there are two males, twins that were born, and one had a uh, botched circumcision surgery and you can, yeah, I'll leave you, leave it up to your imagination of imagine what that looked like. And he, his parents decided for whatever reason to raise him as a girl, I guess he showed inclinations towards femininity at a very early age. And they sort of just ran with it since he had a botched circumcision anyway, they figured he could get away with it. But then he, as he grew and grew into his body and went through puberty, unfortunately it came out that, uh, he was, uh, he had conflicting emotions around it because he felt more like a male. And obviously then they admitted the truth. And unfortunately both twins ended up actually committing suicide. Uh, and that's what he based his, his whole gender identity clinic on and his gender theory on, uh, John, John money did. 
And so the fact that gender dysphoria had been known about for like, my God, for almost a hundred years, it's one of the most well-known psychological issues start it mostly affected young men. I mean, when boys as young as three, four or five would immediately know that they felt as though they were women, this affected like one out of 10,000 boys. And that's like 0.0001% of the population. So, you know, not to go into diatribe about, uh, you know, this whole nonsense around critical theory, critical race theory and critical gender theory and all this sort of nonsense and this capacity, critical, or, uh, you know, gender theory. It's just interesting that, you know, 0.0001% of the population and those boys typically ended up growing up to just be, uh, identifying as gay men and had no issue with needing to feel as though they had to transition in any capacity. Um, all of a sudden it's become a major phenomena amongst young women, young adolescent women, especially white women. This comes from Abigail Schreier's research that she, there's like a meteoric rise percentage exponentially, so to speak, and a sort of like exponential growth curve in regards to women looking to identify with something. Of course, one of the more marginalized classes that don't fall in any victim group is a young female and a young white female. And so to stand out in some capacity and to identify, especially females tend to be more empathetic and conscientious by nature. They tend to identify with this emerging trend of uh, transgenderism, which is very destructive. And again, it comes a lot from Abigail Shire's research. So philosophically, psychologically, scientifically, it's very easy to debunk on many levels, obviously scientific, you have the XY male chromosomes versus the XX chromosomes. You have, you have like what the Kleinfelder, um, situation, which only affects like one in every 5,000 individuals where they're born with both genitalia. Usually one's more, more predominant and the one that's more predominant Typically you identify more with that one due to the higher estrogen or testosterone. Again, show, showcasing that it connects to a scientific issue and a contingency related to genetic uh, contingencies that can happen in nature. That's very, very rare. You don't define, you know, uh, the fact that human beings have, you know, 10 fingers and 10 toes by the fact that maybe one out of every so many thousand are born with one or two missing. For example, these are just contingencies that happen due to epigenetic uh, issues or toxicity in the womb or, you know, a whole host of problems that we're still understanding scientifically. So it's just very, in other words, I guess the point of this little diatribe, it's very easy to debunk and, uh, that whole charade. Plus it was so absurd that those who are more charismatic, uh, especially like the Crowder types and pool and even Shapiro in his own way, were able to sort of build these large audiences. You go on college campuses and sort of, you know, you see these sort of, you know, uh, Walsh recently did this. Matt Walsh, he just did this. He went on Dr. Phil this past week. And, you know, there's this guy dressed as a woman. I don't know if actually maybe it's a transgender fully, but he has a beard. And it's just very confusing because it's like you look at this and it just looks like some sort of like circus sideshow situation. And I'm sorry to say it that way, but that's it's just it's very easy to pick on and very easy to tear down. And I, they're not wrong in their critique. They're very much right. But, you know, one thing I appreciate about Dave Collins work is he sort of graduated from that. Where sometimes, as much as I appreciate Stephen Crowder's work, he still gets caught in that left-right paradigm, comments too much still on a lot of these cultural issues that, quite frankly, the biggest issue to our culture right now is the mass formation psychosis around vaccination. And I don't feel as though Crowder does some decent work, but he's been quiet on that recently. And Shapiro certainly doesn't talk about that nearly enough. And Tim Pool sort of, you know, most of the Tim Pool clips I pull for the week, he's talking more about general left-right paradigm situations, uh, uh, the mid upcoming midterms, you know, this Trump and DeSantis supposedly having an issue, which isn't real, I guess, 
you know, stuff that just doesn't really matter, but he thinks matters because it's culturally relevant. The biggest cultural issue right now has to do around the vaccines. And we're going to, the intermission is going to make that very, very obvious for individuals. And I'm going to be able to explain why I constructed the, the intermission the way I did to showcase how important the sort of narrative is around making sure that we're policing each other around mask mandates and vaccines. I was talking to a friend of mine who recently said that their family believes it's the unvaccinated are the ones perpetuating the pandemic currently so much so that she was somewhat willing to shun uh, this family member because she was unvaccinated. And uh, you can see like, this is a very pernicious lie that's being told and perpetuated by the mainstream media because you have like Rachel Maddow sitting there and, and Don Lemon sitting there talking, saying it's, you know, it's a pandemic of the unvaccinated, the unvaccinated that continue to do this, even though majority of hospitals around the world, including in certain hospitals in America, it's made up of individuals that are vaccinated. Um, especially with Omicron, specifically speaking of Omicron, but Delta was also ex escaping vaccine immunity. So anyways, my diatribes aside, let's get to this uh, Dave Collin video. This will get into more of the, a deeper dive into why now, why all of a sudden is the UK and Ireland and Scotland pivoting now and the Czech Republic for that matter. So let's go ahead with that. So we are only 21 days into 2022 and already the pandemic narrative is being wound down for some reason. Why? Why is this happening right at the beginning of 2022 and right in the middle of the Northern Hemisphere winter, which is obviously cold and flu season? Wouldn't that have been a perfect time for another scary case-demic, another variant? Doesn't the timing of this sudden shift in the agenda seem a little too suspicious to you? Boris Johnson in the UK recently announced the following. So this morning, the cabinet concluded that because of the extraordinary booster campaign, together with the way the public have responded to the Plan B measures, we can return to Plan A in England and allow Plan B regulations to expire. As a result, from the start of Thursday next week, mandatory certification will end. Organisations can, of course, choose to use the NHS COVID pass voluntarily, but we will end the compulsory use of COVID status certification in England. Yeah. From now on, the government is no longer asking people to work from home. Yeah. And people should now speak to their employers about arrangements for returning to the office. And having looked at the data carefully, the Cabinet concluded that once regulations lapse, the government will no longer mandate the wearing of face masks anywhere. <laughs> Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker, from, from tomorrow, from tomorrow we will no longer require face masks in classrooms and the Department, and the Department for Education will shortly remove national guidance uh, on their use in communal areas. In the country at large, we will continue to suggest the use of face coverings in enclosed or crowded spaces, particularly when you come into contact with people you don't normally meet, but we will trust the judgment of the British people and no longer criminalise anyone who chooses not to wear one. The government will also ease restrictions further on visits to care homes, and my right honourable friend, the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, will set out plans in the coming days. This article is from the Independent.co.uk. Czech Republic scraps vaccine mandate as daily cases hit record high. Czech PM Peter Fiala said he did not want to deepen the divides 
with mandatory COVID jabs. This article is from RTE.ie. Neffet gives green light to easing most restrictions. The National Public Health Emergency Team has given the green light to ending most COVID-19 public health restrictions. It is understood that only mask wearing, COVID passes for international travel and isolation when symptomatic are to remain in place. A letter from the Chief Medical Officer regarding Neffet's recommendations was sent to government this evening. It does not contain any timeline for the lifting of COVID-19 restrictions. This leaves it to Cabinet to decide the speed at which it will happen. The Times of Israel had this article. Finance Minister calls for cancellation of COVID vaccine green pass. Though, for whatever reason, Austria remains in a tyrannical parallel universe by comparison. Market Watch had this article. Austria becomes first country in Europe to mandate COVID-19 vaccination for all adults. Maximum potential fine for people who don't comply after a series of reminders, €3,600. Things are also pretty rough in Canada. Euronews had the following, no vaccine, no booze. Quebec introduces new restrictions for unvaccinated. The Canadian province of Quebec, which is the most affected by a surge of COVID-19 cases linked to the Omicron variant, has introduced new restrictions against unvaccinated people. From now on, liquor and cannabis stores are only accessible to people who are vaccinated against COVID-19. Health officials say they hope the order will encourage more people to get vaccinated. Well, good to know they have nothing to do with healthcare then and everything to do with coercion. But Montreal residents seem to be divided over the decision. As I've outlined in several previous videos, things remain as bad as ever in the likes of Australia, for whatever reason. The point is, there's a shift happening, at least in some parts of the world. But the question is, why? And why now? This seems way too good to be true. Well, perhaps the great pivot of 2022 is soon approaching. As the hysterical pandemic narrative slowly makes way for the hysterical climate change narrative. The World Economic Forum posted this on their Twitter on January 20th. Go back. I should have read that out loud. I'll read it out loud for those that might be listening. It's a uh, it's a promo video from the World Economic Forum, but it's just subtitles, so you have to start there, and I'll read it. The goal of 1.5 degrees is still alive, but a vital gap in achieving carbon emission ambitions remains. 2022 is a pivotal year to close this gap and deliver on the commitments made at COP26 in 2021. Driving climate innovation will be a key part of that, as will public-private cooperation for action. Half of the technologies we need to reach net zero emissions by 2050 are still under development or in the prototype phase. In order to build green supply chains, we must also make these technologies cost-effective. Innovation and significant investments are needed in this decade to reach our climate goals. The World Economic Forum Center for Climate and Nature is building critical partnerships uh, to both raise ambition and accelerate climate innovation. It pushes early demand for low-carbon goods and services through initiatives like the First Movers Coalition, a group of forward-thinking companies, companies jumpstarting the global demand for next generation. Of so there's no doubt that that'd be good. That 2022 is another big milestone year, and COVID, though still a presence and probably will still be a presence, will have to take a bit of a backseat while the next 
Hegelian crisis is manufactured. The reason much of the world appears to be divided when it comes to the COVID narrative, some countries increasing restrictions while others are loosening them, is possibly due to the sheer complexity involved in attempting to coordinate so many different governments and stakeholders at the same time. For example, vaccine uptake is fairly high in Ireland and in the UK, where restrictions are being reduced, while a place like Austria has a generally lower uptake, so the government is having to try to ramp up the intimidation and coercion and fear levels in order to achieve a certain degree of compliance. The reality is, even if everything went back to normal tomorrow, why should we trust our governments and their pure mainstream media machines that have lied to us for two years and coerced a huge amount of their populations to take a toxic substance into their bodies? Moreover, anyone celebrating this return to freedom is very foolish. Only a slave feels gratitude to their master when they are given additional freedoms and privileges again. The government has no right to give our freedoms back to us because they had no right to take them in the first place. In addition, all of the COVID emergency health regulations and laws still remain on the books to be used again whenever they wish. They haven't gone away, and not one person responsible for the untold damage that this crime against humanity has caused has been brought to book. In short, this is not a victory of any kind, because the central villains behind the COVID scam and their puppet government lackeys have not been arrested and prosecuted. The situation I fear we are entering into is merely a period of reprieve, they are stopping to basically reload and possibly feel more likely to succeed with the next phase of their agenda now that they have placed much of the population into a compliant and obedient state, but also because a huge amount of people have now been made completely dependent upon the state for an income, which will likely morph into universal basic credit before too long. We know that all of this is leading to the big milestone year of 2030, and I think we should have been highly suspicious that the alleged pandemic kicked off right at the start of the new decade. The nice round number, 2020, the 10-year starting pistol to 2030 began, and the last two years have been about forcing radical social, political and economic changes on the world. Some of these things have already been achieved. There's a lot of things they intend to throw at us, as you know. Negative interest rates, hyperinflation is on the way, the digital ID stuff, social credit and carbon scores, food and supply chain breakdowns, mass economic collapse, you name it. They have a lot of levers they can pull. But there's a percentage of the population, people like us, who are now awake and not going back to sleep. We're wise to their game. We look at the mainstream media with enormous scepticism and contempt, and we see what our governments announce, and we see the Hegelian dialectic a million miles away. We can read between the lines, decode the propaganda, and recognize when we're being told to sacrifice our freedom for more security. Moreover, we can tell something is a scam by asking the obvious questions that normies don't ask. Who benefits from this new paradigm? How does it affect my life? If the result of each new crisis is that our lives are less free and we are financially worse off, then we can safely assume it's a scam. But at the same time, I do smell the scent of desperation in all of this. This sudden pivot away from COVID right now 
at the beginning of the year, it smacks of an urgency to achieve certain things on a timetable that might be slipping away from them. Regardless, I expect the case to be made for climate lockdowns before too long. Anyway, I wanted to move on to this clip next. It was posted on the World Economic Forum website on November 12th, 2021, and it's from their Great Narrative Conference. Nari Woods said the following. The obstacle um, is ensuring that people want to come along. And that's, that's why we've got to make government work. And I don't say that just because I'm dean of a school of government. I say that because across the world, people, people don't need to love their government. But they need a government to ensure that other citizens will act in a decent way so that they too can act in a decent way. They need government to be competent and fair and non-self-enriching so that they too can be those things in their communities. And if government doesn't do that, it becomes impossible for them to trust. And without trust, you get fear and anxiety. And with fear and anxiety, people vote for people to break government, not to use it to do great things. And that's what we're seeing around the world. So to me, the biggest obstacle is we can sit, you know, at, at Davos a few years ago, you know, the Edelman survey showed us that the good news is the elite across the world trust each other more and more. So we can come together and design and do beautiful things together. The bad news is that in every single country they were polling, the majority of people trusted that elite less. So we can lead, but if people aren't following, we're not going to, to get to where we want to go. So there you go. That gives you some insight into the mindset that you're dealing with here. An elite. She literally used the word. Apparently they can meet up and do beautiful things together, i.e. make all kinds of plans about how the world will work, which affects the lives of the average person, you and me, the little people. But unfortunately for this elite group of power-hungry megalomaniacs, the proles just don't trust them. You see, there is this small group of people in this world who think of themselves as elite and they think they are above us and beyond us. They think they're superior to the average person. They think they have some unspoken, preordained right to rule. And we're supposed to simply live in this kind of neo-feudal system, simply obeying them without question and agree to live by their decrees. A rich, jet-setting, aristocratic ruling class of technocrats and oligarchs, no different to the monarchies of old, but only now dressed up with suits and ties, spewing their horseshit from the pulpit of fancy conferences where deals are done with politicians and governments to bypass the democratic will of the people and control our countries by stealth. The globalists aren't going to simply allow governments to hand back freedoms to the people unless it's part of some larger strategy that benefits them. Anyway, with regard to the sudden pivot in the narrative, I'll give you another possibility, just to throw this out there. Who knows? It's possible that a new, even more deadly scariant is on the way, and that the reopenings happening in certain places are part of a plan to introduce a giant I told you so moment later on. In other words, in the UK and Ireland, they could say that they tried to give us our freedoms back, they tried to open up and go back to normal, and look what happened. 
Everyone mingled, and suddenly there was a new mutation, a new variant emerged, and now the cases and hospitalizations are up again, thus proving we need to lock down even harder and mandate vaccines like they've done in other places. That's also a possibility. After all, not so long ago, the likes of Albert Borla of Pfizer were saying things like, COVID vaccine boosters will likely be needed every year. And in July of 2020, Klaus Schwab said the following. It's even aggravated by the, by the question um, about the vaccine itself. We don't know yet, uh, for example, is one dose sufficient? Uh, do you need two doses? In what interval? Uh, do you have even uh, to, to be vaccinated every year? Um, because the antibodies may not um, uh, sustain for a long time. So now that we are increasingly being told that restrictions, vaccine passports, vaccine mandates need to end, do we honestly believe that they've just given up on the plan to have humanity jabbed every year? Like they've just suddenly gotten over that now, they don't want to do it anymore? I think they are trying the one-step-back, two-steps-forward approach, And they'll just try again later. They're just backing off for now. Maybe when the economy has collapsed and people are hungry and therefore desperate for any solution offered, maybe they'll go towards the needle then. That could be the thinking. If they can completely transform the financial system by hyperinflating away our currencies and introducing a new digital currency, then they can place any kind of digital barrier in the way. They want to introduce the digital ID that grants you access to everything from your social media, healthcare, bank account, your travel passport. It includes a record of your individual carbon footprint, purchasing habits, your digital wallet. If access to the digital currency requires the digital ID, and the ID also requires a record of your vaccine status, then that could easily coerce more people into taking the jab, because they won't be able to get access to their money if they don't. My point is, they need to first bring more and more people to their knees and make life more difficult for them. And they've certainly wanted to trash the economic system to make way for an entirely new and more tightly controlled one. This next article is from The Defender, Children's Health Defence News and Views, dated the 7th of January 2022. International finance leaders hold war game exercise simulating global financial collapse. Should we be worried? High-level international banking officials and organisations gathered last month for a global war game exercise simulating the collapse of the global financial system. The tabletop exercise was reminiscent of Event 201, the pandemic simulation exercise that took place just before COVID-19 entered the global scene. The Collective Strength Initiative was held for 10 days beginning December 9th, 2021 at the Israeli Finance Ministry in Jerusalem. It was relocated to Jerusalem from Dubai World Expo over concerns about the Omicron variant. Israel led a 10-day country contingent that also included Treasury officials from the US, Austria, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, Switzerland, Thailand and the United Arab Emirates. Representatives from supranational organizations such as the International Monetary Fund, World Bank and Bank of International Settlements also participated. Described as a simulated war game, the exercise sought to model the response to various hypothetical large-scale cyber attacks on the global financial system, including the leaking of sensitive financial data on the dark web, 
hacks targeting the global foreign exchange system, and subsequent bank runs and market chaos fueled by fake news. However, the main theme of collective strength appears not so much the simulation of such cyber attacks, but as the name of the initiative implies, the strengthening of global cooperation in cybersecurity and the financial sector. As reported by Reuters, participants in the simulation discussed multilateral responses to a hypothetical global financial crisis. Proposed policy solutions included debt repayment grace periods, swap repo agreements, coordinated bank holidays, and coordinated delinking from major currencies. The idea of simulated delinking from major currencies raised some eyebrows because of its timing. On the same day, participants gathered to launch collective strength. Reports circulated that the Biden administration was considering removing Russia from the global electronic payment messaging system known as SWIFT, short for Society for Worldwide International Financial Telecommunication. This measure would be part of a package of economic sanctions the US would levy against Russia should it attack Ukraine. However, what may raise even more eyebrows is the list of participants in the collective strength simulation, which includes the IMF and World Bank, and indirectly the World Economic Forum. It was the World Economic Forum, along with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, which ran the simulated Event 201 in October 2019. As previously reported by The Defender, the World Economic Forum also supported the development of financial instruments such as credit and debit cards that would track personal carbon allowances on an individualised basis. An executive summary issued in November 2020 by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in collaboration with the World Economic Forum provided a rundown of just the type of scenario that was simulated as part of collective strength. The report's authors... Tim Maurer and Arthur Nelson described a world whose financial system is undergoing an unprecedented digital transformation accelerated by the coronavirus pandemic. It sure was fortuitous that the pandemic just happened to come along then, isn't it? Because, as we know, that's what happens when there's a pandemic. The global financial system just radically gets changed, right? Huh. Anyway... I'll leave the full article linked below. It's a very good article worth reading. Let me know what you guys think is going on right now. I hope I've helped to give some shape to all of this. And by the way, I'm still working on my donation system in addition to the subscribe star. Thank you very much to everybody who's supporting me there. I've included a few crypto options for those who are interested, all linked below. God bless, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Fantastic reporting by Computing Forever. It's Dave Collins' work. Just really good. I think he highlighted a lot of scenarios many are probably familiar with in this community. I agree with many of the different uh, theories he proposed. Just want to get this on the record. I like the the uh, description he, he used, excuse me, one step back, two steps forward approach. That's part of psychological warfare. That's part of uh, the Stockholm Syndrome effect where you essentially come to love your servitude by getting the fact that you sort of like humanize with the struggle that you feel as though they're undergoing as well. So they're easing the restrictions and they'll bring in even tighter restrictions down the line. This is only 2022. So it's, it's not like this is a victory in any capacity Have one small battle won, but the war is being certainly lost on every other front. I just want to get this. I talked about this a little bit earlier. 
This is Dennis M. Bushnell. This is the Jason Burmis loves to um, showcase this often in his productions, and rightfully so. He has good reason to. And so, shout out to Jason for making me aware of this, as well as Richard. Dennis M. Bushnell, Chief Scientist, NASA Langley Research Center. This comes from, I want to say, July 2021, but this is Future Strategic Issues and Future Warfare circa 2025. So let's just scroll down here. They talk, you know, they go into a bunch of different scenarios and he, he gives a whole presentation. Obviously, this is just um, some aspects of it. But did I just pass this? No. Um, let's see here. Because on one of these slides, he has a date associated. I'm sure probably should have went through this when I was looking for it. But 2020, if I remember, is the bio nanotech age. I might have already passed it here. Micro nano future warfare on the cheap, micro nanostats. That's not it. There's he actually has like a timeline set up somewhere in one of these reports or one of these slides, rather. And it looks like, of course, I didn't I'll have to go through and find the specific slide. But when I do, I think it's like right here. Oh, here, here. Earlier on, technological ages of humankind. So hunter-killer, hunter-gatherer groups, million BC to 10,000 BC. Agriculture takes hold around 10,000 BC, or about 12,000 years ago, um, to about 1800 AD. Then you have the Industrial Revolution about the 19th century into the mid-20th century. IT, information technology revolution from computing, intelligent machines, information processors, 1950 to 2020. Then he says there's a bio nanotech age, 2022 question mark. And then we enter the virtual, which we know that's on the horizon as well as the metaverse and God knows what else is coming down the pipeline. But this bio nanotech age, I mean, it corresponds oddly well with 2020. Like that year perfectly sort of exemplifies, especially with this new uh, gene therapy product that's being foisted upon the world, mandated upon individuals against their uh, bodily autonomy, against their will. Um, yeah, so it's just sort of, uh, is it a synchronicity, sort of an a-causal nature sort of winking at us being like, yep, you're sort of right on point. Is this part of a larger plan? You know, it's, uh, tough to say for sure, but nonetheless, the fact that this is spelled out from Dennis Bushnell who's the chief science strategist at the NASA Langley research center should say something about what we're dealing with now. So nonetheless, wanted to get that on the record. You also had said something that caught my attention. Um, and I want to see if I can get this here. I'm going to get rid of this here. Let's go back to this document. May 2010, everyone knows this by now. Scenarios for the future of technology and international development, the Rockefeller Foundation. So this is the title of the document, Scenarios for the Future of Technology and International Development. This is May 2010, and it was produced by the Rockefeller Foundation, the Global Business Network. Now everyone knows about this, but there's the lockstep. I think we need to revisit this little sort of scenario initiatives. So like one of the uh, sub-chapters in the chapter scenario initiatives on page 18, lockstep. So let's just go there real quick. So I think that'll be highly illuminating in regards to why they might be easing some restrictions right now. And again, I probably should have brought this up beforehand. Let me just see if I can just search in the document. There. A world of tighter top-down government control and more authoritarian leadership with limited innovation and growing citizen pushback. In 2012, the pandemic that the world had been anticipating, let me make this bigger, 
Four years finally hit, unlike 2009, H1N1, this new influenza strain originating with from wild geese. wonder if Ferrara was, in, was involved in that one. Joking aside, it was extremely virulent and deadly. Even the most pandemic-prepared nations are quickly overwhelmed. The point is, this is all future scenario. So these are sort of like what-ifs. Reminds you of what he's talking about with the uh, event 201, and I think that's what jostled my memory. It's like, why... You know, they already have this pretty well planned out. What's what are these future scenarios really about? So in 2012, they so they go over this sort of fictitious situation. Um, across the developing world, however, the story was different. Much so they talk about the issues. A lot of the things that are covered in Event 201, John Hopkins, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, are sort of covered by this. But the one thing that is really really important to understand the protests. Let's see. Yeah, this ending portion I thought was very interesting. Um, let's see, because that pretty much spells out the entire sort of life in lockstep. So they go over a bunch of different technology in lockstep. So the technology is largely driven by government and is focused on national issues, real philanthropy in lockstep. I mean, my God, it literally is just the, the playbook for Event 201 and probably the SPARS pandemic scenario as well. Let's see here. In 2026, so here's their one of their future scenarios. What could happen? In 2026, protesters in Nigeria brought down the government, fed up with the entrenched cronyism and corruption. Even those who like the greater stability and predictability of this world began to grow uncomfortable and constrained by so many tight rules and by the strictness of national boundaries. The feeling lingered that sooner or later, something would inevitably upset the neat order that the world's governments had so worked so hard to establish. Let's go a little bit before that. And uh, especially in the, let's see here, especially in the developing world, acting in one's national self-interest often meant seeking practical alliances that fit with those interests, whether it was gaining access to needed resources or banding together in order to achieve economic growth. South America and Africa, regional and sub-regional alliances became more structured, blah, blah, blah. By 2025, people seem to be growing wary of so much top-down control and letting leaders and authorities make choices for them. Wherever national interests clashed with individual interests, there was conflict. Sporadic pushback became increasingly organized and coordinated. As disaffected youth and people had their status and opportunities slip away, largely in developing countries, incited civil unrest. So they already, in other words, have an idea of what this might look like. They even go over like fake case studies of this, for God's sakes. Like here's one they present life in lockstep. Manisha gazed out on the Ganges River, mesmerized with what she saw back in 2010. When she was 12 years old, her parents had brought her to the river so that she could bathe in its holy water. I mean, give me a break. And so they, they make up these. I mean, it's just, you, you can't. These people, Rich always says this, like they're very well prepared. They have whiteboards, they have white papers, they have documents, they have planning sessions, you know, they have whole hierarchical organizations with many different layers of managers and communications departments. You know, they own much of the, uh, or they at least invite many of the, um, uh, owners of the media across the world. And, you know, they, ha they have this pretty well mapped out as far as how to go about doing this. In other words, and what's more disturbing is we get to find out later, and then we get to the intermission a bit here, you know, the Calhoun study that was funded by the uh, Rockefeller Foundation. You know, so many of these, and we talked about this earlier, with Welcome Leap, um, Farrar was a Rockefeller creation as well. And so, you know, you see Rockefeller's hand all over this. They are keenly interested in human psychology so to think they don't already have this well prepared 
they don't already have this sort of mapped out and they've game theoried the fuck out of this in regards to how to deal with the various pushback world or the, or the protests and pushback they might be getting from individuals across the world uh, is it would be foolish and naive to say the least. Um, they've certainly are, they have diligent plans scoped out about how to deal with the fact there's going to be pushback. And like I mentioned, when it comes to not only mass formation, but Stockholm syndrome, in order to get people to sort of love their servitude and ask for more of it, exactly in line with what Dave Collins said there, you ease up the restrictions every once in a while, then you bring them back double, triple what they were. And so, especially if you can create, you don't know, what's the new scary, deadly variant that emerges, which could happen. It's viruses. There's no evidence that viruses necessarily um, evolve to become less and less deadly. They just, the, the, issue, the issue usually is, is they don't really evolve in such a capacity with selective pressure. That's what the vaccine does. They cause a selective pressure to actually create the mutations as the primary viral shedding of the individuals that receive the vaccine. In other words, when you get sick with the virus, typically you just shed the, the virus itself as that, that variant of the virus as it is. You don't shed the mutations, the four or so mutations associated with it when it replicates itself. When you get vaccinated, it can put selective pressure to shed just the mutations. And so you could get one that's much more virulent or not. You could also just get another lab release situation, or you could get God knows something. There's a whole host of different things they could, they could do right now. I think one of the big pivots is the climate crisis. And, you know, let's not forget about this here. You know, new visa future card is good for your wallet and good for the planet. First card to 5% cash back for climate smart spending. American express, I think has their, is it, I think their black card or something like that talks about essentially rewarding shoppers for spending less. And so instead of getting points for spending more, you're spending less. So Dave Collins also very much on point with this sort of global tyrannical credit system they're trying to set up. It, it all ties to the vaccine passport. It all ties. First, you get vaccinated. Then you get a passport. That passport will be probably ultimately used for blockchain technology. They crash uh, uh, the world currencies and uh, bring in their own version of uh, a digital credit system and their own digital currency that you can only participate with if you've gotten the boop boop or the jabby jab. And uh, that's certainly, certainly sort of the, I think the scenario to which they're taking us, what's even more disturbing amongst all of that. Well, I think I've sort of covered that now. We'll get into that a little bit later. We're going to talk about more about how that, how, how those plans all fit together, but there is this idea in the culture that this is already being planted in the culture, predictive programming, we call it. If people aren't familiar, check out the show, uh, Mr. Robot. You know, I think it was, uh, yeah, USA Today, or not USA Today, really. It's on the USA Network, um, I think. Anyways, uh, I think it was produced by them. I'll have to look at who produced it. But anyways, it was award-winning, and I think it had five seasons. And just look at what happens. Look at how they're able to sort of culture and also obviously there's um i forget what was this year was it called utopia or something there is the british version and the american version both of which are presenting very heavy amounts of predictive programming sort of getting these ideas getting these concepts into the subconscious of mankind so when they actually permeate and manifest themselves permeate through the culture and then manifest themselves um, through top-down policies prescripted by set authorities will already be somewhat conditioned to accept that that was already a possibility. It's a super, super subtle, super subconscious way of manipulating human psychology. And shows like Mr. Robot and um, 
other and i think that show again utopia i think that's what it was called but there's a british version american version uh that you know do a good job of this and we've talked about predictive programming in the past i'm not going to belabor that point but it's just important to recognize that they're they're well ahead of that curve so we need to make sure that we're aware uh when this stuff happens start building this parallel societies and finding various mitigation strategies to deal with the sort of mass formation that's going to continue to take place remember matthias desmond says that you have to you have to just go through it it's almost impossible to stop it which is a very harrowing proclamation to make if you think about it anyways without the fact that it's almost two in the morning, I want to get to the intermission. So we have a couple more clips I want to play here in this section, then we'll get to intermission. Um, let's play on the vaccine and vaccines injury section. Let's just play this Kim Iverson clip. Just play the first six minutes or so. I'll tell you when to stop it. It's the third one down in there and I'll color it for you so you can see. There we go. And let's, uh, when he gets set up, we'll go to Kim Iverson, fend for yourself. And she talks about the crime against humanity of the shifting narrative of the CDC and the duplicitous and flip-flop nature, contradictory nature of the CDC and the NIH and NIAD and specifically Anthony Fauci. So without further ado, let's go to Kim Iverson. Kim, your radar, what's on it? Well, since SCOTUS blocked Biden's OSHA vaccine mandate, many companies are scrambling to decide on whether or not to go forward with the mandate anyway. It's a classic damned if you do, damned if you don't scenario. No matter what a company decides, they're bound to upset a number of their employees and even customers. Starbucks and Carhartt, two corporations that made two different decisions, are examples of the blowback companies are now experiencing. Surprisingly, liberal Seattle, Washington-based Starbucks announced this past Tuesday that in light of the SCOTUS block, the company will no longer be requiring its employees to either be vaccinated or subject to regular testing. Immediately, the hashtag boycott Starbucks began trending on Twitter. Saints fan 5348 says, I've been a gold star member of the Starbucks rewards program for at least 10 years. I will not buy another item from your company until you reinstate the vaccine mandates. You're jeopardizing the health of your customers. Boycott Starbucks. DYO Research says, I'm so proud of Starbucks for caving to freedom-loving anti-vaxxers by suspending COVID vaccine and test requirements for employees making your coffee. I will take one grande Omicron Frappuccino with no shot and a twist of ivermectin, please. Hashtag boycott Starbucks. Uh, but not everyone was against their decision. Strongbags116 says, why would I boycott Starbucks? Seems like a reason to go through the line twice a day to me. No one should be forced to take the vaccine. I like it. Now, Carhartt, the company that makes rugged, heavy-duty working clothes popular with construction workers, miners, farmers, hunters, and outdoorsmen, went in the opposite direction this week. They, an they announced that they will be keeping the vaccine mandate for its employees. And just as you may have guessed, the Twitter hashtag Boycott Carhartt was born with people both condemning and cheering the decision. Now, this damned-if-you-do, damned-if-you-don't reaction from the employees and the public has caused companies to, believe it or not, wish for more regulation from the government. Companies are desperately wanting a scapegoat, and nothing is better than the law. In fact, this was one of the reasons Biden implemented the federal mandate to give companies a law to point to in order to keep the heat off their backs. But not every law is in favor of mandating vaccines. Some states have banned mandates. Montana and Tennessee have banned private employers from mandating vaccines for its employees. Other states have allowed mandates but have required companies to allow for exemptions. For example, Texas allows mandates but requires 
requires companies to not only allow for medical and religious exemptions, but also requires companies to accept exemptions for prior infection and personal conscientious objection as well. So pretty much anyone who doesn't want a vaccine can find a reason for an exemption. In Florida, a company can implement a mandate, but must allow for medical and religious exemptions, as well as exemptions for prior infection. Otherwise, they must allow a person the option of either regular testing or PPE gear usage. Now, mandating with heavy allowances for exemptions seems to be a road many companies are quietly taking to avoid backlash while also not upsetting their employees. It's anecdotal, but people are reporting having easily been able to obtain religious and medical exemptions without really having to provide any real proof. A simple note to HR stating they religiously object seems to be enough for some companies. Now, lastly, I'd like to point out that some countries went in the opposite direction and have called for the public and companies to not discriminate against the unvaccinated. For example, in Japan, the prime minister's website reads, vaccines will never be administered without the recipient's consent. We urge the public never to coerce vaccinations at the workplace or upon others around them and never to treat those who have not received the vaccine in a discriminatory manner. So it's really interesting, um, Ryan and Robbie, I'm just kind of curious your take on this of, of uh, you know, now that the OSHA out. mandate has been blocked by the Supreme Court at this Interesting about Jap the Japanese prime minister, they signed a contract with Moderna, had millions of uh, contaminated doses and had serious issues with uh, the contamination. There's speculation that they are utilizing a very different type of protocol in their hospitals, something akin to possibly using ivermectin. Another health minister came out and said that he supports ivermectin and other types of therapeutics of such nature. Um, such as hydroxychloroquine, so forth and so on, and monoclonal antibodies, most likely. And Japan, the fact that they are stating from uh, the prime minister's office that, hey, don't discriminate based on this, very interesting, possibly because I think of some of the fallout they've had to deal with with the contaminated vaccination. It's also just a very insular culture to begin with. So I don't know how immune they are from what's going on with the rest of the world, but certainly they're an interesting case study as well as Utah Pradesh and going a bit of a different direction. Now still granted there, I'm sure vaccination rates are somewhat fair. I mean, I'm speculating. I'd have to look at the numbers, but are decently high in Japan, I'm sure. But at the same time, they also have a different protocol. I think they're utilizing to deal with the virus and they have no continuing, continuing lockdowns. And I'm not sure about the mask mandates, but I think people have been back to work and life has been sort of going on as normal for most people in Japan. So kudos to them. And hopefully they can uh, get back to making some good anime. Anyways, uh, that was actually not the clip I wanted to showcase from Kim Iverson, but she raises some good points. There's another one where she is very impassioned um, and incensed. That's a good word, incensed about what was going on with Fauci and the CDC. This one kind of combined two headlines together. Uh, I kind of wanted to play both. It's not important uh, because of timing issues, but she does raise a good point. And it's a very scary point that these companies, these big companies actually just want the legislation so they have a scapegoat. That's really concerning because are they just going to then demand later on? Are they going to support politicians later on that are going to legislate mandatory vaccines so they don't have to deal with the fallout of this divide, div divided and conquered uh, populace in America and in the West in general? Uh, that is very much polarized and essentially getting ready to attack one another, which is exactly what the world elite want. They don't want us looking at them. They want us attacking and fighting each other also from a polarized and sort of tribalized narrative that has developed um, that is idealistically driven on both sides has become very pernicious. Um, 
that what what's missing in all this is the individual's right to choose. That's all we're asking for. The, the vaccine doesn't stop transmission. We just want the individual's right to choose. And just if you get the vaccine, as Ayn Rand pointed out back in the 50s, then you should be immune. And if you're not immune, it should at least lessen the symptoms. You should be good to go. You shouldn't be forcing someone else to take something against their will, especially in the absence of any good testing protocols, which we know how poor the testing protocols have been. They've been downright uh, disturbingly bad. Um, the PCR with the high cycle threshold, the antigen tests are wildly inefficient and also inaccurate. And so the various, and those are like the, the blood samples, the serum samples, uh, the, the antigen test ones and the PCR that's, you know, a whole, a whole, we went over that ad nauseum. I don't need to go into detail. So with this, uh, Lots of. I have that other clip up. Sorry about that. I. Uh, oh yeah, go. I assume if, if you want to jump, play some of that. Oh uh, yeah, let's or... play. Let's just play that. It's only like five minutes. We'll just play the part. We won't have to listen to, Robbie or Grimm's analysis on it. We'll just hear her, sort of exposition on it, and then we'll 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 pause it after that. So yeah, go for it. Kim, what's on your radar? Well, I'm angry. I'm not going to lie. I'm really, really angry right now. So I'm just going to do a little rant to get this off my chest. Right now, everywhere we look, people have COVID. Vaccinated or not, everyone seems to be catching the virus with a whopping 800,000 new cases per day. Because Omicron is spreading like wildfire throughout the country, indiscriminately infecting anyone it comes into contact with, some serious, serious failings by our public health officials, the CDC, Fauci, our politicians, and the mainstream media are becoming glaringly obvious, to the point where I think their failings rise to the level of crimes against humanity. The scientists and health experts, the people responsible for guiding us safely and scientifically through this pandemic, have been hyper-focused on vaccines. They raced towards a vax, told us to hunker down and wait for the vax. When it became available, they told us to get the vax. Then all the discussion centered around the awful people who refused the vax. So then they mandated the vax. And throughout this entire time, which is now at two years in, they've never focused on, and often, which is why it rises to the level of a crime, even shut down discussion surrounding the well-known scientific principle of natural immunity. They shut down and even demonized any discussion of potential early treatments, and they failed to give us good instructions on what to do when our loved ones or we ourselves catch COVID. They flat out refused to focus on any of this. They instead swore if we all got the vaccine, the pandemic would end. Well, it didn't end. Everyone is catching COVID. People who got double vax and triple vax and wore double masks and kept their kids out of school and gave up Christmas with family and even worse gave up being with their loved ones by their side as they breathed their last breaths because they weren't allowed to be next to them are catching COVID. Everyone is catching COVID. And as people are catching it, they're starting to realize they have no tools left in their toolkit. Somebody tell me, what are you supposed to do when you catch COVID? Seriously, can you answer that question? Besides quarantining yourself and wishing you were vaccinated more than you already are, what are you supposed to do? Do you isolate yourself away from your family and fight the virus alone while hoping and praying you don't need to go to the hospital? Because that's what they've left us with. Why don't we know more about natural immunity and how long it lasts? With so many people getting sick, wouldn't it be helpful to know whether or not people who have already recovered can take on the task of caring for their loved ones who are now ill? The Israelis came out with an enormous study showing natural immunity afforded 13 times more protection against reinfection than vaccination. But quickly, the CDC released its own highly flawed study claiming the opposite, that previously infected people were more likely to catch the virus than those vaccinated. Now, wouldn't it be nice to know which study is right? Wouldn't it be nice to know how long natural immunity lasts? Wouldn't it be nice to know if you do get reinfected, whether or not the disease is more or less severe? Signs point towards previous infection being protected 
protective to some degree in the least lessening symptoms when reinfected. And what about the natural immunity younger people seem to have? We've known throughout the pandemic that young people often have very mild illness when infected. But again, the mere mention that they maybe should be less afraid of catching the virus was met with fierce resistance. So here we are now, we have people sick and yet young and old and previously infected alike are all equally scared. And now people who are sick in bed with COVID who can't get themselves water or Tylenol or food to eat are reliant on the brave in their families to care for them if they're lucky enough to have someone brave at all. COVID can often be so debilitating, people can't get themselves out of bed for even the most basic of needs. Frightened people who otherwise maybe wouldn't need to be frightened because they're younger or previously infected are hiding away and leaving food on doorsteps for loved ones, expecting them to crawl out of bed and care for themselves. And often people don't get the care they need until they've gotten so bad they need hospitalization. Why don't we have more info on who is perhaps safest to care for others in the family? If you can't get water to stay hydrated, Tylenol to get your temperature down, someone to run a humidifier or to get you food, how can you successfully find off a virus. I suspect many people didn't get the early care they needed because people were too frightened to be around them and they wound up in the hospital or even worse. And speaking of early treatment, again, no honest discussion or research has been earnestly put into trying to determine what could give a person a better fighting chance. Many early treatments that maybe weren't 100% effective, but reduced severe outcomes by 30% or 40% or 50%, which is better than nothing, were demonized as conspiracy theories before anyone put any real effort into studying them. I can guarantee you right now that anyone sick in bed with COVID will take a treatment that gives them even a 10% better chance of reducing symptoms than nothing at all. But that's pretty much what we've been left with. Nothing at all. Even monoclonal antibodies, a treatment that seemed to work, has been suppressed in the vaccine or bust movement. Yeah, here we are. People are fully vaccinated, even boosted, sick in bed, scared. And the best weapon our public health officials have given them against COVID is what? NyQuil? I say this as someone who, for the past two or three weeks, has been surrounded by and caring for people with COVID. Some vaccinated, some boosted, some unvaccinated. It doesn't matter. People are getting sick. I have been taking temperatures, checking oxygen, running humidifiers, and researching online what am I supposed to do, but the information is scarce. No one is giving us any idea of what we're supposed to do besides the frontline COVID-19 critical care alliance. And guess what? They're, of course, demonized. We're left waiting once again for another big pharma Pfizer solution, the early treatment pill, which does no one any good right now because we're waiting for it. This is what they've left us with. Millions of people are getting sick right now with no real idea of what to do except get your four tests from Biden and hope they come back negative. This lack of basic research and information on who is safest in our families to care for others, what treatment to give them when they're sick, and how to care for them to give them the best fighting chance is, in my book, a crime. These are health officials. They're scientists. They're doctors. They shouldn't be telling us to just hunker down and hope we never catch it. We need more information. They haven't given it to us. And worse, they've demonized any discussion of it. Now, I want to give you guys some examples that people have emailed into me. Uh, you know, I myself, I'm currently in quarantine right now caring for somebody positive with COVID. I've had COVID back in March of 2020. That was a long time ago. I suspect any minute now I'm going to test positive for the virus. I keep checking every single day I test, thinking today's the day I'm going to get COVID again. I haven't yet, um, but I will say that I've had people email in stories to me. A woman said that her 69-year-old uh, woman, uh, her aunt lives with her 40-year-old daughter. When the 69-year-old woman caught COVID, her 40-year-old daughter wouldn't let her back in the house because she was too afraid. Another one, a 68-year-old woman, 
Luckily, the family was smart. When she got COVID, they hid the father away who has cancer. But the adult hypertensive son took care of his mother while his sister, who had previously been infected, stayed away. And home care workers are reporting that they're showing up for their check-ins to find food left uh, left on doorsteps. Go inside and they find the person in fetal position, unable to get out of bed, to care for themselves, to get water or Tylenol, let alone go pick up the food off the front steps. And if you're somebody who needs a home care worker, you're older. So this whole thing, you know, we don't know what to do. And now everybody's getting COVID. And, you know, people are hiding away. And I can tell you as somebody who's been caring for somebody in their 70s with COVID for three days, it was scary because they were really sick. And I, I couldn't imagine what would have happened had they been left alone. I just think they would have ended up in the hospital because if you can't get water, you can't fight a, fight a virus. You know, it's that simple. But here we are. I, what, have, what have they left us with? What are you supposed to do when you catch COVID? Does anybody know? You can pause it and pull it here. That wasn't my hot mic, as as noted before. How was it? Oh, okay. I thought it was Robbie no. Suave. No, 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 no. Suave. That was Robbie or Ryan. I'm not sure who. That was Robbie, right? Yeah. That was Robbie. That was not yours. Right? Where am I? Not, not my hot, hot mic. Sorry to distract. Yeah, not yours. Oh, no, you're good. You're good. I thought it wasn't yours. That's always Robbie. You can always, we've had, we've showed the hill enough times now that you can always see, especially when Kim's doing her reports, you always hear her come on like towards the end, always after that third check mark all of a sudden. They need to fix that. You think with the money they'd have that they uh, can invest in some better mixing equipment, but, uh, you know, here we're doing it live and we're doing it well, I think. Anyways, there's a reason, Kim. Spelled out in this book. There's a plan. Fauci's done this before. Through Anthony Fauci, Bill Gates, Big Pharma, and the Global War on Democracy and Public Health. And it's really just a book presenting evidence, this case study after case study, just evidence after evidence of Fauci's involvement in AIDS, which is really sort of the early game plan for what he's now doing during this pandemic. Um, Let's think about the NIH protocol. Go home until you get really sick. Come in. We'll give you remdesivir, maybe some prednisone, steroid, and uh, you know we'll put you uh, give you some oxygen until your oxygen gets too low, and we'll give you intubation until you die. And remdesivir obviously is it has a horrible toxicology profile associated with it, causes renal failure and a whole host of other uh, toxic effects on the liver and the kidneys and so forth and so on. It's just absolutely horrendous. It was pulled in the Ebola trials. Um, early on because of how toxic it was. Now they're using a dosage that isn't quite as heavy probably as it was in their bullet trials, but nonetheless, it's extremely ineffective. It's, uh, it's also extremely costly. And of course, Fauci has a financial connection to it. And Fauci's finances went over last week, what somehow he's made over $10 million. It's doing all right. It's doing all right. And he has the largest pension of any federal government employee, not to, not to mention the largest salary as well. So after he retires, now he's 80 years old. My cat's doing something bad there. He's going to be making plenty of money regardless anyways. But this goes into ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, I have a bunch of stuff highlighted. I mean, it goes over the whole game plan, um, especially talking about what he did early on in this pandemic. And then it revert sort of goes back and looks in hindsight what he did in during the AIDS pandemic. And it's just, again, as RFK noted, it's not written like a novel or a story that would have taken, you know, this is nearly 500 pages. If I remember correctly, it's like 400 something. It would have taken, he said, close to a thousand pages to write it that way. It's just very sort of matter of fact, because they just didn't have the, uh, 
the space to cover all of the information. It's split up into various sections. And at the end of each section, he has the whole uh, sort of bibliography and all the citations. And it's like, so the citations, there's so many at the end of each section. Here's an example, how tiny that is. Let me see if I can get a better, all of that. That's just at the end of the first section, I think. And that's like one page of multiple pages of citations. Of course, all the footnotes are inside the text as well. I mean, it's just over and over again. And Kim, maybe if you paid attention to people like Zelenko or Bartlett, or Pierre Corey, which he, she mentioned she was aware of, um, as well as many others, Peter McCullough, who's the first one to write about early treatments. Of course, I know it's difficult to sometimes get these, but talking that we don't have any studies, well, let's, let's look at this. We have this database, this website set up, talks about all the various studies that are available. Kazarimavab, there's the monoclonal antibodies. We have ivermectin. We've gone over this so many times, I'm not going to do a huge provodone iodine. Vitamin D, which actually is much better than what is shown here. Um, Brett Weinstein and uh, Heather Hang did a brilliant interview with two researchers that go over the implications of high dose vitamin D and it is staggering and also sort of the suppression of that one, but here just ivermectin 76 studies from 718 scientists, 60,000 patients in 26 countries, 80, 76, 66% improvement for early treatment, 32 randomized controlled trials. So we do have some evidence. Is it perfect? No, but to her point, you don't need perfection. You just need something that can possibly help. When my dad got sick, I was the one and I'm COVID naive, meaning I had not been uh, exposed to COVID before, I knew I was walking into a veritable uh, virus shedding factory. Uh, my parents were both sick. My dad got it pretty bad. And this was recently, as people know. And I took a prophylactic dose of ivermectin and uh, vi various vitamins, minerals, and nutraceuticals. I walked in and just being exposed in a short contained environment um, or small contained environment, heavily insulated environment, I was exposed to quite a bit of it. And two days later, I got really sick. And I took, this is what I did personally. I don't recommend this. Do your own research necessarily for yourself. I don't recommend it. I can't recommend it, but this is just what I did for myself. I am not a doctor. Um, I took high doses of ivermectin, even more so than what the FLCCC recommended. Also took extremely, extremely high doses of things like NAC and zinc and quercetin. Quercetin acts like the sort of a cellular ionophore, zinc ionophore, allows zinc inside the cell, stops viral replication, high doses of vitamin D vitamin C, liposomal, a whole host of, I threw the kitchen sink at it of what I had available, provodone iodine, and also, you know, uh, various nasal sprays, uh, antibacterial, just to clear out sort of the viral replication. And uh, the first day and a half were pretty bad. After that, the fever broke and I, you know, just had some lingering symptoms. One of the strangest symptoms I had was the change in taste, especially of vinegar. It somehow all of a sudden started smelling and tasting like a mixture of ammonia and uh, isopropyl alcohol. It was the strange, it went away, but it was one of the strangest features I'd ever experienced from it. it the only way I can describe what it was like, it was like a flu, but it wasn't a flu. It was like some sort of synthetic flu. That's the only way I can describe it comes in waves. I've never had a flu come in waves for one second you, or for, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes, an hour, you feel better. It's like getting, it's breaking and all of a sudden it comes back. It's one of the very strangest diseases I've had. And my dad got hit pretty hard. And luckily I had ivermectin ready to go and other treatments. And his doctor, luckily, instead of, instead of recommending a booster, which he didn't, he said, you, uh, utilize the FLCCC and Pierre Corey. He's had the same family doctor for, you know, decades now he's like in his seventies and 
he actually promoted the FLCCC and it worked to great effect. Yeah, my dad was getting hit pretty badly by it. And the ivermectin and overnight alongside ZPAC, we did even a higher dose of all the various kitchen sink treatments and uh, his fever broke overnight, uh, which he was very grateful for. And we sort of just had uh, lingering symptoms that he was able to get over. Now I helped consult uh, sort of a friend of ours uh, Richard and Lisa and myself and many others that participate in this community um, and his autonomy community, his course he teaches, I helped consult uh, an individual whose wife got hit very, very hard by this. And it happened over New Year's. And they unfortunately didn't have the early treatments ready to go. And she got hit to the point where low oxygen, extremely high fever, you know, COVID-induced pneumonia was forming. And by miracle, although they didn't have ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine early on, and they waited a week and it took too long, they did get, they were able to get things such as, um, um, budesonide and z which I think was the real great miracle. Cause when she hit those, that stage, I said, well, you got to have some sort of anti-inflammatory steroid to lower the inflammation. And then you're going to need some sort of something to deal with the bacterial infection. And those two things over time sort of slowly got her back on the right track. And, you know, then we controlled the fever with Tylenol and things like that, which normally I'm against, but the fever was so high for so long, it actually caused neurological issues. So, um, I've seen firsthand and witnessed firsthand how severe it can be for some people and notice and knowing myself, how very, how weird it was of an experience. And I normally never get sick. Um, I'm, I practice a healthy living, healthy lifestyle. I've been a fan of sort of like the Western a pro- price sort of tradition or approach to diet and health. I know there's a lot of different diets, but just sourcing healthy food from local family farms, grass-fed meats and, you know, organic vegetables and stuff like spending my money, uh, on my food, which I, instead of spending my money on the pharmacy sort of thing. And, uh, although I don't support the Western Price's sort of current mission and what they're supporting in regards to the theories, I do appreciate at least his work and the early work of Mary Enig and Sally Fallon before her sort of recent transition and talking about the importance of things like healthy animal fats and healthy protein and, you know, uh, vegetables and, you know, staying away from refined sugars or refined carbohydrates and things of that nature. But nonetheless, I, you know, got my weight under control workout. I don't really, I don't get sick often, but the fact that I got nailed fairly intensely for at least a day and a half, you know, sort of made me realize that, okay, so there's, there's something going on here and seeing my dad's condition then later having to deal with uh, this family friend of ours, um, you know, was very harrowing. And I'm very glad to report that she got better. And they, because of the therapeutics, they also were eventually able to get ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and utilize also the nutraceuticals. Now, again, I don't recommend this to anyone. You're going to have to do your own research. This is just what I did for myself and what I recommended to a, a personal friend um, who is willing to trust my judgment. But again, I am not a doctor and I cannot give you any medical advice. You're going to have to do your own research. But one of the things I did utilize for myself is in fact, uh, looking at the FLCCC based on our family physician's recommendation, which I was greatly thankful for that he recommended against the booster, knowing how uh, potentially serious the side effects um, that were emerging from it and uh, willing to be brave enough and courageous enough to consider another option. So in other words, in response to Kim, there are a lot of options out there, but unfortunately, as my dad pointed out to me, much like what happened in Soviet Russia, you have to go outside the auspices of the government. You have to go outside the recommendations of government, and you're going to have to almost work within a sort of pseudo black market environment in order to get the necessary therapeutics and the necessary protocols you know, FLCCC puts these two protocols online 
in order to, you know, actually deal with the, the virus and deal with the sickness it causes that we call COVID-19. In other words, we're not going to be, we can't trust the health authorities. We can't trust the hospital uh, administrators or departments within them. And um, it's just, it's criminal. I, uh, on the show card, I have, you know, under, I think it's under vaccine and vaccine injuries. Maybe it's under therapeutics, but there's, you know, let me see if I can find this here. After 28 days on ventilator, family loses legal battle to try ivermectin, other alternative treatments. Nothing's worked. So here's the Epoch Times. After 28 days on ventilator, family loses legal battle to try ivermectin. This was a legal battle they lost in Florida, by the way, which is one of the freer states in our nation right now. Yet the, the question is why? Why not just try? Why not just like the, the man has a very little chance of surviving at this point, less than 5%. I read through this article and if I remember correctly, it was less than 5%. Oops. Oh, well, somewhere in there, but it was, uh, or maybe been the other one I had on there. There's a couple of these. He had a very low chance of living. He's been on a ventilator for 28 days. We've had other news stories I've covered where they've families have won court battles, used ivermectin and the person recovers overnight. Obviously, for whatever reason, we don't know why it doesn't work for everyone. There are some people, it just is that's why it's 66%, 65%. The 35%, it could be genetic, it could be other issues that we don't know about, but that they don't seem to respond to ivermectin. But there are other potential therapies, super high dose vitamin D and acetylcysteine shows a 20% reduction in clinical trials, by the way. 20% reduction in the worst case outcomes that acts as an expector and the virus gets caught in the mucus and you cough up the virus. Um, so, I mean, why not throw the kitchen sink at it? Even for people who have been vaccinated. Um, my, my, both my parents were double vaccinated. Obviously I am not vaccinated, but my parents were. Um, and I was just happy to get through to them, not to get the booster, but you know, both of them were the ones that got sick and spread it on to everyone else. And so it's just, it's criminal. But then again, what we found out, obviously people know this huge kickbacks for getting people on ventilators, for using remdesivir, also for people dying in the hospital setting and people respond to incentives, especially at a time when the hospitals are reeling from the fact they can't do like outpatient surgery where they make a lot of their money and other treatments of such nature. So they need to make money some way. And so the government again is prescripting prescribing rather how the way in which they can make money by prescribing the type of treatments they can utilize in the fight against COVID-19. As Peter McCullough mentioned, it would have been much better off having a trauma surgeon uh, guide sort of early treatment protocol and policy at the start of this pandemic than Fauci and Collins and you know these characters and Deborah Burks and all of these uh, characters that seem to be perfectly positioned and ready to go with a narrative of Discounting early therapeutics, you know about the retracted studies of hydroxychloroquine. The, the one, in fact, or a couple, I think, used toxic doses of hydroxychloroquine. It was the one, I think, at the Virginia Hospital for Veterans um, that was later retracted. And again, hydroxychloroquine, we know, only works really early on. Ivermectin works seemingly at all stages for various reasons. It's just criminal. I mean, it's obviously it's a larger playbook. As Rich pointed out during the interview with Peter McCullough, and so many other people have noticed this too, just like Joe Rogan mentioned tonight from the Samuel Rivera clip we played earlier. There seems to have been a narrative, and, and I'm going to quote Rich. You know, they 
do whatever they can to take down early therapeutics. And they seem to be marching in lockstep for one single solution for everyone, that being the vaccine, using a new technology we had never used before. We still have no idea what the long-term implications of these are going to be. And we know the data is, like I mentioned, going to be heavily sanitized. It's going to be hard to find accurate data. What we do know is that their correlation may not equal causation, but the fact that there's a correlation with an extreme rise, the exact same time that we have a vaccine rollout, we have a heavy correlation with a 40% rise, which is astronomical and unprecedented, and 18 to 49-year-olds dying. And that's, state, that's states that are exploring that. The, the, the insurance company was 18 to 64-year-olds. Crazy. And that should that pattern should be studied by epidemiologists to see, well, is there something there? Like what's causing this? Is there something that could be part of the ideology? In other words, the vaccine? But we'll most likely never know. Now, Chris Martinson covers this and you know, deaths in New Zealand, really good. We can't get into it. It's gonna to take too long. We need to get to the intermission. Really good segment worth checking out. He goes over um, how the vaccine seems to be related to many of the deaths in New Zealand. Um, Christy Lee did a great interview with Dr. Tess Lowry about the same thing that Kim Iverson just mentioned about what do you do when someone catches COVID? Uh, and let's see here. We have, oh, the VAERS data. Let's just go over this real quick and then we'll jump to the one more. We're going to jump to one or two more clips and then we're going to intermission. So LD, if any point we need to, I hope you're in for a long night. Um, the, uh, let me know if it's good. Okay, good. So let's do this one here. We're just, it's a three minute video. It's his own short breaking down the bears. And then we're going to expedite getting to the intermission. Cause we definitely have to get to that tonight. So, and while he brings that up, I will just, so I only have after this, we're going to do one small clip from Brett and Heather. And then I just want to do one Jimmy door clip about this 270 scientists, and then we'll jump to intermission. So. Total number of deaths associated with the COVID-19 vaccines is more than double the number of deaths associated with all other vaccines combined since the year 1990. Oh, did you have over under from the time period of December 17th to January 7th? Did you have over or under 1,000 deaths from the COVID-19 vaccine? Over or under? Oh, you had over? You would be the winner. 1,123 deaths from the COVID-19 vaccine. That's according to the VAERS reports, which Rochelle Walensky says is actually just measuring car accidents. Ah, I see. Thank you for that, CDC. A tingle there, a bit of a tingle there when I saw these splits. But these are not, the. maybe, I, <laughs> let's not talk about that. Let's not talk about gambling here. These are not odds. Over-under. I mean, you could do over-unders. Is the next VAERS report going to have over-under 50,000 adverse reactions in the last month? We could run a pool on that. So, okay, if, if you had over, if you had over 50,000 adverse reactions from COVID since December 17th, you win your bet. 50,236. Adverse reactions from December 17th to January 7th, 50,000 plus. And so, uh, I'm sorry, what was that? The crew was in my ear. Oh, 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 I, I didn't see that. 
my crew points out, they say, oh, and why don't you read the fine print down here from the official VAERS weekly summary? Oh, oh, let me do that. Is that what you're talking about right here? Oh, my goodness. This is, this is the official VAERS fine print. Look, look at this. Guys, dot cam this. Note that the total number of deaths associated with the COVID-19 vaccines is more than double the number of deaths associated with all other vaccines combined since the year 1990. How many times have I been saying this on air? So I remember as a kid watching Mark McGuire hit 70 home runs in the summer of 1998. I'll never forget it. Mark McGuire, 70 home runs. That'd be like if the next great player to can't come around, let's say Muscles McPhee, MLB baseball player, hit 700 home runs in one season. 700 home runs for Muscles McPhee. That'd be that, that, that's what you're getting with these COVID numbers, except it's people dying from the vaccine. So did you have, did you, that would have been number 60 right there. I'm telling you, I remember them all. That was number 60. That's number 61. But now you're just, now you're just distracting me. Oh, did you have over under from the time period of December 17th to January 7th, did you have over or under 1,000 deaths from the COVID-19 vaccine, over or under? Oh, you had over? You would be the winner. 1,123 deaths from the COVID-19 vaccine. That's according to the VAERS reports, which Rochelle Walensky says is actually just measuring car accidents. Ah, I see. Thank you for that, CDC. <laughs> measuring car accidents. It's funny because... Uh, Christy Lee did a deep dive into that. And it was after I think the woman received her booster that she was driving home and all of a sudden started, uh, suffered a sudden cardiac arrest. In other words, a heart attack, crashed her vehicle and died. And so that's why it made its way into the VAERS report because it definitely could be part of the ideology or the cause and effect, the origin of the cause and effect of why she had a cardiac arrest. And that's why she called, crashed her car. It's one of many different instances in the VAERS reports that they are excerpt lifting out of context. That is the CDC. It's another fallacy called excerpt lifting. They take it a passage out of context. And in doing so, they're able to present it as though it's absurd and fallacious when in fact, no, it's not. And it actually is causative or potentially causative. Anyways, um, let's go now to, let's get to uh, this therapeutics. I just want to play. Let's, so let's play the first, let's play the first one in the section here. It's just like a local news report, I think out of Denver, um, talking about the fact that the CDC is actually now admitting that natural immunity, at least under certain contexts, is uh, better than vaccine-induced, at least in the Omicron context. So we'll see how they're spinning this. And this is interesting. And then we're going to get to a small clip from Brett and Heather. Then we're only one clip away. Fox 31 Digital. Today, a new oh, my goodness. Excuse me. Report out just this week says vaccines, get this, were less effective than natural immunity against the Delta variant. Fox 31 digital data reporter DJ Summers went through that report very closely. And DJ, what did you find out about it? 
It's a complicated study with a really simple conclusion. You have better protection against Delta if you were previously infected than if you were vaccinated. A previous infection was six times stronger than a vaccine alone during Delta. That's because two things happen. Vaccines got less effective and natural immunity got more effective. Take a look. That vaccine got four times less effective alone during the Delta wave as beforehand. It's durable and robust. All right. So what happened? with natural immunity in that same time, DJ? Exactly the opposite, Matt. Natural immunity got stronger. Before Delta, Californians in this study were about seven times less likely to be infected if they were unvaccinated but had gotten COVID before. After Delta hit, they were 29 times less likely to catch it. And what about people who were vaccinated and had previously been infected? That's the strongest level of protection, Talia. Look at these differences here. Post-Delta, the protection level of a vaccine alone went down by 13.9. For a previous infection only, it went up 24.5. Now, remember, that vaccine plus previous infection combo was already the strongest. For that combo, it went up 22.9. The difference between pre- and post-Delta rates was even better bigger with hospitalizations. I have that in my story online at KDVR.com. DJ Summers, Fox 31. Thank you for that. And I just want to get this on the record. 146 research studies affirm naturally acquired immunity COVID-19 documented LinkedIn quoted one of the famous ones that Kim cited, I think had a couple million. It was either over 700,000 or 2 million. I forget which study had. It's a massive population sample size. And obviously they did serological tests and they discovered that antibodies existed for extremely long amounts. It's actually corresponding to the length of the, the study itself. And so there's 146 research studies. But let's trust the one out of the CDC that contradicts the entire history of epidemiology and microbiology, specifically epidemiology in regards to uh, natural immunity. We know if you get measles as a kid, you're not going to get it later. We know if you get chickenpox as a kid, you're not going to get it later. And a whole host of other viruses. In fact, all the, all the, the, the coronaviruses, the, the respiratory viruses you've ever come in contact with and had it as a child, you'll never catch that again. One, they mutate a ton. So you're never going to really come in contact with that strain. But hypothetically, say if you did, you wouldn't catch it because you have immunity. You have T-cell immunity. It's the lymphocytes, the white blood cells. And there's a memory associated with it called memory-induced T-cell immunity. And we're going to get to that in a second here. Um, because that's what really needs to be measured, but it's actually very difficult to measure. But the fact there's 146 studies. Now, there is some things I think that people overstate, maybe even McCullough a tiny bit, just a tiny bit about how effective vaccine immunity is, or excuse me, natural immunity is. It is very effective, much more effective and much safer, obviously, than the vaccine that seemingly at this point. But I'm going to let Brett and Heather sort of go over some of the details about this, and then I'll come back and weigh in on my thoughts on this. It's a short video talking about uh, natural immunity and some of the problems, the, the good and the bad associated with it. And that one, I think, is... Is there a reliable way to measure the durability of one's natural immunity? Is there a reliable way to measure the durability? Well, here, here's the problem. So there's two ways that you can interpret that question, which is, um, you know, do you have immunity at the moment from having been exposed to COVID past? Um, and there are various questions about whether or not, you know, circulating antibodies and such are 
a, a good measure. Um, but the other, the more, the potentially more interesting question uh, is, is there any way to know, you know, a month out from having had COVID, whether or not your immunity will, um, you know, persist forever as it seems often to do or, if, um, or not. And I don't, I don't think we have an answer to that at all. I, I don't think we have a perfect answer, but I think we have a, a kind of way in. First of all, I would say okay. antibodies are certain to be a terrible measure, right? That this yeah. is, we have been sold the idea that antibodies are the end all and be all of immunity by people who just so happen to be in the business of selling crappy vaccines that generate a temporary boost in antibodies. So anyway, um, that's a sales pitch and we should get over it. The best immunity comes from T cells, which have something antibody like on their surface, but you can't just go in and measure the T cells in the same way that you can measure the circulating antibodies. So antibodies. Do we have a good measure? No, that's the problem is that actually it's a tricky question. So um, we can measure antibodies easily. And so we choose to measure. It's a, it's a tyranny of metrics thing, right? Um, anti antibodies are easy to measure, but they also, as a function of a healthy response to a pathogen with which you have been infected, will drop precipitously after that infection, right? Because if your immunity has uh, been housed over in T-cell land where it is best, <clears throat> then the point is those antibodies, you know, there's some optimal level and it's not a high number. So you expect antibody levels to drop. Um, so anyway, the point is what you want to know is, is your durable immunity there and how permanent is it, which is going to be a function of a couple things. One, how good is the memory on the immune system side? And two, how rapidly changing is the pathogen so that the memory is actually useful? Right. So the evolution of a pathogen can cause a you know robust immune response to be irrelevant because by the time you get your next encounter, it doesn't look the same. So what you want to know <clears throat> is of, across a population, we should probably assume something like a normal distribution, or maybe it's a power law that would describe how long people's immunity lasts, right? And so if the immunity is not going to be very long lasting, for a given pathogen and its interaction with the immune system, then you would expect some people to get readily reinfected, right? People who were on the low end of that distribution, they should be very vulnerable to a second infection. Mm -hmm. To the extent that you have few documented cases of anybody getting a second uh, infection, then that suggests it's likely to be very long lived because that tail of the distribution is all, all also very well protected. So that's not a perfect proxy, but that's how I would look at it complex systems wise. Well, but I mean, there's also the question of how distantly related is the virus that you are now exposed to from the virus that you have immunity to. So if, you know, if, if Omicron is so different from Delta, uh, that, uh, you know, the anecdotal reports that we hear of people who were sick last summer and then again sick a month ago are true. Um, that, you know, that is consistent with actually you won't get Delta again, but, right. um, but Omicron m might, you know, put forth a, a new form um, that you could be susceptible to because it's different enough from the one that you now have natural immunity to. Yeah. I mean, that, I think that's a different way of saying the same thing about the rate of evolution of the pathogen. The, the basic point is immunity depends on similarity between 
right. the thing that you became immune to and the thing that you encounter and a rate of change that is sufficient will outstrip that at some point. So this is an important point. Um, one of the big issues with both the vaccine-induced immunity and the natural immunity argument is they're just doing these blood serum tests measuring for sort of the IgG immunoglobulin, the sort of um, the antibody response that's mostly made up in blood. That's only there when you have the presence of the virus itself that's you know replicating inside the body. And then it wanes pretty quickly. Now, what's interesting is the fact that it extends even uh, using those like blood serum, those antigen tests for um, even the natural immunity um, uh, studies. It's still long lasting, which is very interesting. In contrast to Pfizer, which Albert Borla last week admitted two doses is meaningless now. And we've, we've known about this after 10 weeks, it starts to wane dramatically, dramatically, and is also made for the alpha variant. Now he talks about similarity, uh, Brett Weinstein, which he is correct about. One of the things is, and I think one of the fallacies, oh, look, there's a possibility that there is really no documented case of transmitting the virus after you've been infected. There's no documented case of being reinfected, but there's a lot of anecdotal cases of being supposedly reinfected. Now, there's a problem with the anecdotal cases. One, they, they exhibit a pattern. So you could, you could test potentially, develop a test and a hypothesis and test for it and all that stuff. But one of the problems when you look at sort of the, the natural immunity issue altogether is that for the anecdotal crowd, one is the issue of testing for the virus itself. Antigen tests are unreliable. The PCR, unless you are doing a low cycle threshold from a lab that has the properly calibrated equipment and the, the technicians that know how to do it properly, it's a mess. And it, the PCR can be used effectively, but it also can show after you're done replicating a virus up to 30 days, potentially after that, you can still test positive. And as uh, Carrie Mullis pointed out, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because you're always going to have a piece of that genetic information inside of you. So at a high enough cycle threshold, you'll find what you want no matter what. So the PCR is highly ineffective. So if you tested positive twice, I mean, how do you know, how do you differentiate between the cold, the flu and COVID-19? You have to do so based almost on a positive test within the types of symptoms you develop. Um, or probably the best ways to determine that. But knowing that the tests are very inaccurate, it makes it difficult. So like, did you get reinfected or are you just now infected with a code? Cold. The other issue is similarity. All the alpha and delta were similar enough that even if you, let's just hypothetically say you got the alpha variant that got reinfected with delta. Okay. You, what are the, what's the evidence of that reinfection is causing you to be hospitalized or to develop the dyspnea, the, the breathing issues and the COVID induced pneumonia and low oxygen, all those sorts of things, probably very little to none. And the point is because there's enough similarity because you've had some exposure. And this is actually Peter McCullough goes into this, both for vaccine induced and natural immunity. Even if you get Omicron, the likelihood of showing severe symptoms is much, much less if you're not COVID naive. Likelihood of even if you're COVID naive, like I was myself, having never been exposed at all, um, and then being exposed to my parents, helping them out, you know, it kept me hard for a day or two. I did early treatments and got over it. And then, you know, the next week wasn't too bad. It was, you know, I had lingering symptoms, but, you know, the first day or two was pretty intense, but I was able to get over it pretty quickly. My dad as well with the early treatment protocol. Um, the fact that even being COVID naive and most likely getting Omicron, I'm just assuming I was able to still, it's still mild, relatively speaking, insofar as it doesn't tend to 
get down into a lower respiratory tract infection, tends to stay as an upper respiratory tract infection. The point here is the fact that even if you become reinfected, natural immunity should be good enough considering that the spike is similar enough, even with all the mutations, even if you have natural immunity and get reinfected, it shouldn't cause a situation whereby which, where it can be reasonably hypothesized, tested for, and then ultimately theorized that it won't cause that severe, even if it was Delta, for example, that severe disease. And so the fact that they're still pushing vaccines, which Albert Borla has admitted with Pfizer says two doses means nothing. And they have to keep boosting you know, over and over and over again, but then we're now coming out. I mean, the most aggressive country in the world with this whole booster campaign has been Israel. And they're, they're saying we're going to stop at the fourth. It just doesn't work particularly against Omicron. It's too different. It's too different. And when you're just measuring antibody responses, the IgG response in the blood, that's a response to immediate fact that you have some sort of spike being the spike being produced inside your body. In other words, the virus is replicating and causing inflammation. So there is like a bit of misunderstanding. Like for example, Peter McCullough says one and done for alpha and Delta. If you had alpha, you don't have Delta. We don't really know. What we do know is it probably was at most, if you were to get reinfected, it probably wasn't that serious. We but he did admit that Omicron, for example, does escape both vaccine, obviously, and even natural immunity. And, um, you know, it's something to point out that the, the vaccine companies are using the same tests as these tests trying to test for natural immunity. And so all of them are highly unreliable. Now, what's scary about this, when we talk about T cells, let's get this on the record. So one of the functions, so this is the T cells. This is the white blood cells. This is what um, Brett Weinstein was saying that is difficult to, to measure for compared to the blood serum test, the antigen tests that we use to measure sort of the antibody response, the immunoglobulins in the blood. So one of these functions is immune. So this is the T cell function. One of these functions is immune mediated cell death and is carried by two major subtypes, CD8, which are the killer, uh, sort of the T cells and the CD4, which are helper T cells. These are named for the presence of the cell surface proteins, C8, CD8 or CD4. So it has proteins on the cell surface that do a specific job in the presence of a pathogen. Um, the T cells are cytotoxic and means they kill directly the virus or cancer cells and CD4 sort of helps. And also I think provides memory associative with that. Why is that important? A couple months ago, we showed a video from like a health coach, some health practitioner that was working with a man that had gotten turned his life around. He had been working out, sort of eating right, lowered his weight, doing all the right things. Seemingly it was an older gentleman and he has the ability to do testing. So he sent uh, he asked this individual if he could use this man to test his CD4 and CD8 levels just to see what's going on there. And what came back was really, really, really disturbing. And this is after the man had finished being double jabbed. So it's like right after he received his second dose, CD8 and CD4 were out of control, meaning the body was like essentially attacking itself. And then they basically went down to almost nothing, meaning that the adaptive immune response, the T cell response showed that there was a sort of autoimmune response happening in the body where the body is either attacking itself or has the inability to actually be able to perform its function naturally, which then portends ominously to the idea that the antibody dependent enhancement and the, the accelerated disease, that's part of the, 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 um, the Pfizer admission as what the side effects, a whole host of different side effects and all the various VARES reports, you know, it just makes one wonder. In other words, what's being sacrificed is your immune system. 
what's being sacrificed potentially is your immune system. So what's the long-term fallout for the supposed short-term game of taking uh, gain, excuse me, of taking a, an experimental gene therapy, a gene therapy that does not stop transmission. That's Geert's Vandenbos's point. If it doesn't stop transmission, you're just going to help perpetuate endlessly this pandemic because of selective pressure. Not to mention that they're still working on the virus itself. Look at the grants we talked about earlier tonight. It's not like any of this stuff has really stopped. I mean, for God's sakes, I think uh, China built another, or is in the process of building another BSL two or three laboratory in Wuhan of all places. I had that on the show card a couple of weeks ago. I think I have to, I have to research and make sure that was correct, but you know, this is not stopping. Um, and lab leaks accidental quote unquote seemingly happen all the time. This is a mission that came out from various epidemiologists, even before the COVID pandemic, yeah, the Fort Detrick mentioned uh, that Rich and I talk about a couple of times. Jason Burmis thinks it actually came from Fort Detrick. There's no, direct evidence. There's not even circumstantial evidence associated with that, but still yet the fact that we have these laboratories, these multi-million dollar laboratories, in some cases, probably billions of dollars, laboratories around the world studying these viruses, not just viruses, but bacteria. And then now with CRISPR technology, not this recombinant technology, this serial passage through humanized cell lines, but we have CRISPR now, which can actually just like, with, I think it's like a laser that can just change the nucleotide sequences themselves. I mean, there's a lot of really dangerous ways in which this can be abused, especially now knowing how well this has worked to, to scare the public. So I just wanted to get that on the record because there's a lot of misunderstanding surrounding the issue of natural immunity. It is real, it's robust, it works, but at the same time, we need to be real about the way in which they measure it and the CD4 and CD8 values and the, the T cells, the lymphocytes, the white blood cells, in other words, and how they play a major role in adaptive immunity. This is not, I'm not even talking about innate immunity which is like your first line defense, which is pretty much wiped out as well due to the vaccination, but I won't get into that in detail. So um, if you've had it once, you're most likely safe from most of the variants, unless there's enough selective, unless we get another Omicron that is instead of five or six mutations like Delta had in contrast to Alpha, this Omicron had like 20. And so, yes, it will escape, but the fact that you're not completely COVID naive, there's some similarity. You won't usually develop the worst symptoms or outcomes or the worst outcomes won't manifest from the fact that you at least have some ability to fight it. Assuming you have natural immunity, if you have vaccine-induced immunity, that could be actually very different, uh, different situation altogether. Okay, one last thing here. Uh, let's do... Let's do... Uh, one last clip here before we get to intermission. No, 270 doctors didn't. How long is this? Let me see. This is long. So let's just do like, let's do like 10 minutes of this uh, first video. This is by Jimmy Dore. No, 270 doctors didn't criticize Joe Rogan. Uh, or let me see here. Fact check of Joe Rogan is a giant fail. You know what? Actually, let's play the one below that. that. So like this has been, if people aren't aware of 270 doctors, we'd actually debunked that last week. I think people, that was a big debunking that Tim Pool did as well. And a couple other alternative media hosts, people aren't aware. It was made up of like college professors and podcasters and very few doctors uh, were a part of that. Um, but let's go to this other one. This is kind of more interesting, actually, I think. Fact check of Joe Rogan is a giant fail. Let's do the one underneath that. Um, Jimmy Dore exposes the fact fact checkers called Joe Rogan for his questioning vaccine-induced myocarditis. This was an interesting little bout he had with a recent guest that I think is worth getting on the record. 
So we're going to start off with our good friend Joe Rogan. Now, you know Joe Rogan gets 11 million views per show he does, which dwarfs all the rest of the media. And so they're going nuts that they can't, they can't control the narrative anymore. And so that's why they always trash Joe Rogan as some kind of extreme right winger, even though he endorsed Bernie Sanders. That was part of it. That was the first part of it, right? And that's when the Democrats start calling him a right winger. Isn't that funny? Uh, so he's none of the things they say he is. He's a, actually a thoughtful guy. And they've been calling for his sense for him to be censored because he spreads so much misinformation. And so if you watch this show, you know, the biggest purveyor of misinformation is the government, Joe Biden and the government. And then the second is the corporate media. That's why we have a show. We're here to debunk the corporate media because they're always lying. Um, and they're always full of propaganda. So this, someone was, uh, so, you know, like when Sanjay Gupta from CNN went on Joe Rogan's show, Joe Rogan schooled Sanjay Gupta for three hours. That, and what you would think it would be the other way. The doctor would teach the guy who announces guys fighting in cages. You think that that, oh, no. Man. Oh, look at that. Oh, nice. Some of the booch. <laughs> what? <laughs> we forgot to turn on a light here, and now it's on. Oh, gosh, it looked fantastic. Um, so Joe Rogan schools them and, and if they want to have a fact checker on the Joe Rogan show, why don't you just bring the people that Joe Rogan has on his show on your show? They won't do that. So they've been passing this around. It says, we probably won't see Josh Zepps on, on a, Joe's Rogan's podcast for a while. And this, I, I should have showed you how many likes it got. I got it with thousands of likes. And this is why watch this for young boys in particular, there's an adverse risk associated with the vaccine. It's like yes. a two to four fold increase in the instances of myocarditis. Yes. But you know what? Hospitalization. The, you know that there's COVID. an increased risk of myocarditis in among that age cohort from getting COVID as well, which exceeds the risk of myocarditis from the vaccine. I don't think that's true. I don't think it it's is. true. I don't no no no. I don't think it's true that there's an increased risk of myocarditis from people catching COVID that are young versus increased risk of myocarditis from the vaccine. No, there is. There's both. Well, let's look that up because I don't think that's true. <laughs> There's myocarditis more common after COVID nineteen infection than vaccination. But is this with children? Uh, yeah, we're talking about young people, men and boys aged under thirty. After this, is what it says here. With, with children is the issue. Well, no, we were talking about fifteen year olds. Well, we're talking about young children, male so, child, yes, twelve to seventeen. 12 to seventeen, more likely to develop myocarditis within three months of catching COVID at a rate of four fifty cases. Per million infection, this compares to 67 cases of myocarditis per million at the same time following their second dose of Pfizer. Yeah, so you're about eight times likely to get myocarditis from getting COVID than from getting the vaccine. That's interesting. Now, that, that is said, not what I've read before, but also it's like... When, even when we're reading these things, it's like, what are we getting this from? Is this from well, the VAERS the report? But even from the VAERS reports, when they report this stuff, it's like the amount of people that report, the, um, like it's the under-reporting. So this guy says we probably won't see Josh Epps on Rogan's podcast for a while. Well, if Joe Rogan was anything like the scumbag mainstream media, he might be right. But you probably will see Josh Epps on Joe Rogan's show because Joe isn't an insecure authoritarian, and I'm guessing he's not like that at all. No, 
Joe's a regular solid dude who actually enjoys those kind of conversations, which is why he fucking has them. And he pioneered the three hour conversation that no one is having anymore, which is why no one watches mainstream news and no one watches mainstream media. No one watches the late night TV shows. No one watches those shows, those pre-planned interviews that go on for four seconds and talk about absolutely nothing. And then they throw a ping pong ball into a glass of beer. Those are that's not real entertainment. That's not real shows. That is that that is the equivalent of carrot top for late hey. night television. That is the that is one step below tickling. <laughs> <laughs> so I hear George Clooney is quite a prankster. That's <laughs> <laughs> I never get tired of that question, huh, Kurt? I imagine Clooney has an assistant that comes to your trailer back. Now, George is going to prank you, so act like you're really into it because he gets upset. You know, he's known for his pranks. <laughs> so well, what did happen? So so uh, to me, it looks like some people were passing that around saying CNN showed that saying, see, Joe Rogan needs a fact checker. See, he's got he gets shit wrong. No, Joe Rogan's doing a podcast. And he's having a conversation with some guy, and they had a disagreement. So what did Joe Rogan do? Did he lie about a statistic? No, he looked it up in real time, and they went over it. And they found that article, and then Joe says, you know, is that pure, you know, in his head is like, you don't know what you're reading all the time. He was right to be skeptical. But first, what he said was this. He goes, if anyone was going to make me look dumb on the podcast, I'm glad it's Josh Zepps because I love him and he's awesome. However, this is why I was confused. And so there you go. Uh, Can you imagine CNN thanking someone who corrected their bullshit? (laughs) Could you imagine that? Can you imagine any establishment outlet or any authority admitting to even the slightest mistake about anything? I'm asking for real. No joke. Can you? No. In fact, when Joe Rogan got Sanjay Gupta to admit it on his show that they'd been lying about ivermectin and pushing propaganda to make people think it it was some kind of poison and not a human medicine, then they went and lied again about it on CNN after after Joe Rogan got to admit it on it. Isn't that amazing? So, yeah. So, and here's why Joe Rogan was confused, and he links to this story. It's in The Guardian, and this was months ago, and it says U.S. researchers say teenagers are more likely to get vaccine-related myocarditis than end up in the hospital with COVID. So this is, so that was, and here, here's the thing he was, their analysis of medical data suggests that boys aged 12 to 15 with no underlying medical conditions are four to six times more likely to be diagnosed with vaccine-related myocarditis than ending up in a hospital with COVID for over a four-month period. Now, uh, that's what Joe, Joe was in good faith referring to, an article he read in a mainstream establishment newspaper, and he brought this up with Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay Gupta was like, oh, didn't know that. They all talked about it, blah, blah. Well, it turns out since then, some of the numbers in this study have been retracted. So this has been retracted. So this study has been retracted, just so you know. But that's what Joe was referring to. And by the way, at the same time, they looked it up. And by the way, the biggest purveyors of lies about COVID are the establishment and the government. Okay. So... Then Josh Sepp tweets out to people who think that Joe Rogan is closed minded or that he'd get pissed when I disagree with him. Here's exhibit A. I love the guy. And he shows Joe's tweet of if anyone was good, that one I just showed you. 
He's not, Joe Rogan didn't get pissed off. He brings on people with different opinions of him all the time. That's why it's a really popular show. Because it's, it's not a bubble. Yeah. What's it's that? Elevate. Everything's elevator music now. You know, like it's, I just don't want to hear uh, nice corporate elevator music. I'd like to hear people talking <laughs> yeah. and disagreeing about things. And Josh goes on to say, I hope readers realize that Rogan enjoys this kind of pushback. I hardly shut him down. <laughs> He's a big boy. That's exactly right. And it turns out Joe Rogan wasn't even wrong. Ah. It turns out he was right to be skeptical of whatever that article that Jamie pulled up on his show was and that him and Josh were talking about. So this guy, he's a MD, MPH, that I think that stands for miles per hour. <laughs> <laughs> so he's a very fast doctor. That guy's he's, good. I watch him sometimes. He's a doctor. He's a doctor at the speed of science. <laughs> 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 so this guy says Joe Rogan is right at some ages for men for some doses of specific mRNA shots the risk of vaccine induced myocarditis exceeds the risk of myocarditis from infection it was proven by the UK group we have to be honest about this fact to have productive conversations so Joe Rogan wasn't even wrong but wait, there was a letter signed by 270 respected pot growers and veterinarians. <laughs> Son of a bitch. Some concerned chiropractors want him shut down. And then he links, so he links to this chart on his substack, And it says here, UK now reports myocarditis stratified by age and sex after vaccine or after having SARS-CoV-2. This was the Nature Medicine paper revisited, and it's shocking, it says. It ah. says, this was the key figure in Nature Medicine's paper, published on December 14th, 2021. It showed clearly that myocarditis after vaccination, in this case, Moderna 2, dose 2, Moderna dose 2, was higher than myocarditis SARS-CoV-2 infection for people younger than 40. And then he lists this graph, and so... So there we so there you go. And and I just love how people keep using settled science, settled science. Tell tell that to Newton. <laughs> tell that uh to tell tell that to Einstein. Because everybody thought the science was settled until Einstein came along and said, "No, that's not how it works. It actually works like this." And science is always being tested. It has to stand up to scrutiny. Science, people go, I believe science. Well, <laughs> if you believe science, then guess what you're doing? You're turning science into a religion. Believe because in. that's what's that? You mean believe in? Yeah, believe in. I believe yeah. in science. Yeah, right. Yeah, you don't believe in science. Science is about testing hypotheses <laughs> and trying to knock them down. And if it can stand up to scrutiny, that doesn't make you a bad person because you question the results of someone's experiment or you have a different idea. That's what science is. Science is about testing ideas, including the settled science. That's how we got Einstein. That's how we know that fat doesn't make you fat anymore. That sugar does. Um, okay. 
Uh, by the way, could someone get this uh, info to that doctor at the Grasshopper Farms? <laughs> Boy, are they going to be embarrassed, I bet, huh? <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm starting to think Dr. Fauci might not be science itself. I'm starting to think that. <laughs> Tony Sy. Is that the avatar of science on this walking this earth? You know, I'm start. I'm I'm starting to think science is all about debate and questions and research and not consensus based belief system for Fauci. you know Democrats. Um. Also, uh, that guy Josh Zepps. I would just say I always liked that guy. We used to have him on my old podcast in New York, and he's one of the few people that defended me years ago when I was getting smeared by no the kidding. Media. On Chank and the Young Harkonnens, or whatever it's called. No he was kidding. Yeah, Chank was going in on me. The middle-aged McCarthyites. Yeah, I, I never met Chank. He, and, and I didn't even watch what Chank was saying about me, but I know somebody somebody else told me, Josh was like, oh yeah, he was defending you on there. He's a good dude, Josh Epps. I, I like him a lot. We had a contentious, I don't know, contentious, but we, you know, uh, I was in a bad mood uh, at, one night after a uh, a primary loss in 2015 or 16 for Bernie Sanders. And he came on to say, Bernie, you know, anyway, we disagreed on things and I was really in an ornery mood and he didn't hold that against me. He invited me on his, on his show. Yeah. He, right. I, He's I, nice. I, yeah. I did his show later on after that. Yeah. So I think Josh Zepps is a very stand up guy. Also, even though, uh, you know, we might disagree on politics. Well, even though I don't want someone with an Australian accent telling me anything about American politics, <laughs> I think that it might that's have been part one, of the annoyance. I think that might have been one of the things I said or something. I might have said something like that. I feel the same way. <laughs> well, that's how that's 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 yeah, yeah. That's how. I, so let's see if there's that's that it. Okay, so I don't have anything else. So there's the so that's the thing. So that's the crazy thing going around. And I and I love how people say, well, there's there there should be a uh, they should have a. Uh, why doesn't Joe bring out an, another doctor to debunk the? Uh, do, do, do you understand? He's again. That, that's people have said that to me. No, you're being bombarded with the establishment narrative about COVID. I'm here to show you where they're lying and where they're not providing context, and where they're trying to bullshit you and fearmonger you. That's what this show's about. This show isn't about giving a platform to fearmongering, propagandizing corporatists that's not i'm here to debunk those and i give a platform to people who push back against the ubiquitous propaganda that we are bombarded with and that's what joe rogan does too well jimmy also you think after sanjay gupta looked like a punk like that anybody well every, people are they're never going to come on and no. they're also they're like i'm above talking to you that's yeah. why they want the deplatforming so that's, that they never have to talk to the likes of you that's right you know? that is right you are right always love that argument get people on to debate do you really think Fauci's going to go on to debate Peter McCullough or someone like Robert Malone or Francis Collins for that matter remember we juxtaposed oh do you remember this this was a couple of weeks ago we juxtaposed Rich's, <clears throat> Richard Grove's interview with Peter McCullough that he had recently he had just done earlier that week to Francis Collins on um, the Lex Friedman podcast and one was doing nothing but ad hominems and straw men and a whole host of ad barracuna, a whole host of different fallacies. In other words, Francis Collins. And then the other was just citing evidence. Now you can contest the evidence, but the dude's not at least misdirecting away from evidence. And like that, you know, it's just, 
come on, that juxtaposition, just uh, the, the narrative would be, they, they almost never cite consistent evidence or evidence that can be, or otherwise evidence that can be potentially debunked. And they're afraid that they're, if they had actually had a debate, in my opinion, if they don't get the perfect sophist in place, prepared for every potential avenue and answer and question that someone like a McCullough or Malone or, you know, Zelenko or one of these doctors would have, you know, they're not going to be, their whole narrative could crumble overnight, especially on a platform like Joe Rogan's Remember, like over 50 million people have downloaded or listened to the Malone interview. And I think it was similar numbers from McCullough. That would be devastating, devastating. If they actually got into the numbers and some of the studies, Gupta, I have to give him some credit. He actually, to some degree, at least went on there and took it on the fucking cheek, even though he later had to do a bunch of damage control afterwards. Um, but I just want to bring this up. I thought that was very fascinating because obviously, um, Josh steps or whatever, you know, mentions, Oh, well, there's more myocarditis induced from COVID. Well, that's interesting. I'd like to see, you know, how many of those cases might have preexisted COVID that we never even heard of myocarditis. Someone in the chat here said that it's a good point. Um, we never even heard of myocarditis until the vaccine rollout and that being a potential issue with COVID-19, especially the young, young people early on, young people were the one age group that they were like, you really don't have to worry about particularly with the alpha variant. It wasn't until the Delta variant came that some like 30 year olds actually, you know, potentially died from it. Um, you know, and it got, it became much more serious, but the alpha variant really just affected the old elderly population of comorbid. No, don't do that. It's a bad cat. Cat's already starting to piss me off, but I want to get this on the record. This is the BMJ SARS-CoV-2 vaccination and myocarditis or myopericarditis. Uh, population-based cohort study. This is a Danish study uh, to investigate the association between SARS-CoV-2 vaccination and myocarditis uh, or myopericarditis, excuse me, periopericarditis, really. Myopericarditis, late and getting late. Myopericarditis, population-based cohort study, Denmark. So the study actually went on for one year. One year. Um, and I have to look up, it's not a huge population sample. Well, actually, no, it is. It actually is bigger than that. I'm sorry, 100,000. It is a big population sample size. Anyways, so it went on from October 2020 to October 5th, 2021. They look at both Pfizer and Moderna, and they look at 100,000 vaccinated individuals, 12 or younger, I believe. No, I'm sorry, 12 or older. So they're looking at just 12 or older. They're not even counting the young, even younger, which it could affect them even more. And this is what they came up with in their conclusion. Vaccination of mRNA-1273 was associated with a significantly increased risk of myocarditis or myopericarditis in the Danish population, primarily driven by an increased risk among individuals aged 12 to 39 years, while the Pfizer vaccine, this is a BioNTech vaccine, was only associated with a significantly, significantly increased risk among women. However, the absolute rate of myocarditis and myopericarditis after SARS-CoV-2 mRNA vaccination was low. Even in the younger groups, benefits of SARS should be taken into account, blah, blah, blah. Larger multinational studies are needed to further investigate the risks of myocarditis and myopericarditis after vaccination within the smaller subgroups. There's a significant increased risk with Moderna, just like the UK study found. There's an increased risk with Pfizer, with women, young girls, 12 or older, young adolescent girls, and that comes from the BioNTech. That would be Pfizer. Now we know. So now we have to juxtapose that to the supposed COVID-induced, actually getting the disease-induced myocarditis. And there's no consensus on this right now. 
surprise, surprise, there's no consensus. That's not even to mention the other issues. I, I have a number of anecdotal cases on the show card tonight. We obviously didn't get to in the vaccine and vaccine injury subsection talking about the number of children that have had heart attacks all of a sudden. And that corresponds to that 40% increase in deaths between ages 16, 18 and 64. And then the, that's this, the insurance group and the, the states are studying why there's a 40% increase in 18 to 49. But, you know, of course, no, that's nothing to do with the vaccine at all. Or at least that, that you can't even question that. It's not even part of the question. You can't, you can't add that into a, a potential epidemiological study. No, not at all. Nothing to see there, folks. Nothing, nothing at all. Okay, let's get to the intermission. What time is it? Oh, God. Okay, well, we're still going to do it. So, LD, I, I appreciate your perseverance. And here's where you're going to be tested the most. So, hey, no problem. Uh, yeah. This is what we do. Yeah, do it in live. Especially when Richard's not here. <laughs> <laughs> we all the record, right? It was eight and a half hours or something like that. I think so. Dylan could probably tell us he, he keeps track of those things. Okay. I'll have to hit up Dylan. So is that, I'm not on the Rockfin chat tonight, so I don't, I'm sure it's been crazy. I don't even want to, I don't know what, well, I don't know what I'm going to ask but for my own safety. I'm not gonna ask. Okay. So and shout out to all the Rockfinners. I uh, love you all. Uh, even if we disagree on some stuff and I uh, hope you guys are having a wonderful time and still tuning in, listening to my rants. So here's how the intermission is going to go. We have what's her face talking about the Calhoun, John Calhoun study uh, about the mouse utopia and what happened from that study. Then we have Jordan Peterson getting into this a little bit of Dostoevsky from Pinocchio in there. He always likes to talk about Pinocchio and Pleasure Island. Then we have a reading from Notes from the Underground, a book by Dostoevsky talking about the issues of utopia. And then we get into sections from All Watched Over My Machines of Love and Grace, part three. Now, the thing about All Watched Over My Machines of Love and Grace, if you are watching on YouTube, we are probably going to have to stop the stream on YouTube because we are going to get flagged. So I would suggest, you know, by the time you get to, I don't know if we're going to stop it now or if we're going to stop it when All Watched Over starts. But either way, I would suggest if you want to continue watching to hop over to Twitch, Periscope, Odyssey, Brockfin, uh, all the other places that we're D Live that we're hosting to right now. So, um, Without further ado, that's the flow. It'll last for about 45 minutes or so, and I'll let LD take it. It's a lot of little clips, but it'll hopefully make sense, and I'll come back and help it make sense if it doesn't at the end of it. Then we'll get into one or two clips to close out the night. So we'll uh, take it away. In the 1970s, a behavioral researcher by the name of John B. Calhoun set out to answer a very important and timely question. What happens to society if all of our appetites are cared for and all of our needs are met? In today's society of social assistance and instant gratification, this exact question has been weighing on my mind for quite some time. Where could we possibly go from here? After reading about John Calhoun's study called Universe 25, I got a little closer to that answer. And according to his findings, we're headed toward an awful lot of cannibalism, followed by an apocalypse. In the study, Calhoun took four breeding pairs of mice and placed them in a utopia. The environment was designed to eliminate problems that would lead to mortality in the world. The mice could access limitless food, nesting material was provided, and the universe was kept at 68 degrees Fahrenheit, perfect mouse temperature. The mice were chosen for their health, and extreme precautions were taken to keep any disease 
from entering the universe. When the experiment began, the mice did as you'd expect. They used the time that would usually be wasted foraging for food and shelter to have excessive amounts of sex. As a result, the population doubled every 55 days. And as the population grew, the mouse society began to hit problems. The mice split off into groups, and those who found themselves incapable of finding a role within those groups became isolated. The isolated males withdrew physically and psychologically. They became very inactive and hung out in large pools in the center of the universe. They no longer initiated interaction with others and very territorial males ignored them altogether. They soon became characterized by the many wounds they acquired as a result of attacks from other withdrawn males. The female counterparts of these isolated males withdrew as well. Some spent their days preening themselves, shunning mating, and never engaging in fighting. Due to this, they had excellent fur coats and were dubbed, very eerily, the beautiful ones. But the breakdown in behavior wasn't just limited to the outsiders. The alpha males became extremely aggressive, attacking others with no personal gain and often raping both males and females. These violent encounters sometimes even resulted in mouse-on-mouse -mouse cannibalism. Mothers would abandon their young or often just forget about them entirely, leaving them to fend for themselves. Females also adopted more aggressive behavior as males abandoned their traditional roles and no longer protected their nests. The aggression spilled over and mothers would often kill their own young. Infanticide in some territories of Utopia reached a whopping 90%. In the phase Calhoun termed the second death, those who survived the attacks from their mothers and others would grow up around these unusual mouse behaviors. As a result, they never learned usual mouse behaviors and many showed little to no interest in mating preferring to eat and preen themselves alone. The population peaked at 2200, short of the 3000 capacity of the universe, and from there came the decline. Many of the mice were no longer interested in breeding and retired to the upper decks of the enclosure, while others formed violent gangs below. The low birth rate and high infant mortality combined with violence, and soon the entire colony was extinct. During the mouse apocalypse, Food remained ample, and their every need completely met. So why did Utopia fail? Fuck if I know, but I'll take a wild guess. Because healthy societies are not built on comfort and accessibility. They're built on adversity and purpose. Just like the mice, instant gratification and a lack of adversity has caused us to detach from our instincts. And because of that, with each passing generation, our behaviors become less and less human. When we're stripped of our sense of purpose and our ability to prove our worth, we become agitated, violent, and self-destructive. That and most creatures would rather devour their own offspring than spend six months in close proximity with members of their own species. Now some of you might be wondering, is there a silver lining to all of this? Yes there is, and it's this. Not all of Calhoun's mice went berserk. Those who managed to make space and control that space lived relatively normal lives. Just one more solid argument for us social outcasts to say fuck it to humanity and set up shop in the middle of the woods. Now, Dostoevsky, when he wrote notes from underground, he basically said, well, this was way before the communist revolution, he said he was talking about these sorts of utopian, uh, egalitarian, communitarians. He said they've got human beings completely wrong, right, right from the bottom up, because if you took the typical person, he says, if you gave them everything they possibly wanted to eat, so that all they had to ever do was eat delicious cakes, and they didn't have any other responsibilities than, what did he say, uh, indulging in the continuation of the human species, 
And so that if they were so happy that if you put them underwater, nothing but bubbles of bliss would float up to the surface, the first thing that people who were put in that situation would do would be to wander around smashing things just so that something unexpected and interesting would happen. You know, it's a brilliant critique of utopianism because it's exactly right. He said, he basically, Dostoevsky said, people are so crazy that they'd rather be um, subjected to inconvenient and unexpected occurrences than just to lay there all soporific with bliss. And so that there was something wrong with the whole utopian notion right from the get-go because that's just not what people are like. They'd rather have interesting trouble than non-interesting perfection. You know, and I think that's an incredibly powerful idea. But anyways, you can just think about that in relationship to your own character. I mean, how often do you do something that's trouble just to see what happens? I mean, it's exactly what people are like, you know. Even chimpanzees, juvenile chimps, if they see an old male sleeping underneath the tree, they'll go and poke him with a stick just to see what happens. You know, and it's like, well, if you can't see human, humanity in that sort of behavior, there's something wrong with you. So, but the utopians offered this vision of the future, which was basically paradise on earth, but they also proposed that it was something that could be attained through certain types of, you know, direct political action, which usually meant, well, fix your neighbor up, or even worse, meant steal what he has because he shouldn't have it anyways. And the problem with the utopian vision, essentially, was that if my theory is associated with a future utopia in a logical way, so I can make a case to you that if you do this and we do that and they do this and we're organizing things this way, then we'll usher in a period of prosperity that's almost heavenly in its, in its promise. The problem with that is it means we can do any bloody thing, bloody thing we want right now because the end product is so valuable that it justifies it. And so what happens is that the utopian vision turns into a rationale for the most destructive forms of behavior in the here and now. And then when someone's called to task for it, it's like, what the hell do you think you're doing? You know, they'll say something like, well, you can't make an omelette without breaking eggs. You know, and that's all well and good if you happen to be making the omelette, but it's not so damn good if you happen to be one of the eggs. And there were plenty of eggs broken on the way to, you know, the Soviet vision of success. Well, and you know, there's good evidence. Stalin, by the time the mid-1950s came around, there's pretty decent evidence from the KGB archives that he was preparing to launch a thermonuclear war against Europe. I mean, he'd already killed God only knows how many million people by that point. A few more hundred million weren't really going to weigh that heavily on his conscience. The last book I read on Stalin which was published, which was called Stalin, it was written by a guy who had access to the KGB and Communist Party archives. He claimed that Khrushchev and three other people killed Stalin in the late 1950s to stop him from invading Europe. So, I mean, you know, in the battle between the Communist Utopians and the West, we came this close to wiping everything out several times. So, now, what happened, in some sense, was this, is that this theory was laid out to cover the world. So, the Marxist theory was presented itself as a scientific theory, an inevitable theory of history. And the theory of history was that the warfare between the oppressed and the oppressor was the primary fact of life. And that 
that needed to transform itself into an egalitarian utopia and that there were certain states, that political states, that mankind would have to go through to reach that end. Okay, so that was basically the theory. And part of the theory was that in order to get to that point, then resources had to be distributed equally to all, which sounds fine in principle, but then again, the devil's always in the details, and how to distribute resources equally is by no means self-evident. You know, part of the reason that the English came up with the idea of the free market, this is Adam Smith fundamentally, is because Smith figured out that trying to figure out what things were worth is so complicated that you can't actually calculate it. So then we would say, well, what's your coat worth? I'd say, well, would you give me your coat for five dollars? Two dollars? Thousand dollars? Okay, so, so, but so the point being is that, you know, there's no way of establishing the worth of things because the worth of one thing is it's worth in relationship to all other things of worth. Like it's a continual interaction between all things of worth and the only way you can make that calculation is by letting people, individual people, make micro choices and that the value of things is established as a consequence of a hundred billion micro choices. We'd call that in the modern world, we'd call something that, some, that something like distributed cognition. You know, it's like you're outsourcing a price decision to the marketplace. What's this thing worth? Well, the answer is, whatever people will trade for it. And it's not a cop-out, it's, it's an illustration, indication of the fact that you can't come up with a computation that will allow you to determine what something is worth. So, I mean, I, I can give you an example of that from my own life, trying to figure out what something is worth. I developed some software to help people hire employees, and we did the mathematical calculations and figured out that if people used this particular software instead of going through an um, interview process, which doesn't work very well, that it would basically, if they used, if they gave it to ten people to select one employee, that it would save them about 35% of the salary of the hired person per year. So, if you hired someone who was being paid $100,000, then the return on investment would be $35,000 a year, and we could sell this for, say, well, we didn't know what, how much do you charge for the tests then? So you might say, well, if it's $35,000 a year, you're going to have this person around for four years, because that's how long the average person stays in their job. That's $150,000. And so then, you only have to use 10 tests, and so maybe we could take half of the first year, so that'd be $17,000, so it'd be $1,750 a test. And you'd get like a 30, what is it? You'd get a 8 times return on your investment. Well, you should be just jumping at that. Well, it doesn't work like that at all. We ended up having to sell it for about $20 a test, and we could hardly sell it to anyone because, well, for, for reasons that are far too complex to go into. But, my point is, is that it's impossible to make a pricing decision. It's really, really difficult. And to think that you could make a conscious and pre-programmed pricing decision for every single commodity is completely insane. And that's what they tried to do in the Soviet Union. And I read at one point that the Central Pricing Committee had to make 10,000 pricing decisions a day. 
well, you can't even come up with the price of one, you've put things on Kijiji, you know, it's like, well, what's it worth? Well, you look at what everyone else is paying for it, roughly speaking, and then it depends on how quickly you want to sell it and what kind of shape it's in, and, you know, it's complicated. And you have a pricing guideline, you just have to look the damn thing up. It's still hard to figure out what the price is. But imagine you have no comparative information at all. What's a hypodermic needle worth? Well, I guess it depends on whether you need it to inject the penicillin that's going to save your life or if you're just putting it in your cupboard to store it. But it's a complicated decision. All right, so anyways, this utopian scheme was set up and we're acting on the proposition that people used it at least in part as a replacement for their alternative, for their old belief systems, which I think is a perfectly reasonable proposition. But we're also going to take a psychoanalytic approach and we're going to say, well, it also allowed people to manifest bad faith because if your worth can be determined by how good a cog you are in the fascist or communist machinery, it pretty much alleviates you of any responsibility that you have to have for your own life. So that for, for every positive reason that you might join a utopian movement, there's a negative reason which is, well, you can benefit from its exploitive nature and you don't have to take any responsibility. Well, Solzhenitsyn and Frankel both talked about that a lot, as did Nietzsche, but Frankel and Solzhenitsyn are more interesting because they actually happened to live through the imposition of systems like that and could see them from the inside. Solzhenitsyn's first observation was Marxist economics didn't work. Well, that was a big problem. Because it was supposed to work, and not only was it supposed to work, it was supposed to work perfectly. And what that basically meant was that if it didn't work, you only had one of two options. You could either abandon the damn system and start to complain about the fact that you had to line up for bread for four hours a day, which was perfectly typical daily activity for people, for example, in Poland and in Russia before the wall came down. Everything cost nothing, but there wasn't anything to buy, so it wasn't very much of a bargain. And instead of paying for your bread with money, you just paid for it with time. You stayed in line for two hours, or three hours, or five hours, and when you got to the front of the line at the department store, you took whatever the hell was there, because you didn't even know what it was that you were going to be buying when you joined the lineup. And so it wasn't like it was free, you just paid for it with your time. So Solzhenitsyn noted that what happened as the system continued to manifest its counterproductive properties was that either people had the choice of saying, oh, this isn't working worth a damn, there must be something rotten in Denmark, or pretending that everything was alright and lying about everything. And that's what they did. They lied about everything, and so you got, to, you got the situation up to the point where in East Germany, before the wall came down, one out of every three people was a government informer. So that meant if you had a family of six people, two of them were telling the government what you were talking about at dinner. And that was their duty. And so what that meant in these societies was no one ever said anything that they meant, ever. And if they did, the probability that the KGB was going to kick down their door at four in the morning, um, and take them off to the central prison before dumping them in some damn camp where they'd never see anybody they ever knew for the rest of their life was extraordinarily high. So you watched everything you said and everything you thought around your wife, around your brother, around your sister, around your children, and the whole system ground onward in a mire of absolute deception and lies.
It's all free, boys. It's all free. Hurry, 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 hurry. The rough house. The rough house. It's the roughest, toughest joint you ever seen. Come in and pick a fight, boys. Oh, boy, a scrap. Come on, let's go in and poke somebody in the nose. Why? Ah, oh, just for the fun of it. Okay, Lampy. The back to road, the back to road. Get your cigar, cigarettes, and chewing tobacco. Come in and smoke your heads off. There's nobody here to stop Pinocchio! you. <coughs> Pinocchio! There's something phony about all this. I've got to get him out of here. Hurry, 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 hurry. See the model home? It's open for destruction. And it's all yours, boys. It's all yours. I tell you, ain't this a swell joint? Yeah, being bad's a lot of fun, ain't it? Yeah, uh-huh. Get a load of that stained glass window. All right, now. Pop to it, you blokes. Come on, come on. Shut the doors and lock them tight. Now get below and get them crates ready. Give a bad boy enough rope and he'll soon make a jack off of himself. <laughs> my grasshopper? Grasshopper? Look here, you, you impudent young pup. It wouldn't hurt you to take orders from your grasshopper, or your conscience, if you have one. Yeah, 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 sure. Screwball in the corner pocket. <laughs> why, why, you young hoodlum, I'll, I'll knock your block off. <laughs> Why, I'll take you apart and put you back oh, together. don't hurt him, Jiminy. He's my best friend. Why, I'll... Your best friend? And what am I? Just your conscience. Okay. That settles it. But, Jiminy... You buttered your bread. Now sleep in it. <laughs> Go on, laugh, make a jackass out of yourself. I'm through. This is the end. But Jiminy, Lampwick says a guy only lives once. Lampwick. Hmm. Come on, come on. Let him go. Lampwick. <laughs> Lampwick. Burns me up. After all I tried to do for him. Who's his conscience anyway? Me or that, that hoodlum lampwick? I've had enough of this. I'm taking the next boat out of here. Open up that door. Open up! I want to go home! Come on, you folks. Keep her moving. Lively there now. We haven't got all night. Where'd all the donkeys come from? Come on, come on, let's have another. And what's your name? Aww. Okay, you'll do. In you go. You 
course he'll bring a nice prize. <laughs> All right, next. And what might your name be? Alexander. Hmm, so you can talk. Y yes, sir. I want to go home to my mama. Take him back. He can still talk. So let me get to the fundamental point that makes this book truly important. To be honest, the most frightening element of this book. He talks about the rational utopia, the end of free will being the catalyst for your innate irrationality, how everything will be predicted through tables of a positivist perspective, and how it will never work, so on and so on, but he makes a crucial distinction that in all its attempts, because of the primary importance of free will in all of mankind, the glass will crack, and that the modernist scientific rational outlook is very much a fallacy. I quote, one may say anything about the history of the world, anything that might enter the most disordered imagination. The only thing one cannot say is that it is rational. The very word sticks in one's throat. And indeed, this is even the kind of thing that continually happens. After all, there are continually turning up in life moral and rational people, sages and lovers of humanity, who make it their goal for life to live as morally and rationally as possible to be, so to speak, a light to their neighbours, simply in order to show them that it is really possible to live morally and rationally in this world. And so what? We all know that those very people, sooner or later, towards the end of their lives, have been false to themselves, playing some trick, often a most indecent one. Now I ask you, what can one expect from man since he is a creature endowed with such strange qualities? Shower him every earthly blessing, drown him in bliss, so that nothing but bubbles would dance on the surface of his bliss, as on a sea. Give him such economic prosperity that he would have nothing else to do but sleep, eat cakes, and busy himself with ensuring the continuation of world history, and even then, man out of sheer ingratitude would play you some loathsome trick. He would even risk his cakes and would deliberately desire the most fatal rubbish, the most uneconomical absurdity, simply to introduce into all this positive rationality his fatal fantastic element. It is just his fantastic dreams, his vulgar folly, that he will desire to retain, simply in order to prove to himself, as though that were so necessary, that men are still men and not piano keys which even if played by the laws of nature themselves, threaten to be controlled so completely that soon one will be able to desire nothing, but by the calendar, and after all, that is not all. Even if man really were nothing but a piano key, even this were proved to him by natural science and mathematics, even then he would not become reasonable but would purposely do something perverse out of sheer ingratitude, simply to have his own way. And if he does not find any means, he will devise destruction and chaos, will devise sufferings of all sorts, and will thereby have his own way. He will launch a curse upon the world, 
and, as only man can curse, it is his privilege, the primary distinction between man and other animals, then, after all, perhaps only by his curse will he attain his object, that is, really convince himself that he is a man and not a piano key. If you say that all this, too, can be calculated and tabulated, chaos and darkness and curses, so that the mere possibility of calculating it all beforehand would stop it all and reason would reassert itself, then man would purposely go mad in order to be rid of reason and have his own way. I believe in that. I vouch for it. Because after all, the whole work of man seems really to consist in nothing but proving to himself continually that he is a man and not an organ stop. It may be at the cost of his skin, but he has proved it. He may become a caveman, but he will have proved it. And after that can one help sinning, rejoicing that it has not yet come, and that desire still depends on the devil knows what. End quote. That to me is the most frightening part of the book. The most true of it all, but it is that man will deliberately go insane in order to be rid of reason and still have things his own way. And it is if you spot the associations, Dostoevsky is pointing towards the downfall of an attempted utopia. A fall into a dystopia, because man cannot be a rational being with cohesive, conclusive counterparts. You could say that Dostoevsky predicts the not-so-distant future of mathematical madnesses such as the Soviet and Communist Chinese state and, of course, the German-Italian authoritarianism of the early 20th century. This is of utmost importance, that man can't remain as a piano key in an attempted utopia, but that it will be a dystopia of authoritarianism, that the underground men who reside in the cracks of the earth will rise and use their resentment as political charisma. Who could be a better example than Hitler? A man who had the physical and behavioural attributes of the underground man himself, and someone who used resentment and what Nietzsche called imaginary revenge to create a world of chaos and destruction. Dostoevsky acknowledges the madness of man and mankind's irrationality, but most importantly that this is an extremely delicate thread that when man attempts to constrict its own human nature, it may create a disastrous chemical reaction, that the strange human condition which we are may produce not a utopianism followed by rationality, but a dystopian authoritarianism, which is guided by powers that desire to demonstrate the devil's own free will. Free will for the sake of free will, a will which is made into reality to prove that man is not rational and cannot be equally placed as jigsaw to form a finality of perfect happiness. Bill Hamilton was a solitary man. In the early 60s, he lived alone in London, obsessively studying Darwin's theory of evolution. Hamilton saw the world through the prism of Darwin's ideas, and he believed that everything could be explained by the desperate struggle of all living things to survive and pass on their genes to the next generation. 
But as he watched the behaviour of teeming masses of ants, he realised that there was a problem. Why did some of them offer themselves up to the jaws of predators in an apparently selfless sacrifice to protect the rest of the group? And why did some humans behave in the same way? What was in it for them? Hamilton was convinced that human behaviour could be explained genetically. But to prove this, he knew he had to explain the puzzle of altruism. He went to Waterloo Station. He sat for hours on the platforms, staring at other human beings and thinking. Hamilton would sit there in Waterloo Station in the evening as a lonely man, looking at people. What this was enabling him to do was, at some level, look at humans as though they were another species, as though they were ants and he was not part of this. And so, although his concern very much is with humans, at some level he's able to take the emotion out, if you like. He's looking for patterns, he's looking for ways to make sense of all these people that he sees around him, the lovers that he sees kissing and then parting, the, the person he sees dashing to the train. Even the person who approaches him to, to go off to the public lavatory. I mean, these are all different individuals, but he's of their species, but he's not of their species. Then, at the end of 1963, Hamilton suddenly realised what he was actually looking at. He looked through the skin and the bone and saw something inside that was much more powerful and important than our individual identities are coded genes. And when he looked at the world from the genes point of view, he saw that human beings were just temporary carriers that allowed the genes to pass on copies of themselves and live forever. Hamilton was no longer thinking like a human being. He was thinking like a gene. And genes were not like people. They were like machines tiny calculating engines that could work out the mathematically best outcome. And that explained altruism. A gene would destroy itself if by doing that it would let more related copies of itself survive. I think that he really felt that he was seeing a pattern to the way the world works that others weren't seeing. This is how he, he really truly functioned as a man, almost from a different planet, looking at humankind. Absolutely convinced that there was some force hidden from the rest of us which motivated them, which drove them. In 1967, a strange and brilliant man came to London from America. He was called George Price. By chance in a library, Price discovered a scientific paper written by Bill Hamilton. It was full of equations that showed that human goodness and altruism were really survival strategies devised by our genes. It had been ignored by the scientific establishment. As Price looked at the equations, he had a sudden shock of recognition. He realised that what he was looking at 
was a description of machines he already understood. Computers. Price had worked originally as a chemist on the Manhattan Project. But then, in the 1950s, he had gone to IBM, where he helped design the graphics for early mainframe computers. Price was an obsessive rationalist, and in his spare time he became a freelance science journalist, and he specialised in attacking the myths and superstitions in society. Because he believed that rationality could explain everything. It was something that a daddy would do. He would, um, you know, take a subject. He was always attacking sacred cows in society. And he would take a subject and just, you know, explore it in a very rational way. And things that, you know, no other scientists, you know, wouldn't deal with. You know, he would just explore. And he was quite fearless in his scientific endeavors. You know, he would go where, you know, most people wouldn't. Above all, Price loved the cold logic of mathematics and computers. He believed that computers gave scientists like him a new power to analyse the world in a completely rational way. He wrote an article proposing that America could mathematically measure unhappiness levels among populations in the world. This would allow them to spot where communism might take root and so prevent it. Price's ideas were part of a powerful belief that had grown up in the electronic laboratories of the Cold War, that computers could be the salvation of humanity. The godfather of this belief was the man who had done more than anyone to create the modern digital computer, the mathematician John von Neumann, who had also built the H-bomb. Johnny von Neumann enjoyed thinking. In the clear and complete manner of mathematicians in every field. This also explains his effectiveness in connection with computing machines. Because computing machines apply logical processes to fields, not only mathematics, but to others as yet untouched by the logical process. And it is very significant that this revolution, the revolution of the electronic brains, was practically initiated by Johnny von Neumann. And when, in 1967, Price found William Hamilton's paper, he realised that what Hamilton had discovered was a new rational way of looking at human beings and their behaviour. They were simply soft machines, controlled by onboard computers. Price took Hamilton's mathematics and developed it. But as he did so, he realised that the equations also worked in reverse. That it was not just logical to be good, it was also logical to be spiteful. It made sense to kill yourself if in the process you also killed people distantly related to you and allowed those closely related to you to survive. Price's mathematics explained murder, warfare, and even genocide as possibly rational strategies for the genes controlling your behaviour. Well, because it meant that it, you could have genes that were uh, evolved, that were coded for um, murdering people. 
you know, that, that such a gene, even if it was bad for the possessor of the gene, as long as it was worse for distantly related people, it could evolve and that we might be genetically programmed to be murderers. And this was actually, you know, what George had been wondering. And he sort of proved that it could, at least in the mathematical sense, it could exist. It grew out of Hamilton's theory because Hamilton had seen that you could harm yourself as long as you helped your relatives. But this was different. This was, you could harm yourself as long as it harmed distantly related people and that, that we had genetic ways of recognizing uh, our closer relatives and our more distant relatives and we were programmed to hate and kill our more distant relatives. This is, these are the implications of the theory. Then the, who would that help? The gene, only the gene. This is the gene's eye point of view. It would really only help the genes. The, it would, the genes would grow in the population. That's what this was all about. Bryce showed his equations to Hamilton. Hamilton was fascinated, and together they developed their theory. It would become known as the selfish gene. They also became close friends. What Price had done was an incredible piece of mathematics. As von Neumann had predicted, what Price had also done was bring rationality and the clear logic of mathematics into a new field, into the heart of being human, but with the strangest of consequences. 20 years before, as computers were being developed, von Neumann had dreamt of a future where machines would be able to replicate themselves. He had written out a description of what would be needed for what he called self-reproducing automata to be invented. The extraordinary breakthrough that Price and Hamilton had made was to discover that self-reproducing automata didn't have to be invented. They were already here. They were us. The equations had enormous implications. Because if everything we did, whether good or bad, was actually a rational strategy computed by the codes inside us, then religion, with its moral guidance, was irrelevant. And it demolished the Enlightenment idea that human beings were above the rest of nature. In reality, we were no different from all the other animals. All this had a very strange effect on George Price, the convinced rationalist. He decided that the discovery was so powerful, it must have been a gift from God. But he feels that this breakthrough could only have been given to him by um, God. And what breakthrough? We're discovering, like, um, when he quantified altruism. He felt that he was, when he looked at something and he was able to see it in such a simple way. He, he felt that? He felt that it had been a gift, and the only way he could interpret that was because of, you know, a gift of God. But the equations actually showed that God did not exist. That is a dichotomy.
1973, George Price decided to devote his life to helping the homeless of London. As a result of the equations he had developed, Price had been given a job in the genetics laboratory of the University of London. But he had also converted to Christianity. And he had done so in an extreme way. Price decided that he was going to follow the teachings of Christ as if they were an exact code. He set out to help the poor and the destitute, to give them all his worldly goods. He also walked the streets, offering the homeless a place to stay in his flat near Oxford Circus. He was extraordinary. He was like, um, he was a saint, really. He, he would give anyone who needed anything, anything he had. I mean, he, at the end he gave, uh, he would be in the park and if someone needed his shoes, he literally took off his shoes and gave them his shoes. He was barefoot in the park. And then he started to take them into his flat, which is very nice. But they started stealing from him like crazy. I don't even think at one point he had a warm coat that he'd given it away to an alcoholic. You know, there was no, you know, artifice. You know, if he was going to be a Christian, then he was going to be a complete Christian, and he was going to give away all his possessions to the needy and really help people. William Hamilton became desperately worried about Price. He was convinced that his religious belief was a mad superstition and pleaded with Price to give up trying to help the homeless and do more work on genetics. But others believed that Price had been so shocked by the implication of his and Hamilton's theory that he was, in some desperate personal way, trying to disprove it. I, I think it's too easy to uh, dismiss him as insane, which many people want to. He was taking control of, of, of his genetic destiny. You know, he was sort of transcending his genetic destiny in, in, in those actions. In what way? Well, he was disproving the theory because he was giving everything to genetic strangers and, and helping those who were, uh, who, by helping them he was in no way uh, helping his, uh, serving the interests of his genes. He wasn't looking for genetic relatives, it was anyone at all he would help. Of course he was right, I mean this is the way that we should be, but that's another point. No, that's an important point. Yeah. What do you mean? Well, I mean, this, this, this theory of uh, that we only help our relatives, this is, this is sort of bankruptcy in it, you know? It's like we're all going to go down unless we sort of realize there's a larger community. And it really shouldn't rely on uh, the extent to which we share genes with others. That, and yet we may be programmed to feel that it does. I've come to realize, as this was November 5th, I've come to realize that the direction I took in April of 1973 was quite wrong. I persistently, time and again, rejected attractive young women who I might have come to love, to make myself the servant or slave of down and outs and old people whom I did not love. The money and help that I gave probably did mostly harm rather than good. I believe that the hound of heaven right now is starting to close in on me. Daddy, it's you, it's like, what is the hound of heaven? 
The Hound of Heaven is a poem written in 1893 by Francis Thompson. He had been an opium addict and a vagrant in London. The poem says that however much we think we are free individuals, we are in reality always running from God, and he will pursue us till the end and possess our souls. It is a powerful and dramatic assertion of the limits of free will. Well, he cut his carotid uh, artery with a nail scissors. It was in in his uh, in in in, a, in this deserted um, tenement, squatter's tenement. He was all alone, and he bled to death. And yet, there's a sort of purity to it that's very George. I mean, you know, he didn't take pills, and there was a sort of full consciousness of it as he went out. I'm talking about free agency. I mean, he really who kills himself that way? Honestly, I mean. Wouldn't we all take pills if we were going to do it? He decided to cut his carotid artery with a, with a scissors. I think that's very, to me, that was always very striking and, and horrifying, but um, graphic. It was just an act of, of, uh, of pure free will, wasn't it? I mean, that really was what it was, actually. So genes or no genes, God or no God, this was certainly, this, his genes wouldn't have told him to kill himself, and God didn't. He just did it. The only people at George Price's funeral were Bill Hamilton, one other biologist, and a few of the homeless that Price had helped. But his and Hamilton's theory was about to be taken up and transformed into one of the most defining concepts of our age. A young biologist called Richard Dawkins, who had himself been a computer programmer, took their equations and through vivid language captured the public imagination with a new way of looking at humans. Our old romantic idea of free will, he said, is grossly exaggerated. And most of our actions are actually controlled by the logic of the onboard computers buried deep within us. We are simply machines playing tiny roles in a vast strategic game played by competing computer codes over centuries. I was wanting to conjure up in the mind of the reader the image of, the, of the, the organism, including ourselves, as a machine for passing on genes. I wanted to shift the focus away from the idea of the organism as being the, uh, the agent in life to the immortal replicator, which is the gene, because that was the logic of natural selection. That is the logic of natural selection. It's the selfish gene, but not the selfish individual. DNA exactly analogous to the binary digits of some computer code, unravelling like a reel of magnetic tape on some giant computer. But at the heart of this supremely rational mathematical theory, there was a paradox. William Hamilton, George Price and Richard Dawkins had reinvented the immortal soul, a part within us that would survive our own death and whose eternal life was far more significant than our own temporary and limited existence. But the soul was now a computer code that made no distinction between good and evil. The DNA in you is a coded description of ancient worlds in which your ancestors lived. DNA is the wisdom out of the old days, and I mean very old days indeed. 
we are the descendants of a tiny elite of successful ancestors. We are walking archives of the African Pliocene, walking repositories of wisdom out of the old days. And into the midst of all this came Bill Hamilton. Hamilton was by now one of the most famous scientists in the world. He was given the highest honours by the scientific establishment. But his theories had led him into a very dark place. He had written a series of books called The Narrow Roads of Geneland. In them, Hamilton followed the logic of natural selection to its extreme conclusion. The idea that we should use Western science and medicine to prolong the lives of those who would otherwise die, he said, was wrong. It would allow the genetically inferior to survive, and so would weaken society. Nothing should be allowed to interfere with the strategy of the genes. He believed that some people are genetically inferior to others, that it's certainly possible, thanks to modern medicine, thanks to modern social policies, to keep these people, not only to keep these people alive, but to help them to flourish, and more importantly, to help them to reproduce. And he thought that this is a bad thing, and he thought that we should stand against this slide into degeneration. Because if you didn't stand against it, what would happen? Because he felt if we don't stand against it, the human species is going to degenerate. Then Hamilton heard a story from a journalist. The journalist believed that the AIDS virus had been accidentally created by American scientists in the Congo in the 1950s when they were testing a polio vaccine. The Americans had set up a laboratory to make the vaccine by growing it in the cells of chimpanzees. And the journalist's theory said that by doing this, the vaccine had become mixed with the chimp version of HIV, which then entered human beings when they took the vaccine. Hamilton was fascinated. He was convinced that the scientific establishment were trying to suppress the evidence because it was a challenge to the idea that modern medicine was always beneficial. The medical profession and the scientific uh, background to it doesn't like the idea that this might have been a human mistake. My fear is that it's going to become harder and harder to investigate this type of hypothesis that has big implications for what I would call big science, uh, because people are going to be afraid of it for reasons of litigation, for reasons of losing their grant. Hamilton decided to break the conspiracy of silence. So he set out for the Congo. He was going to track down the local chimpanzees, study their viruses, and prove that modern medicine, in trying to save lives, had inadvertently caused the death of over 20 million people. Hamilton's journey was a vivid expression of what had happened at the end of the 20th century to the Western dream of transforming the world for the better. The logic of his scientific theory had led him to a small ruined town in the eastern Congo. He walked through the chaos, murder and looting, 
looking for evidence that Western medicine was dangerous and misguided. While all around him, the horrific consequences of the Rwanda massacres were being played out. Consequences created not just by Western imperialism and greed, but also by the best and noblest of liberal ideals. Because it was liberals in the Belgian administration who had first encouraged the Hutus to rise up against the Tutsi elites. And it was the aid camps set up in the wake of the massacres that had complicated the conflict and helped to spread the violence into the Congo. Then Hamilton died by the freak accident of the aspirin lodged in his gut that then caused a hemorrhage. His theory about the origin of AIDS in the vaccination programmes of the 1950s turned out to be completely untrue. Subsequent research has shown that it had no factual foundation. But Hamilton's ideas remain powerfully influential in our society. Above all, the idea that human beings are helpless chunks of hardware, controlled by software programs written in their genetic codes. And the question is, have we embraced that idea? Because it is a comfort in a world where everything we do, either good or bad, seems to have terrible, unforeseen consequences. We know that it was our actions that have helped to cause the horror still unfolding in the Congo. Yet we have no idea what to do about it. So instead, we have embraced a fatalistic philosophy of us as helpless computing machines to both excuse and explain our political failure to change the world. Adam Curtis, another one of my favorite uh, document documentary series alongside the power of nightmares that he's done. And he's getting ready to release another one sort of about the COVID pandemic, or at least how we got to the situation where we would accept the sort of policies that were given to us from on high by our politicians. It might seem strange to juxtapose sort of what's her face talking about John Calhoun as his mouse utopia study to then Dostoevsky to then something like Adam Curtis talking about Bill Hamilton and, um, you know, price. And one of the reasons why I did so on one is the fact of utopia Dostoevsky mentioning this idea and something that played out in the mouse utopia of this sort of like personal per, per, excuse me, perfectly rational society ends up in the most irrational circumstances. And Dostoevsky sort of notes that because of human volition, because we have choice, because of free will, you can't compute everything. Positivists wanted to compute everything, turn everything into some sort of perfect probabilistic model that then they could impose on the world prescriptively. You just can't do it. There's something unique about the human condition. There's something that really does separate us from the other animals. Um, we call that human reason, but reasons made up of a lot of irrational ideas. 
what's strange, you know, the idea of choice, that's what it is. It's the idea of choice, the idea that we can actually like have some sort of self-determination, some sort of agency. When you look at what something like what Price did and also what Bill Hamilton did, and Price is really the one that's most interesting here, is that he comes up with a purely sort of predeterminative theory, predeterminism, as well as sort of hard determinism, this idea that everything can be coded, everything, everything can be rationally, logically coded in nature, that we're nothing more than machines. You know, in episode two, they talked about that in the context of like this, this uh, of cybernetics systems of closed system loops of feedback. And um, Jay Forrester presented his diagrams used, I think, at the Club of Rome, you know, in their first publication, limits to growth, so forth and so on. And, you know, when we look at that from a historical standpoint, what's weird about what Price did is then he goes about becoming this altruistic Christian, completely nullifying and negating his own theory. Like, in other words, as Peterson pointed out, and as Dostoevsky pointed out, and it was shown in the Mouse Utopia, we would invent purpose just to have something to, some, some, some reason to sort of give our lives meaning, purpose, and a reason to go about existing in the world and perpetuating our existence in some capacity. And so what does he do? He becomes this altruistic Christian, and then he gives everything away. That fails on its own merits for various reasons, and then he kills himself. He does the opposite of his theory. It's like, in one way, he, he invented this theory of perfect, sort of predetermined, hard determinism, this idea everything can be coded, everything can be logically understood and rationally understood. You can sort of like, from that, we will be able to create, he didn't state it, the insinuation, the logical deduction would be to be able to create some sort of utopia based on that. And yet he does the opposite and he kills himself with a scissors to the, to the sort of the artery you know, right here, the order area. And it's just like, you think about that and that's really not, it's just, and the fact he did it, he wasn't drunk. He wasn't on drugs. It's just the graphic detail. Like, like, uh, his biographer said, you know, there's a sort of full consciousness to it. There's almost a purity to, it. I mean, it's fucked up to say it like that, but there's some truth to it. Insofar as like, he was fully aware of what he was doing and he chose to do it anyways, completely against the animal nature to want to procreate and, uh, continue the lineage of the genes. And so what a phenomenal contradiction between what Hamilton and Price came up with and then what Richard Dawkins took and popularized, um, infamously so. And I thought that was very powerful. Now, also, we need to bring up Bill Hamilton here. At the end, you know, this idea where him going to the Congo, which the Rwandan massacre spilled over into the Congo and spelled finally the end from Mobutu, but you know, there's a whole history because German science, I mean, oh my God. Any, there's so much there, but and the chaos, what's interesting, okay, so he's going to search for this theory about the polio vaccine and growing on chimp cell lines and mixing with the chimp HIV and then, it, you know, we infected humans with it and all this sort of stuff in the 1950s. You know, there's a consensus around that being debunked. Who knows? I don't know. I, I looked into it a little bit uh, as part of researching uh, this intermission, but I didn't get a chance to do a full critique on both sides of that story. But it's sort of like what we're doing with the lab leak. Like, I think it's very important to have an idea of the origins, obviously, where this, this might have came from and the players involved. 
But what's behind, behind that backdrop of him walking through those deserted towns in the Congo um, and trying to search out chimpanzees, what happened was he got malaria. He didn't he refused to take malaria medication. He took a, an aspirin, it lodged in his gut, caused a hemorrhage, and he died. That's the story. And while he was down there. But it's the fact that the, Bel the Belgians told a false story about the Hutus and the Tutsis. Hutus and the Tutsis existed peacefully for generations and generations until, of course, Westerners moved in. And they told a false story that the uh, Tutsus were the elite, and then they felt guilty for that, supposedly. And then when they left their occupation, they told the Hutus that the Tutsis were always some sort of evil authoritarian class that's bent on just suppressing them. So behind this backdrop, interspersed in this documentary, cut very brilliantly, edited absolutely brilliantly, it's the story of the, the Hutu and the Tutsi struggle and the, the massacres in the 1960s and obviously in 98 to 2004 or something like that. We're left like four point some million people then. I think that's four and a half million people, something horrific, beyond horrific. And so while he's going around searching for you know, this idea of this, this, the, where the AIDS pandemic may or may not have come from. And this idea of Western science, Western medicine behind the backdrop is a story, a story that perpetuated itself and culminated in the destruction of two people. That was completely false. You're noticing a parallel here, vaccinated versus unvaccinated. You know, we're seeing like the elements, masks versus unmasks, mandates versus those that ref uh, refuse mandates. How long before that boil uh, decays into uh, destructive elements? Um, and we can spend all the time we want, and I think we should to some degree pay attention to the potential origins of where it came from. But in the backdrop of all this, it's the narrative that's going to end up causing more chaos, death, and destruction, just like the lockdowns, just like uh, the, the mandates and all, this, all the, imp the impositions that leaders have foisted upon us irrationally in order to gain control that will have a much greater and already has been shown to have a much greater effect than anything the virus could have done. The virus is serious. It's troubling. I talked about my experience with it and my experience helping other people with it. It's something to take seriously, but it's also to understand that most will survive. Um, and that, uh, especially depending on what age group you're talking about, especially now with Omicron going around, it's the measures that were imposed upon us by government officials that will be, as Peterson pointed out, we played this a couple of weeks ago, lead to much greater destruction than anything we can imagine. And as Peterson also pointed out, they'll transition to the climate narrative, as Dave Collin pointed out tonight, and what the World Economic Forum is getting ready to do a narrative shift on. So I just thought there was a lot of very strange juxtapositions all throughout. This idea of utopia, this idea that humans don't have free will, and then doing the opposite of that, just as Dostoevsky predicted what happened. We would invent some way to find purpose or meaning because we're not rational. When he says we're not rational, by the way, Dostoevsky, he does, he's not talking about it from an Aristotelian or formal logical perspective. He's talking about it from this, what we call the analytic tradition of the 20th century, this positivist tradition, which believed that we could measure and produce graphs and charts and sort of statistical models of every phenomenon possible and be able to come up and organize everything uh, and these sort of closed system uh, data sets, sets uh, of compu that computational machines would be able to understand and create sort of like, not only understand ourselves, but then they create, use it to create sort of like a perfect world. 
Um, that's the implication, at least, if you follow the, the logic to its uh, reductio ad absurdum, it's called reducing it to the most absurd conclusion. And obviously, in that, no matter what, if that manifests, there's still going to be some sort of elements inside the human soul that just will reject it for whatever reason, because there's something truly dynamic, something not that a closed system can't deal with. It's open source. Like as Neil Bohr once said, there's something, there's like an open system. There's, we're, there's something about self-reflective consciousness that we can't understand. Now, granted, all these theories came up or developed by conscious beings, self-reflective, conceptually conscious beings that can't describe what the hell conceptual consciousness fundamentally is, how it arose and why we have it. And yet we use that to develop all these other theories that seemingly are trying to transcend the condition that we call human. So many various contradictions, uh, really not paradoxes, just straight contradictions to trying to understand what it means to be human and try to explain it away. And so I just thought that was a, a very poignant way of sort of juxtaposing all the various disparate pieces of information you don't think there's a connection to, but there actually is a very poignant and salient connection to all the elements that are going on between the idea of utopia, hard deterministic perspective, per perfectly computationally rational perspectives, and then us doing the opposite of that. You know, Bill Hamilton towards the end, was like they, as Curtis points out, is had written some books talking about the justification for full-on hardcore eugenics. This was done in the 80s and 90s. So, I mean, that's sort of the logical conclusion of any sort of top-down totalitarian closed system situation. It always seems to lead to some sort of, there's a pure and there's an unpure. There's the beautiful, like the mice and the mouse utopia, and there's those that uh, the gangs, the violent gangs that arise that eat each other. So anyways, with, uh, with that, let's see, it's late. Uh, <laughs> are you down for another video too, or should we call it there? What do you think? Yeah, what do you got? What do you want to do? On the back ends of that, let's play these two clips sort of back to back, and then we'll go to the end of the night. The uh, I wanted to play this Kim Iverson, but I don't think we're gonna get to it. Um, let's play this uh, technology, economics, and politics section. Let's do this Tucker for watching civilization collapse in real time. It's a nice segue. <laughs> issues of utopia and then play john don right behind it it's a short clip are we witnessing the end of america so it sort of gets into a lot of the details of what we're going through today from a cultural and political perspective and um let you get that up and maybe we'll play the kim video and then lead us out but we'll see we'll come back after that and we'll see what time is left Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. We want to begin by noting something obvious because this is the obvious show. If you live in the United States, you may have noticed that many of our public spaces have become permanent homeless encampments. You see trash-filled tents blotting out what were once green and tidy public parks. You step over vagrants drooling unconscious on the steps of train stations on the way to work. You watch as junkies smoke meth without any embarrassment at all and then yell at pedestrians on the sidewalk, maybe at your children. Everywhere, at every intersection, there are beggars. It's what we used to imagine India was like, but this is not Calcutta. This is New York and San Francisco and Austin, Texas. So the question is, what happened? And the short answer is, our leaders did this. No matter what they tell you, homelessness is not an act of God. It's not the result of economic collapse in this country. America did not run out of housing. 
Instead, a determined group of well-funded ideologues decided to make it easier to live on the streets in this country while doing drugs. Therefore, many more people now live on the streets while doing drugs. See? Not complicated. In 2005, an unemployed alcoholic called Basil Humphrey enrolled in a rehab program in Boise, Idaho. When Humphrey refused to stop drinking, the rescue mission kicked him out. Those were the rules, and he spent months sleeping outside, as so many do. Eventually, local authorities ticketed him for camping on public property. That was the law. The story would have ended there, except that a huge corporate law firm in New York City called Latham & Watkins took an interest in the case on the other side of the country. Now, typically, Latham & Watkins represents Wall Street banks and prominent Democratic office holders. But the firm wanted to change vagrancy laws to increase homelessness. Why did they want that? We don't know. But the firm filed a lawsuit on Basil Humphrey's behalf against the city of Boise. That suit made it to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. In 2018, the court declared that cities have no right to criminalize homelessness. In fact, the court ruled cities have an obligation to provide free housing to the homeless at public expense. The Supreme Court later upheld that ruling. The case was known as Martin versus Boise, and it had exactly the effect that Latham and Watkins intended. City officials across the country no longer had an obligation to protect the public and public spaces from drug addicts who decided to live in them. At the same time, politicians suddenly had access to a massive new source of cash. Taxpayer money, many billions in taxpayer money, for something called homelessness prevention. Now, what is homelessness prevention? Well, of course, it's the opposite of what they call it, as always. Here's Seattle's interpretation of homelessness prevention. A handful of Seattle's more than 12,000 homeless will soon be going from the street to a new apartment with stunning views of the Space Needle and Puget Sound. Using part of its share of the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package, the city bought three brand new apartment buildings for $50 million for 165 homeless, a price of $300,000 per unit. In Los Angeles, Skid Row is about to get a new neighbor, a 19-story high-rise for homeless, costing taxpayers $160 million dollars or $580,000 per unit. They're part of an expensive push to get the homeless off of sidewalks and out of city parks and into government subsidized housing, even if it means buying new buildings at market rate from developers. Oh, stunning views of the space deal in Puget Sound. Do you have one of those? Well, crackheads do. More than half a million dollars per apartment to house drug addicts at public expense at market rates. So you can see why real estate developers would strongly support a program like that, and of course they strongly do. But luxury apartments are just the beginning. Seattle's most recent municipal budget allocates more than $150 million to other so-called homelessness programs just this year. Now keep in mind, Seattle has fewer than 750,000 people living there. So that's an awful lot of money per bum. It's certainly a lot more than anyone else is getting in Seattle. At the same time it was giving overpriced condos to drug addicts with stunning views of Puget Sound, Seattle allocated just $10 million total for its small business stabilization fund designed to keep family businesses from going bankrupt during the COVID lockdowns. So the city's priorities could not be clearer than that. You lavish money on the least productive, most antisocial parasites in our society, and then you punish Americans who work for a living. Got it? And it's hardly just Seattle. The latest city budget in San Francisco proposes spending $667 million on something called the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. And yet, at the very same time, San Francisco's Department of Children, Youth, and Families 
gets less than half that amount. A city program designed to help low-income families pay college tuition gets just $16 million total. That's about 2% of what the homeless get. So in San Francisco, it makes sense. In fact, it pays to get high on the sidewalk. Don't bother to get an education. Nobody cares. That's the message from the city. Couldn't be clearer. In Austin, Texas, the city's budget for homelessness assistance was $68 million last year. At the very same time, the city of Austin spent just $3.5 million in new loans for struggling small businesses and only $7 million for, quote, mission-critical infrastructure and deferred maintenance at city facilities, like the things that matter. And at the same time as this was going on, the police department in the city of Austin got an $11 million budget cut. So what happened to the homelessness in Austin, the problem they were trying to, quote, solve? Well, to no one's surprise, it has grown by 10% in just two years. You get what you pay for. When you pay for homelessness, you get a lot more of it. See how that works? In Los Angeles, politicians have spent billions, quote, fighting homelessness. This has been accompanied, of course, by a massive increase in the number of people who are homeless. Four years ago, the city spent $440 million on what it called solutions to homelessness. That was supposed to fix the problem, did it? Ha! Huh. Homelessness in Los Angeles jumped 15% just last year. So this year, LA will spend more, close to a billion dollars on the homeless in 2022. As for the small businesses crushed by the city's lunatic COVID restrictions, you ask, what will they get? Well, they get $62 million total. The city's gang reduction program gets about half that. So politicians in Los Angeles are at the very least very clear about their priorities. What has this done to LA? We don't have to look far to see the answer to that. Last week, a homeless man walked into a furniture store on the west side of Los Angeles and murdered a graduate student who's working alone there. He stabbed her to death for no apparent reason and then walked out. He's still at large. She was 24, now she's dead. Today, her father told Fox and Friends that he holds city officials responsible for the killing. Watch. What's endemic in our society right now is that everybody seems to be oriented on giving back rights and bestowing favor on people that rob others of their rights. We should be celebrating the good in people and trying to recognize that that's the job they have is to try to elevate that, to make communities better, to make people care more, to not tear down communities by exposing them to people that are falling out the bottom that really don't care about the other human beings and just think they can do whatever they like in our society and they are doing it more and more in every community. Pretty composed for a man who just lost his child, but he's absolutely right. Focusing our attention and our money on people who contribute nothing, who only detract from the project that is this country, don't help their communities or anybody's community, who hurt other people, who live solely for themselves, who are a danger to the rest of us, that's insane. And so that girl died, and she wasn't the only one. Last month in Los Angeles, a man called Carrie Bell murdered a 70-year-old emergency room nurse. She was on her way to work, one of the people we should be celebrating. Now she's dead. Who's the man who killed her? Well, Bell had a long criminal record. He had a prior arrest in LA. He had arrests in other states as well. But authorities let him go and kept letting him go. Bell was homeless. He was a victim. He was part of a protected class. And then he killed somebody. Here's Fox LA's report on that. Days after a brutal attack at a Union Station bus stop, a beloved nurse lost her life. 
Sandra Shells worked at LA County USC Medical Center for decades, where she was highly respected and revered. Shells was allegedly assaulted Thursday morning by a homeless man, now identified by police as 48-year-old Carrie Bell. They say he hit Shells for no apparent reason, the force knocking her to the ground and fracturing her skull. Police say they found him sleeping nearby about 90 minutes later and arrested him without incident. She was an emergency room nurse walking alone to work. And now she's dead. Another woman murdered by the homeless. And don't lie to yourself. No one in LA is ever going to do anything about it. You're probably going to hear outraged noises for a few days. Harumph, harumph, harumph. But politicians will quickly get back to showering the unhoused community with another billion dollars. What you're watching here is civilization collapsing in real time. And it's not new. Here's video our producers shot in Los Angeles in the spring of 2019, almost three years ago. It shows homeless encampments downtown on three separate blocks. It starts at 5th and San Pedro, and then it goes west, seemingly forever. So in January of 2020, the LA Times reported that, quote, California's railroad tracks are now lined with men and women sleeping in tents or under cardboard boxes. In America, by the way. Well, in response to this, Governor Gavin Newsom announced another $12 billion in state funding to, quote, fight homelessness. How'd that work? We'll hear the results. From Skyfox, the images are startling. Thousands of empty or damaged packages lining the tracks along the Union Pacific LA Railway. Amazon packages, UPS boxes, all meant for delivery to customers along the West Coast. They're opened by cargo thieves who take advantage of the trains stopping or slowing down to break into the containers. Union Pacific officials saying they've had a 160% increase in cargo thefts in the L.A. County area with over 90 containers broken into every day. So I guess they didn't clean up the railroad tracks. $12 billion and disorder got worse. But of course, allowing people to live outside and defecate outside in public places and use drugs outside in front of our children is both the cause and a symptom of growing disorder and chaos. It's the degradation of what holds us together as a civilization. So our producers are back in LA right now shooting a documentary for season two of our Tucker Carlson original series on Fox Nation. It's gonna be out soon. You're seeing some of the footage on your screen right now. What you're seeing now was shot this morning on Skid Row. Skid Row in LA is a 50 block neighborhood east of downtown. And it's hard to overstate just how dystopian it is. You should go for yourself sometime and drive through, roll them up, but watch. You will not believe this is America, the country you grew up in. This is what California got for $12 billion. Not fewer homeless, just better funded homeless and thousands more of them. So like COVID and Oxycontin and virtually everything else that's wrecking the country our ancestors built, this is a manufactured crisis. It didn't happen by accident. People paid for it. In New York, officials have given drug addicts priority over virtually everyone else in the city. A lot of working poor in New York. We ought to be celebrating them. The city isn't. It's ignoring them. In 2015, the annual budget of the New York City Department of Homeless Services was $950 million. This year, it's double that. It's about $2 billion. Now, how much is that? Well, what they're spending on the homeless in New York City is more than the city's entire public university system more than they get to educate far more people. So the homeless are getting more per student to live outside and smoke meth. Is that creating fewer homeless? Probably not. In fact, New York's homeless population is now at its highest level since the Great Depression. 
So where's all this money going specifically? Now we could do five hours on this, but here's just one example. That money is going to an overdose prevention center, preventing overdoses, which in fact means helping the homeless get high. Officially called an overdose prevention center, it's a place where users can snort, smoke, swallow, or inject illegal drugs in a controlled environment. Two centers in East Harlem and Washington Heights are the first in the nation to allow supervised drug use. The head of an East Harlem community organization says the facility and a nearby methadone clinic have led to an unwanted influx of addicts. They all come here from different areas of the city. We never had this around here. No matter how bad it was through the 60s, all of that, we never had this around here. It's pretty funny watching people look confused as they see this. What's going on here? I don't remember this. But it's not complicated at all. It couldn't be simpler. Politicians are making it much easier to be a homeless drug addict in the United States and much harder to be a law-abiding member of the middle class. What's the effect? Well, let's see. The middle class is dying, and we now have record numbers of drug addicted vagrants. What does that tell you? It tells you that incentives work. If you destroy the nuclear family, which they have, if you decriminalize drugs, which they have, if you hand out tents and needles to addicts, what do you think's gonna happen? You're gonna get more addicts living in tents. Again, it's not complicated. This is not a vexing public policy question that requires the Brookings Institution to investigate. It's not like fixing social security. And the solution is as simple as the problem. Here's the solution, stop putting up with it. Say no. No, you can't smoke meth in the park. You're not allowed to crap on the sidewalk. Pull up your pants and get the hell out of here. Go somewhere with lower standards. Head for a place where politicians don't care about their people, because we do care. And that's why we're hauling your tent to a landfill and cutting off your checks today. You are a drug addict. Get a job or leave. This is our city. You are not allowed to wreck it. You didn't build it. You know, that's not hard. That works. We know it works because that's how societies function for about 2,000 years. If you're an unmarried man with no job, you were not allowed to destroy things. It wasn't your right. And by the way, this is how successful families still operate to this day in the privacy of their own homes when the NGOs aren't watching. Parents reward good behavior and they do not tolerate bad behavior. Why? Because if you let your kids smoke weed at the breakfast table, they will. So you don't let them. So why not apply the same standard to the drug addicts at Penn Station? Because what we're doing now isn't compassionate, it's an attack on civilization. I'm Steve Ducey. I'm Brian K America has been captured by very evil multinational corporate crime syndicate run out of the Bilderberg Group and its public arm, the Davos Group. They are not intending to allow the population of the planet to continue on as it is, to say the least. And depopulation is what's being carried out through covert means through the so-called vaccine program. And that's now coming out and mounting. And then you ask the logical question, how did the, the, the technocracy engage in this mass murder that's now unfolding with these slow kill, soft kill weapons? How will they get away with that? And the answer is... Further destabilization so horrible that you forget the last major insult to the human ecosystem. So we are being treated as a disease, as a cancer to be cut out.
And the big lie is people working for the system believe that they are positioning themselves with the winning team and that they are going to be taken care of because they are going to execute this operation. When you read deeper into leaked documents out of the Davos group and Bilderberg group that we and others got at great danger to ourselves, you will then uh, discover that they plan to implode all the Western governments and then even have show trials of the bureaucracies that are going to engage in the initiation of the civil war uh, that has already begun, and not just here, but other parts of the world. So all the ministers in Australia and ministers in the Netherlands and the UK and the US that are doing all of this really believe their position because they went to the Davos Group School, they went to the Bilderberg School, that uh, they have a school, and that they're on the winning team. But if you actually read some of the deeper stuff that they're not given, no, they're gonna all be wiped out as well. And I have a sense of being able to look myself in the mirror and a sense of that I'm starting to measure up to my ancestors that were pretty amazing people, and that uh, I didn't join these scum. But that means I will be set up and put in prison or killed very soon. And let's just get down to being honest about this with you, okay? I don't tell you this to be dramatic. We're at the end of the road here, okay? It's 298 days out from the election. They're never going to let us have a free or fair one again. And they're going to devalue the dollar. They're going to gut the country. And uh, you just need to get right with God and realize we're being judged for abortion. I also want to say that I am not offensively, as I've told you, uh, going to be involved in any type of military operations. You're going to obviously hear that when they stage terror attacks. They're already blaming myself and Rush Limbaugh posthumously, in his case, for the January 6th fiasco and the provocateur false flag extravaganza. We're supposed to be horrified by the protesters. Meanwhile, four years of a coup launched in the Oval Office of Barack Obama to overturn the election results of 2016 and not a single word of concern about the potential damage to our Constitution. There's a reason 75 million people voted for Trump. There's a reason that when he made that trip down the escalator on June 5th of 2015, there is a reason that he had majority support in the Republican Party. And that is the people that voted for Trump know exactly what the left has been doing to our country. It's nothing to do with race. It has nothing to do with white supremacy. Nothing to do with white this or that. It has to do with the left destroying Western civilization. And so I just, I have to really just get down to brass tacks with you and say this is the end of the line, okay? Always never melodramatic, never at all, never hyperbolic, Alex Jones. But he's not necessarily wrong either, insofar as we don't have much more time left. And it's going to, it's what we witnessed with COVID, the burnout that people are experiencing with COVID, um, what's going on around the country with this sort of postmodernist perspective on critical race, critical gender theory, critical law, you know, critical legal theory, I mean, critical everything. Um, it's the destabilizations of all uh, systems inside of society. And that's part of a planned collapse perpetuated by our global elites, uh, their, their front men, their front arm, which would be the great, the uh, World Economic Forum behind them, the Bilderberg Group, as he right, rightfully so pointed out. Um, there's this great, I don't actually, it's great, it's interesting. Kim Iverson does this, the great reset, the, the global elites claim you'll own nothing and be happy. And she gets some things right, some things wrong. I'm going to skip that because it's 4.30 in the morning. 
where I'm at and I am truly running on fumes. I don't know how much more I have left in me, but this is interesting to check out. She gets some things wrong. She needs to pick up some of Klaus's books. Um, she got to mention the name of at least one of them and uh, read through them, page through them to see what they're, they're saying. So um, worth checking out. Obviously there's a, I have a whole section here by the administration's just absurd and incompetent. We already know that technology sort of standard stuff. 5g was a big topic this week, by the way, I'm not, can't really get to, but there's a grounding of flights. There's some, it's, it's more has to do with a signal that's, we don't use, <clears throat> um, that, um, or is used over in Europe or something like that. It's not, I don't think it's as, it's not quite how people are thinking it is, I guess, or imagining it to be. So that one's a weird one just because it's, it's some, it's this fight spilling out into the headlines. That seems like it, it should not like it's out there for some strange reason. It's not, not quite apparent yet. But. It doesn't make sense. So, I mean, it, it does like looking at some aviators talk about it. They're saying it has something to do with the frequency bands. Like we have a certain range that we use that the 5g towers don't interfere with, but they do interfere with international flights because they deal with the frequency band that the 5G towers do, something like that. I can't, I have not checked that out or verified it. Bell Big Tree actually did a deep dive into this. I didn't include it because I ran out of time. But if, if you're interested, it's about an hour and 13 minutes, I think, or something like that, an hour and a half, somewhere in there. And the most recent episode, towards the end, in other words, of his episode, at least a little over halfway, he goes and does a deep dive into the 5G. I don't, I didn't check it out. I can't, you know ascertain its veracity or claim its veracity in any way but it was you know he always they usually do pretty decent work um and then under the 5g i have you know there's alex talks about it we have rt talking about it uh so also us airlines call for no so there's something something like that's going on who knows 5g another maybe big misdirection i'm not quite sure we'll find out more i'm sure next week the other thing to point out, obviously, we know about the inflation and the crashing of the economy, but Russia and Ukraine. I wanted to get this on the record. I'm not going to be able to because I'm just out of energy. Um, Tucker had some really good points about this. Alex Jones as well. Um, Crystal and Segar chimed in. They had some very interesting perspectives on it. Um, so there's a lot of craziness going on with that. We kind of mentioned it. Luke Rudowski mentioned it to start off this show. And, you know, talking about the idea of limited war. You know, there'll be a small skirmish and then there'll be a bunch of international intervention. And the only people that really um, profit from all of this are the, the, the sort of military industrial complex who gets to sort of perpetuate endless types of small little skirmish wars that will be going on time and time again until it stops. Um, then there's a lot of election fraud news, which I think many people are familiar with, not not a fan of Trump or anything like that necessarily. I'm certainly not a fan of, but I'm not a, the, by the, the two party system, it's all fraud to me. I've never voted in an American election and it is what it is. I, I've, I've always looked at it for being the facade that it, what well, always has been seemingly. Um, but nonetheless, you know, there's a lot of emerging evidence that shows that there was significant amounts of voter fraud, surprise, surprise. But I remember somehow Biden, like watching paint dry on a wall, got 81 million or whatever it was votes. Yeah sure so there's a lot of that going on anyways uh and we skipped over a lot of clips that i wish i could have gotten to i guess i can just quickly just to finish up the night um 
some culture stuff, mostly critical race theory nonsense. I sort of critiqued earlier mandates and lockdowns. We got, I think we hit the, the heavy hitting stuff, but there's so much more we could have gotten into in regards to that. Obviously vaccines and vaccine injuries. There's a lot I wanted to cover in this. I just couldn't Chris Martinson talking about the deaths in New Zealand. Uh, Tess Laurie uh, interviewed by Christy Lee. So uh, you got the VAERS, you know, new numbers coming out, just the juxtaposition between, I think, December and January is quite startling. Uh, there's this weird admission about some NHS doctors saying all the vaccines will be recalled soon. Who knows? That was sort of speculative, but strange. That's a lot of very interesting and very strange. John Stockton, the famous uh, uh, Utah Jazz point guard, you know, battled with Michael Jordan twice in the NBA Finals, 97, 98. Um, alongside Carl Malone, um, he came out and he was uh, he showcased the RFK book, the real Anthony Fauci, and was just talking about a lot of these things. That was interesting to see sort of ex celebrity uh, NBA star talk about it. Uh, internet censors freak out after video of doctor talk about vaccine side effects. Ball void Australian Open collapses. You know, there's just so much here. I mean, you just could go on and on and on. I don't know. It's uh, there's so much that just we'll never have time to get to, but I'll do my best. And from time to time, I try to get what I can or fit what I can in at the Tuesday night town hall, which is seven o'clock PM, you know, become a subscriber. I'll do even get that on screen. Show people how they can subscribe. There it is. Perfect. It's that top yes. right. Yeah, go. Here we go. Top right corner, join the community and yeah, check that out there. Grand Theft World. Three tiers, and we're working out the final tier, making sure that we get those deep dives on the record, which we'll be doing soon. And um, Monday night, Liberty Radio, James Jordan and Phoenix uh, do a fantastic job. They intermix a little music with a lot of topics that we can't cover. So, yeah, you're perfect there. Yeah, uh, go to Odyssey and search Manufacturing Reality, all one word. That'll bring bring those guys up there and i think you can find them on float as well is that also the name of his blog james's blog that is yes that is the name of his blog and he's he's posting on grandtheftworld.com as well down awesome. here at the bottom gtw reports yeah oh fantastic he does really great work absolutely worth checking out he's also a major participator in the Tuesday night town halls. And he actually might be on the show next week. And I might next week, it'll be kind of a fun show. I'm going to have sort of a round table of individuals um, that are going to co-host with me and we'll keep those. Also, I'll, I'll state that James might be one of them now and I'll keep the other ones reserved for, you know, let the excitement and expectation build up I'll reserve it until next week. The revelation that is. And uh, yeah. So I thank you everyone for, sticking around tonight. If anyone has stuck around tonight, listen to me sort of ramble and die, try about a bunch of crazy stuff. And uh, I hope people got something out of that. And um, we we'll try our best to do and provide as much value as possible. Again, next week, we're going to uh, hope to have a lot more contributors and have more of a discussion and a meaningful debate and commentary around the, a lot of the clips we show that aren't, that isn't just my own commentary. And uh, Richard Grove should be back then let's see it was the, it was the 23rd um let's see next week he'll be gone he's on vacation by the way um in florida but he'll be back pro hopefully for the february 6th show so just one more sunday 
you have to deal with me and a couple other co-hosts. And then hopefully you should be back for the following week. Uh, barring sort of any unforeseen car issues like he experienced last time. So hopefully that won't manifest itself and uh, we'll be back to normal on February 6th. For those that are interested in my pilot course into the logical fallacies and definition under Aristotelian perspective, that is going to start probably the first week of March. It'll probably be held on a Thursday starting at seven o'clock PM Eastern time. If you want to get into be a part of the pilot course, and that'll be for free, um, available to those uh, that are GTW subscribers. We'll probably send out some sort of communication for signups just so I get an idea of total headcount just to make sure it's not overwhelming. And um, that'll happen sometime early February in the next couple of weeks. Um, but I plan to start it the first week of March. And if you want to get in on that, it'll if you can't, it'll be made available for a reasonable price on the Agora Marketplace where we have house and host all the other um, uh, lecture, lecture series and, and modules and, uh, and, uh, sort of solutions oriented approach. Um, and LD, if, uh, you want to bring that up actually too, so people can check that out, uh, get an idea of all the different, um, all the different things we support. The Agora marketplace. Yeah. If you can, yeah. yeah just to show all the different, yeah. Check it out at marketplace.autonomyagora.com. Uh, there's a whole yeah, see all the bunch different of value courses here. There. Yeah. yeah. We're working on uh, actually a permaculturist I worked with that has worked for years as a permaculturist. She's working on building out a, a pilot course herself and she's absolutely fantastic. I took her course many, many years ago and she's been a part of the Tragedy Hope community for many years, a very uh, powerful and um, charismatic and uh, sort of, uh, she has very strong, very strong will, very strong energy. Um, I very much uh, enjoy her work and she, uh, she'll be hosting a course in permaculture. So we're trying to bring as many solutions detailing the downfall of civilization. We're going to have to start building sort of parallel societies, find different sort of mitigation strategies to try to, um, you know, uh, skirt by the, the worst outcomes of what might manifest in our society and just, you know, hopefully be prepared, hope for the best, but prepare for the worst as the old cliche goes. So I think I hit all of the things I needed to hit. So who do we, who do we have to thank tonight, LD? Yes, sir. Thanks to our Rockfin Tippers, Occult Priestess, uh, Calimony? Chalimony? <laughs> Sorry. Augustine, Nicholas, DM, Can, Jesse Elmhorst, and Matt Green. Thanks so much. Thanks to all the Grand Theft World subscribers. And uh, thanks to everybody joining us live. And yeah, go to grandtheftworld.com if you're interested. Join community. Check that out. If you're looking for some Grand Theft World threads or caps, go to freedomunitedrevolt.com. Check that out. You can put in GTW-10 for 10% off anytime you like. And oh, any quick. new... Uh... Any new ones on there? Uh, there's a couple things in the works, but nothing. Okay. Nothing new for tonight. I got to get. That's pretty good. I mean, that's a lot get. more than last time I checked on there. So it's. There's a bunch of, bunch of stuff. And uh, real quick, shout out to a friend of the show, Morgan Lesko. He was in D.C. yesterday, and uh, showing off a sign here: "Technocracy built upon weak science." has even less legitimacy to restrict unalienable liberties. And he was showing off uh, 
some friends, including us, uh, Grand Theft World, Corbett Report, T-Lav, Media Monarchy, We Are Change, UnlimitedHangout.com. So I uh, thought that was cool. That's fantastic. Shout out to Morgan. And also, I believe Adrian was there too, a uh, oh, participator yeah, yeah. on the uh, on the town hall. Then a very, very intelligent, very fascinating man. Always, always cool. Well, the town hall, it was so many fast. Everyone on there is just, uh, it's been wonderful. It's been a, a major success and it's certainly very dynamic. And that's a, I'm not sure if I'm using that euphemistically or literally. Well, but certainly it's, uh, it's always, it's like a, a new roller coaster each week in a good way. It's always lots of, thrills and chills and pretty lights and colors and crazy sounds and always fun. Riveting so, Tuesday discussion. night town hall. Yeah. Riveting. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Tuesday night town hall, seven o'clock PM, seven to 11, uh, join in and become a subscriber, join in and, uh, experience, uh, all the crazy stuff we talk about. So, but with that, Let's, uh, I have a little JP Sears clip. It's a very short one. So why don't we go ahead and play that to play us out. And I want to thank everyone for tuning in tonight. And as Rich would say, not dropping out. Thank you, LD, for manning the ship and keeping this going smoothly. You did an awesome job tonight. All right. Thanks, everybody. Great job, Tony. Have a great night. President Joe Biden held a press conference to go over his accomplishments after his first year in office. Let's take a look at two questions. The first one, a rather offensive question where the president was asked about being mentally unfit. Thank you very much for this honor. James Rosen with Newsmax. I'd like to um, I'd like to raise a delicate subject, uh, but with utmost respect for your life accomplishments and the high office you hold. A poll released this morning by Politico Morning Consult found 49% of registered voters disagreeing with the statement, Joe Biden is mentally fit. Not even a majority of Democrats who responded uh, strongly affirmed that statement. Well, I'll let you all make the judgment whether they're correct. Well, so the question I have for you, sir, if you'd let me finish, is why do you suppose such large segments of the American electorate have come to harbor such profound concerns about your cognitive fitness. Thank you. I have no idea. We also have no idea why the majority of people think the president is mentally unfit. I mean, it's really voter suppression to think so. And just for the heck of it, let's take a look at a second question from the same press conference. Could school reopenings or closures become a potent midterm issue for Republicans to win back the suburbs? Oh, I think it could be, but I hope with God that they're, uh, that, look, maybe I'm kidding myself, but as time goes on, the voter who is just trying to figure out, as I said, how to take care of their family, put three squares on the table, stay safe, be able to pay their mortgage or their rent, et cetera, uh, has, is becoming much more informed on the, um, the motives of um, some of the political players and some of the uh, 
and the political parties. And I think that they are not going to be as susceptible to believing some of the outlandish things that have been said and continue to be said. You know, every, every president, not necessarily in the first 12 months, but every president in the first couple of years, most every president, excuse me, of the last presidents, at least four of them, have had polling numbers that are 44% favorable. So it's this idea that, but you all, not you all, but now it is, well, Biden's it. One poll showed him at 33%. The average is 44, 45%. One poll him at 49%. I mean, the idea that... Um, The American public are trying to sift their way through what's real and what's and what's fake. And I don't think as uh, I've never seen a time when the political coverage. The oh, well, I guess his answer to the second question kind of answered the first question, too. Hey there. Conspiracy is the story of history. It's the story of plunderers taking care of produce. They claim to take care of them through government, which doesn't give you anything. It doesn't take away first. So it's not creating something out of nothing. It's very real what they're doing. They're taking your rights or taking some people's rights and adding more to someone else's rights. If you haven't heard about our Grand Theft World community membership, here are a few of the things you've been missing. A mobile app where you can access replays of the Grand Theft World podcast and show notes. Access to the Grand Theft World community on Discord, where we crowdsource news and resources, and you can contribute to the show. The opportunity to participate in the Grand Theft World bi-weekly town hall. Exclusive content from Richard Grove, including behind-the-scenes footage and future access to unpublished material. 93 episodes of the Peace Revolution podcast, and the Grand Theft World newsletter delivered straight to your inbox each week. If you want to stay ahead of the great game, visit us at grandtheftworld.com, click or tap the button in the top right-hand corner, and join a vibrant community of researchers blazing a new path to truth. We'll see you there.